CM Punk collides with ESPN and Saturday night's all right for fighting for everybody but the EVPs. It's the how much freaking wrestling can we freaking watch edition of the Jim Cornette Experience. And to join me, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Co-host to you. He's watched so much wrestling this week, he's pouring bleach onto his eyeballs. The great Brian Last, everybody. Aloha, Jim. A pleasure to be here once again for another week. You said it. We've watched so much stuff literally till right before we are recording right now. And and we, by the time that we finish this program and the people hear it in its completed form, we, we will have watched even more than we've watched now because we're going to have to break and watch and then come back and finish. And by the way, did you like the way I cleaned up the introduction so that YouTube won't go beep, 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 beep? And, very All good. That, that was very good. Variety, nonsense. Uh, I'm on drugs again. I'm on. I'm. On, it's softer stuff than last time. I'm on the ibuprofen. Yes, it's I'm, me, and I'm on drugs again. Well, I'm just. <laughs> I'm trying to be honest here, of in complete full disclosure at the top of the program, in case I say anything completely out of my mind or off my rocker or out of my keister i don't normally do things like that but you said ibuprofen you didn't say you're on anything like significant well that's why i say it's it's the softer stuff than last time when i had the gout i was on the uh, the anti-inflammatories and the steroids so i could have gone into a rage for like like kevin owens and just scream they're too close to me but now it's, it's softer stuff now at the height of you raging i guess to use a word that uh no one uses if you were on steroids do you think it would have elevated your rage or just it would have been the same jim Cornette raging but you would have been big and strong and well that i don't see how it could have been elevated <laughs> in, in terms of level of intensity or fucking intent or premeditation even and not really premeditation that that wouldn't fit because they just happened it just kind of happened there was really no thought put into it, obviously. <laughs> but if I had been bigger and stronger, that's, I t I've told a couple of people, like I told Batista the one time, I said, if I could put my brain in your body for a year, we'd both retire. I've told people like Hawk and fucking Warlord, I said, if I looked like you, I'd be in, in the penitentiary already. So it's good that these things even out somehow by Mother Nature. That's like a Twilight Zone episode. Like, if I could be in your... Yeah, I gotta take my brain and put it in your big steroid body. 
I would be great for two years and then everything falls apart, but your brain's good, but your body's falling apart with all the steroid-related illnesses. Well, now that's a completely different thing that I was just trying to fucking give him some personality and wrestling knowledge and me the goddamn fucking look to be able to fucking pull it off and we could have split the money. I wasn't trying to make a Faustian bargain with the devil, you fucking grim-minded motherfucker. And I wasn't speaking of Batista specifically. I don't know if I want him for that role. Well, we're not, we haven't gone through full casting yet. No. We're, we're narrowing down the, by the time they figure out how to, well, according, I guess in Japan, they already have figured out how to take somebody's brain out and put it back in. So well, it seems that's what Uncle Dave and said. And the Observer, according to the Observer. Yeah. yeah. It, he reported that. But so maybe we're near nigh onto a place where you can take a brain out and put another brain back in. It's completely related to the first body. And that way, you know, like in the contracts, the brain of the first part and the brain of the second part. But if, back to the ibuprofen well, that I'm on. What well, did you have something else? Yeah, if you found out that cryogenics was the real shit, that they can cut your head off and freeze it. Well, wait a minute. And now. bring hold, you back in a no, hundred no, years and all of a sudden you're... Pump the fucking brakes. Pump the fucking brakes. What? If we're just supposing... And we're, uh, once again, making all this up out of the bottom of our ass, then why do they have to cut my head off? Why can't cryogenics be a thing where they freeze the whole body? Well, this why can't we suppose chance. that? It has to start with cut your fucking head off? I thought that's what they did. Isn't that what they did to Ted Williams? No, goddammit. You're thinking of Futurama. No, I'm thinking of Ted Williams. Well, I don't know. Walt Disney was in One Piece. Well, that was ended up being a bullshit story. He wasn't cryogenically frozen. He was. Well, that's just the rumor that they put out to put people off the scent. He's there. He's down there somewhere. And then that's the state's almost the state of Florida is almost ready for his line of fucking thinking again with DeSantis around. But anyway, can't we keep my body intact if we freeze me? I'm willing to listen to a pitch. If you have a, a pitch, if it involves keeping my body intact and not end up being a head in a fucking jar like on Futurama. But they could put you on a different body. This is your chance to actually get a body to make life worth living. Well, if I get a whole new body, why do I have to keep this same fucking jug head? You don't want to keep your head? I'd, li I'd like to have my brain. I might have had like to add another shot a while back at my face. It's too late <laughs> to do anything about it now. It's it, it really wouldn't do me any good from this point forward unless we started making wholesale changes to other body parts if I had a more handsome face. Well, we want to tell you about our new sponsor, Dr. Zizmore. <laughs> good news, everyone. <laughs> um, but back to the ibuprofen now, yes. you snickering fucking... Um, it, no, I've, I've, I got the arthritis now in my knee. And you know that Arthur of Arthur and Burse and all the rest of them Itis boys, Arthur's the worst one. He's the meanest one. They go out with the Rhea sisters. They do. Ghana and Daya. Ghana and Daya. But nevertheless, of uh, and over the past couple of days, I've had the which bring uh, it's the scaffold match knee. And there's not a lot of cartilage left in there and no uh, major ligament or whatever. So I bet I had the the uh, frozen bag of peas and carrots on it, and I'm on the heavy duty ibuprofen. It's a couple of days. It's feeling better, but I've been active. I've been putting the goddamn. Remember, I told you about the attic insulation project, the spray foam. It's it's, a, oh, yeah. it's miraculous. Oh, and that that big storage room I have up there now in that formerly unusable space with the cobwebs and the snowy 
bleh insulation is now a spray foamed warehouse to put all kind of stuff temperature controlled and everything and so i've been moving everything back into the vault from the office that I took out and then trying to clean the office up. And I've been very ag up and down the stairs, up and down out of the floor, carrying things back and forth. I've, I've, I've done wore my joints out, Brian. And the reason I bring this up is because it reminded me of a tweet I saw last week. I was going to make mention of it, and I didn't. The, the, there was a clip of two girls in Japan doing some kind of flying spot off the apron that led to them just fucking both face planting on the ground in some fashion. I can't remember what they were trying to do. And Leilani Kai, one of the most respected women's wrestling veterans, you know, left alive on the planet, I guess, at this point, old friend of mine tweeted out she because she's such a wonderful person and not she's not in any way trying to harass anybody like I would in that instance. She's just saying, I wish, yeah, I'm paraphrasing now, but I wish that these young wrestlers would feel what I feel from the, you know, basically as carefully worked as possible stuff that was done back in the days and they're doing this shit now and how they're good, their bodies are going to feel and the pain they're going to go through. She's trying to be sympathetic, but they won't listen because they didn't, they don't listen. They didn't listen to Jim Ross. Apparently Billy Gunn is not a person that is listened to in some quarters over in that company. A lot of people listen to me, but it's like the Steve Allen show. Do they get your program in Cleveland? Well, they watch it. I'm not sure they get it. But, you know, so I'm the, the, when we were involved and even me as a manager without even having to take all those bumps every night and blah, 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 just what I did still, it was as carefully orchestrated for maximum impact on the fans, but minimum injury risk as something like this ever can be. And is still people doing wild, crazy shit and, uh, you know, being injured and the guys doing, you know, with joint replacements and all that stuff. Again, uh, the WWE and, and part of this is, is the, the, contrast we're going to draw in today's program between the programs of the very the two big companies but the wwe is at least trying to extend these guys careers and girls careers somewhat by not letting them do insane shit that's going to lead to multiple surgeries and a lifelong you know pain management issue you know by the time that they're 40 or whatever and it, I just wish that they, at the same time, could let the guys and girls be a little bit more real and a little bit more interesting so their matches would be better and their program would be more interesting to watch. But on the other side of the coin, you've got people flying through fucking furniture and landing on concrete and sharp implements all around, and it's like a goddamn rib. It's like a concentration camp fucking obstacle course and you know i just can't help but thinking that some of these people are going to be mostly titanium by the time that they're fucking 40 brian am i overreacting 
I mean, this is where, again, cryogenics may help. Um, <laughs> you know, you think about everything we heard about, all the warnings that older wrestlers or even contemporary wrestlers had about Mick Foley in the early 90s. And he had a Hall of Fame career, but look at where he is physically today. Now, since he first started... Well, and, and, no, and, and to be perfectly fair in a tribute to Mick and his constitution and his freakish body structure, most people didn't think he'd be here today. So the fact that he is here, he has defied expectations, but he's still admitted, and we're not talking behind his back, he's admitted to having such pain at such various points that he couldn't even play with his children and on an ongoing basis over however many years from one body part or area to another. I'm sorry, go ahead. And again, he was the second wrestler from that era that you heard he's going to be in a wheelchair. The first one was Dynamite Kid, and he ended up in a wheelchair. In a wheelchair. And it didn't have a happy ending. Mick Foley's dealing with a lot of the issues. Mick Foley had big bumps, but he wasn't taking constant bumps all match. He also wrestled before the rings got soft and after the rings got a little bit better. So it's a little different, but there are guys today. How many guys do you see today go to hit something? And it's almost like they're just taking a bump from the ring to the floor. Yes. Like that can't, even if it doesn't look like they broke their arm, that's not good for what it does to your body to do that. And they do it all the time. Well, and, and a lot of people, a lot of the guys and girls are overlooking that in giving some of these things and things that they're doing on the aprons or off the ring to the floor or through furniture or whatever the case, it actually looks to the people more devastating to the giver than the taker in some instances, right? <laughs> but the guy that gave it just pops right up like, what do you look? They're just cheering loud noises and things breaking and shattering and people falling into heaps, but it doesn't have anything to to do with the context of what's going on in the match or the, you know, and then they hop right up and continue on doing other things. And there's some level of high risk that you have to have these days because of the expectation. But the problem is, and that's where I was going with the comparison earlier, is that the only thing that the chaos and anarchy and constant meaningless stunt show car wreck wrestling, the thing that that has, the effect that has on the WWE trying to at least keep the guys from killing themselves is it makes them look more boring by comparison. I will admit that. Well, they ain't hardly doing nothing, which is the reason why <laughs> that you never let in any wrestling territory or company the chaos and furniture breaking get to this level because it not only makes the other guys look boring, but when you try to do anything else, it makes you look boring too, unless you're the one or two personalities that can pull it off. And then you've killed your own product, doomed it to, well, we got to do more of this. They can't do any more of this. See where I'm going with that, Brian. No, eventually it has to take a step backwards just because, I mean, as stupid as it sounds, it gets too far forward. There's nowhere else to go. They, they've caught themselves coming around a loop. 
There is almost nowhere to go now in AEW, and that's one of the problems they're going to have. And hopefully on the new program, which by the time this program is over, Collision, we will have talked about it, they'll at least start out with a baseline of, can we have some wrestling matches and understand who these people are? And before we break out the goddamn napalm, but we'll see. Hey, step in the right direction. And again, later on in the show, we'll have the review, which we haven't seen yet because it hasn't aired yet. It hasn't happened yet. But Kevin Kelly, lead announcer, no Excalibur. That, I, no Excalibur, no Shivani was the biggest thing they needed to do to separate this show, and they did it. Well, and, and don't uh, slough off the other half of that equation, Kevin Kelly and Nigel McGinnis as a commentary team. With Jim Ross. With Jim Ross to add expert analysis. Who could have ever thought of putting Kevin Kelly together with Nigel McGinnis? 10 years, 11, 12 years ago. Man, look at this roster. Look at these commentators. They're booking this whole show for you. Well, I'm just saying that. (laughs) (laughs) And the good thing is Kevin and Nigel have experience working together. And obviously, well, we'll talk about that when we talk about the program later on. But I'm excited to see that at least we have a new look in terms of the sound and look in terms of the announcers. And hopefully we'll have, this is episode number one. Here are the people we're going to be featuring, and here's a great main event. And let's go from there. See if anybody yeah. gets run over in a parking lot tonight, and Tony Khan has a lot to do with it. And here's 30 minutes of CM Punk. That's what it's going to be. Then. It has to be that to start the show, doesn't it? Well, but he's in a six-man tag main event. I guess he could pop the corn, too, but... Give somebody else it. It's it, yes. That's why I said, why didn't they just say he's going to have a microphone live in the ring? They didn't have to advertise a main event. They could have made this match. Well, we'll we'll talk about it later on. I've got some emails from the listeners. And Marshall from Norfolk, Virginia, says, "Hey, Mister Cornet and Brian, I like the way he phrased that." Sounds like you're my my little dog sidekick. It's Mr. Brian. What's his name, Jerome? His name is Marshall. Whatever. He's from Norfolk, Virginia. Marshall. All right. But anyway, now, wait a minute now. Don't piss on, don't piss this guy. Master Marshall. What do you have to say, Marshall? He says, I just arrived at the Louisville airport to start my army training at Fort oh, Knox for I take five it back. weeks. You're a hero. You are a hero. Thank you for your service. I take back everything bad I was thinking and saying about you moments I ago. Was, see, I was trying to cut you off before you buried yourself, but you're coughing up dirt now. I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. A Yankee doodle do or die. A real live hero of our Uncle Sam born on the 4th of July, by God. You like Cagney's uh, song and dance stuff? Well, you know he was a dance master. He he was a song and dance man before he ever even made it big as a movie star. So he was born to play that role. But do you prefer that to his gangster roles? Well, that's like saying, do you prefer cake or do you prefer cheeseburgers? They're both (laughs) different, but fabulous in their own way. I'm getting back to Marshall. Back to Marshall. By the way, guess what Stacy got me for Father's Day? And happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there this this weekend. I don't know when you'll hear this. It'll probably be over. Um, when he gets promoted, he'll be like Corporal Marshall. Well, we're not back to Marshall yet. Private Marshall. He's gonna be, he's gonna be General Marshall. General Marshall. General Marshall. 
Anyway, Stacy, guess Deputy what she got for Father's Day? I don't know. A cake. Huh. A big old two-layer white cake with white icing and vanilla mousse. India, uh, vanilla cheesecake mousse or something on the in, in between, <laughs> in between the two. Yeah, I hate them Mises to pee in between the two <laughs> layers there so that I can just get into just sugary goodness with every bite. Did it say anything on top? Did she have anything written in it? Yeah, well, no, because it was just, it was perfect like it was. She's going to say happy Father's Day. Well, she did because she gave me the cake early because she wanted me to know that we had cake. Cyanide inside. It does have a bitter taste. I assume <laughs> that was arsenic. But she's giving it to me a little at a time. That's why it's popping up in my joints first. <laughs> anyway, now we're back to General Marshall from Norfolk. Um, I just wanted to take the time to say how much the podcast really lifts my spirits and gives me a good laugh throughout the day. I was even listening to y'all on the plane rides. I won't be able to listen to the show for over a month, so I hope my goodwill message makes it on there. Anyway, y'all take care. Marshall, your goodwill message made it on. You ain't going to hear this. Well, yes, you for will. A month. For a month, he said. You'll catch up. Yeah. Five weeks. on the Or on the plane rides. We went to Louisiana. Me and Bobby and Dennis Condry. And when we got there, we found out how far the fuck away Oklahoma City and Tulsa was from the rest of the territory. From Alexandria, Louisiana, where we lived, it was Tulsa was 450 miles, Oak City was 525. And it wasn't like we had a day off in front to make the drive, right? So the first few times, we decided a lot of the guys would fly and we would join them. Because you got $125 trans from the office to make the Oklahoma trip. And that's why we ended up driving a lot and a lot of the other guys drove because you could put three or four guys in a car, you could actually make a profit on the trans. $125 a piece, that's $500 for the car. Cost you about, for the car load, cost you about $50 a piece. And there you go. Anyway, but. We decided to fly, and Bobby said, I'll call the airport and make the reservations. Corn, I said, you want to? Yeah, I'll call. So we, me and Dennis sit down and listen to him. He picks up the phone, and he, he called the travel agent in Alexandria, is where he was calling, that uh, handled stuff for the boys, right, when they wanted airline tickets. That was before the internet and all that shit, when people didn't know how to fucking buy their own plane tickets. And the first question he said when they answered the phone, he said, hello, I want to talk to y'all about a plane ride. <laughs> just the way he phrased it, me and Dennis fell over. It's like he wanted to just take the thing up and buzz around for a while and then come back down. <laughs> <laughs> and they hung up because they heard us laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Why did he want right, to make that? Why did he? Did he ever make any other reservation calls for you guys? Every once in a while, he would say, "I'll do it." Like I've told a story before, but it's been years and years. But he, he, we always ordered for him at the fast food drive-through window, right? Because you've heard Bobby talk, people have heard him on tape, and so and through those fucking foghorns, and this is the '80s, the drive-through windows. They would invariably say, sir, could you repeat that? Or, sir, I didn't get that. Or, what? you know, whatever the case, right? 
So me or Stan would always order. Usually when Dennis was in the car, I'd order for everybody. And one day, Bobby, it was just me and Bobby, and we go through Wendy's. We're going to get lunch. And Bobby says, corn, let me order. Okay. okay. And he's sitting in the passenger seat, so he's going to lean up. But I said, okay. <laughs> so he proceeds in the clearest voice I've ever heard him use. He was imitating James Earl Jones or Liv Schreiber doing a voiceover. I'd like a triple cheese with extra cheese, mayonnaise, pickles, and onions, a large fry, and a Sprite, please. <laughs> and they came back and said, Sir, can you repeat that? I couldn't understand you. And I busted out laughing. <laughs> and now I'm laughing and slobbered all over myself and heaving and can't get my breath. And I, and I gave more than a like, triple cheese, extra cheese, mayonnaise, pickles, onions, and Sprite, and and they said, that'll be $4.62. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so, But every once in a while, he would want to do something for the team that required communication. And it, it <laughs> didn't it never end up well. All right. Anyway, moving on to Andrew from Dublin, Ireland. Our friends over across in Ireland there. Dear Jim, parenthetically, and Brian. So you're included in these things. Thank you, Andrew. Not only do I get the best pro wrestling commentary on the planet from your podcast, I've also learned a bunch of new words. And he has listed a variety of the new words that he has learned from the program. And I, I thought these were words in common knowledge that most people would know. But, I mean, you know, it's Ireland. They got different lingo. Would you like to hear... Just the list of some of the words. I'm going to make a noise right now just because I have a feeling before you read any of this list, this may be a YouTube edit. I don't know where we're going to go here. No, but... no, no. There's no vulgarity or a blue humor or any kind of obscenity here. These are just, these are words that we use that might not be available apparently on every other podcast out there. Okay. See, now you've just, you've thrown people's minds in the gutter, and now I don't know where the bit's going here. But the first word, acquiesce. Oh. Acquiesce. I didn't know that that was a word that was in short supply and common usage these days, but apparently people do not often acquiesce to use a word like that. On wrestling podcasts. On wrestling podcast, Ambulatory. There's a word you would think would be used <laughs> quite often. On yeah. the wrestling podcast, ambulatory. That's right. Copacetic. That was one of Mama Cornette's favorite words. Yeah. Is that falling out of fashion these days? I used to have a drug dealer that loved that word. Um, erudite. Huh. Now, that, there's a word that possibly doesn't get bandied around with as much frequency outside of literary circles or public speaking institutions, but erudite. Ah. Here's something that we all, we're seeing it in the news every day, obfuscate. There's a lot of yeah. obfuscation going on actively as we speak, <laughs> but hopefully the perpetrators will be brought to justice. I've used that word a few times recently. And boy, that's what she said. <laughs> and some of those were on air. Yeah, um, opulent. Splendiferous, the trappings of wealth and pomposity opulent ah here's something that we never practice brian perfunctory 
We give great detail and examination to everything. We don't, we don't just go around perfunctifying things. A peripatetic, there is a word that is not used often enough to describe some of the activity we see on television. When did we use that? When did you use that? I didn't use that. I used that word. When? I don't know. Maybe you weren't listening. Well, you may have a point. Sometimes you don't. What? Pertinent. That was pertinent. See? Pomposity. I think I just used that word. <laughs> Here is another supposition. Yes. Now, see, a lot of people don't know that that's the past tense of the act of delivering a suppository. <laughs> that is not what that is. Is that not? Have I been misusing <laughs> I that? I think you may have been misusing that, yes. Well, I'm sorry, apparently I've been misusing the suppository. <laughs> um, and finally, but I don't know that. I thought they were supposed to be strawberry flavored. What? And finally, oh, verklempt. Right there you have yeah, the list. Right there. We are all verklempt over that. Uh, another Chris from the United Kingdom. A lot, of my, a lot of our listeners, I started to say my listeners, but our listeners, Brian, you're along for this ride. A lot of them coming from the UK and points across the pond these days. I don't, apparently you don't give a shit. Are you looking for analysis on that? I'm just looking for any. Well, thank you. Oh, those of you who we once defeated in a revolutionary war. I think now that postage rates have gone up, the amount of emails coming from overseas has gone up. That must be, there must be a correlation. Correlation, by the way. There's a word. There's a word. Here's another word. Hi. Hi. <laughs> just, a, just a couple of notes. Thanks, guys. From the from the United Kingdom. But we'll be Either. at Wembley Stadium for an exciting show. We hope you could all be there. Back to you. Apparently he's not used... Apparently, I gotta stop. Apparently someone said that it, I saw it and now I can't remember exactly what it was. But he, now he's obsessed with being on TV. He loves being on TV and I get it. Because now all of a sudden people come up to you, hey, I saw you on TV. Yeah, that was me. Yeah. The guy with the eyes. He's doing it on Ring of Honor now too. And he can't use hi anymore. And he can't use thanks guys anymore. <laughs> so I think it was either, hey, everyone, or hey, everybody. I forget what it was, but you can't really say it without like a twang. Like, hey, everybody. Hey, but here's the thing. <laughs> then they can just play. Remember the, the only top 40 hit by a rock band of Native Americans? Oh, Mr. Music Man, name me that. Redbone? Yes. Come and get your love. That's right. Hey, hey. <laughs> That's what he can do from now on. Hey, hey. Anyway, Chris from the United Kingdom says hi. Just a couple of notes from the United Kingdom. Number one, Jay White is from New Zealand. Stop blaming us. <laughs> Okay, all right. <laughs> we got a few emails saying that actually all Jim right. doesn't know the difference between New Zealand and England. Well, <laughs> is it racist to say they all sound alike? You're a racist. And number two, <laughs> number two note from the United Kingdom, we don't all sound like Kevin Patrick. Stop telling the world we sound like that moron. <sighs> oh, I'm so sorry. <sighs> Raw rolls on. 
He sounds like Prince Charles pleasuring himself. Oh, look at look at the visionary. <gasps> Thank you, fuck you, bye from Chris in the United Kingdom. You're having visions, <gasps> hallucinations, even. Maybe every um, time he does that, Vince is yelling at him, like, "Stop that! Ah, stop!" Ah. So what you're saying is he's enjoying the verbal abuse, possibly. Speaking of abusing people. We got an update on a recent topic that we remember. We, we got the letter, the email, I should say, from the fellow who was a friend of a police officer in, a, coincidentally enough, in Ireland. We're back over there in, in Ireland, uh, who showed the body camera footage of them arresting Chris Jericho in the hallway of a hotel in a, an incident. We said, well, is that? Is that something you can do to just show people body camera footage? And we asked the members of the cult of Cornette who might be in law enforcement to weigh in on whether or not this can just be, I don't know, pop up in your home videos or whatever the fuck. Uh, Steve, last name redacted. I don't know what, uh, well, I just, I won't say what the police department might do uh, over this email, so we'll keep him anonymous. But uh, he said, I heard a story about Jericho flexing on the police and the question about viewing body cam footage. Well, I'm a police officer here in the United States and have been for about 10 years now, working for a department which uses body cameras. Reviewing the footage is actually pretty easy. We use a system called Axon, which is probably the most common system used across the nation and beyond. Anyway, Axon has its own web system where all the videos are uploaded to. Reviewing your footage is as simple as logging in, selecting the date time you want to review, and away you go. Now, the videos themselves are generally not supposed to be released to the general public, especially not by the officers themselves. However, there's really nothing stopping you from recording the video using your phone and sending it out, especially if there's something hilarious happening in the call. So they're, apparently now they're, that's going to be a new television program is unauthorized bootleg body cam, body cam footage. You know, it would be, it'd be badass. <laughs> what does Moxley have to do with this story? I don't know. It just sounds like something he'd like. <laughs> A television show all about <laughs> fucking jerky body camera footage of cops, you know, fucking with people. Moxley would be like, that's dope. I think it's copacetic. No, what I was going to say is um, that's a police officer in the United States, though. The person with the Chris Jericho story was not from the United States. Well, so we don't the know technology what the exists, I assume it can be. Now, we, I'm open to more feedback from specific, what was it, Northern Ireland, from Northern Ireland police officers, but it seems like that's something that is, is possible to do from this testimony here. Now, of course, he wasn't sworn in, so we reserve the right to have conflicting testimony if we get it. We'll get to the bottom of this shit. Yeah, at the bottom of the toilet. Yeah. Anyway, and speaking at the top of the list, you guys, the cult of Cornette members, well, you're tops, you're swell, you're the Tower of Pizza, you're the Mona Lisa. What? And I'm the, they're the best because 
Why are you giggling now? You remember the Kerry Von Eric promo before the Lawler match? He goes, Jerry Lawler, there's only one Mona Lisa. There's only one leaning tower of pizza. And it's going to be only one world champion. <laughs> well, there you go. And there was. Anyway, um, they have raised so much money. We mentioned the amount last week, but by the time that you uh, see or hear my voice now, Hotchkiss Featherbottom will probably have tweeted the his invention, the screenshot, trademark, of the Not a trademark, not an invention of his. He, he, he did the whole thing. He does it, boom, it's he just like nothing. That. He literally did nothing. Well, I'm okay. Well, you're going to see it. You're going to see what he did. And you should have saw what I heard. What did you hear? Well, George Thorogood will tell you. But Hotchkiss Featherbottom is going to be tweeting the $750 conversation contribution to the City of Hope via screenshot trademark. Uh, the money that was raised in the month of May on the Action figures, the breast cancer pink action figures at jimcornet.com. That brings a total with April, where we had the big on sale to around $7,600. First, $69 was to the American Cancer Society. Now, if in the future, as we read a couple of the emails, uh, we're going to the City of Hope. There's still a couple of hundred of them available at jimcornet.com, and $10 off each goes to now the City of Hope to fight all kinds of cancer, and help people with that affliction. And at jimcornette.com. You can go to the City of Hope, but the road of blood leaves to the City of Dope. <laughs> That's my charity, City of Dope. <laughs> <laughs> All right, as a matter of fact, I... <laughs> I'm going to give right now $20 to the city of dope. Um, and I challenge all y'all to do the same thing. The city of but dope, otherwise known as alphabet city. <laughs> uh, but take, take it down to jimcornet.com city where the merchandise is great. And the prices are pretty and get the t-shirts, the pictures, the DVDs, the books, we're running out of those Inside the Ropes magazines, if you want to get those, because those will not be replenished. And uh, also, while I'm making plugs, we should uh, uh, subscribe to the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel, because we're past 360,000 now. But if we don't get another plaque till a million, as I mentioned here a few weeks ago, I'm, I'm particularly pissed about that. I may not live that long. I've already got achy joints and potential arsenic poisoning. And also the older clips, as well as the Patreon, for those of you who would like to access the programs from our formative years, from the start right on up to when we got good at it, I guess. I don't know how to delineate that. Uh, you can do the Patreon or the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube channel has our early podcast clips on that for the YouTube consumer out there. Correct, Mr. Last? That is correct, of course. Go to YouTube and search for Jim Cornette. The official Jim Cornette YouTube page comes up with all the Travis Heckle artwork, all the guest artwork, some of your most popular, some of your most popular, some of our most popular clips, and some of your most popular, I don't know what, I'm, I'm using your to the audience and it's completely fucking rooting it. But there's great shit there that you should check out. Also, the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube channel. Go there. We have the old clips. Also, some other Arcadian Vanguard shows, including the Wrestling News Every Day. A lot more to come, and uh, for those who want more Jim Cornette and more 
cool wrestling project. Stay tuned. There's a lot of cool things in the works. Classic wrestling. You just burrow your nose into all that stuff and get a real good whiff of it, folks. You won't want to turn away. You might not be able to. Um, it is time, once again, before we go any further, we got to get into the wrestling here in a little while, but a popular feature now on the program, something we, we're getting a lot of feedback on every week. Reggie's Corner is right here, and oh, wait, we've just on. gotten a few... Hold what? on. I think we have uh, we have a few people who have been submitting uh, possible Reggie's Corner theme songs. Oh, wait. Okay. Here's one. This one was sent. Well, now, are, are these theme songs, or are they just jingles, or are they just uh, intros, little stingers? Uh, what, what form are they taking? I don't know. This one was sent by Matt O'Donnell. Let's go to this. Reggie's Corner We're here to talk about your good boys and girls Reggie's Corner We're so sorry they're dead now What? What kind of ending is that? Wait a minute, play it again Play that again Reggie's Corner We're here to talk about your good boys and girls Reggie's Corner We're so sorry they're dead now (laughs) That's so inappropriate, that's so wrong That is just... (laughs) <laughs> well, he's going to hell. He's who was this now that sent this in? Uh, this is Lucifer. No, this is Matt O'Donnell. <laughs> Matt O'Donnell. Well, he's just going right to a hot place. Um, but that may be that'll do, I guess, for this week until something else comes along. That's right. We'll see what else comes in. Um, has to if you want us to play it on this show, it has to be original music though. It can't be like here's Layla with me singing about Reggie. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we don't want to do that. Because also, that's a seven-minute fucking song or whatever. Well, I was thinking maybe they would just focus on the instrumental part. Well, then they wouldn't be able to sing it at all. Well, then could, what would it have to do with Reggie? You'd have to add the lyrics onto it. That's the challenge, as opposed to singing the part that already has the... I guess I'm thinking, they, they've shown us they're good musicians. They could do that. But not well, anyway, um, Derek. Not hey, hey Derek. Derek. Not hey, Derek, but Derek. From somewhere, he doesn't say, he doesn't, oh, North Texas. And Derek says, hey, Derek. Now, actually, he gets disturbed when we're constantly calling him. But he, he said, I'd like to submit our baby boy Chivo for Reggie's Corner. He was a six-year-old Red Healer Border Collie mix. And this kind of a public service announcement because Derek says, I came home after work recently and found him deathly sick out of the blue. He was gone within the hour. We suspected poisoning, and it turns out he ingested something commonly called laceweed. Uh, to all cult listeners, if you see this shit around your house, get rid of it. It's highly toxic and grows like wildfire here in North Texas. Do you know what that so, is? I don't know what that is. I don't, but look it up. If you're in North Texas or anywhere, laceweed, L-A-C-E, weed. Uh, but he says... He was the most loving dog I've ever had. He enjoyed being picked up and held like a toddler and would hug you back like a child. So we're sorry about Chivo, uh, Derek, but hopefully 
that won't happen any to anybody else if everybody pays attention to what you said. Um, you know, the part of the problem, though, is for people who want to learn more about this, when you try to Google laceweed, you just get nothing but articles about laced marijuana. Oh, for heaven's sake. Then, then laceweed poisonous to dogs. Laceweed. Do a little work for your fucking pet. What, what would have oh. New Jersey was overrun with laceweed? What would you say about swami just because you were too lazy to put a couple oh. extra words in there hold on now i got all these stories about dogs eating weed hold on let me go back but the good weed not the bad weed man this dog looks fucked up but anyway back to reggie's corner <laughs> okay talking about words you don't usually hear on a wrestling podcast man that dog looks fucked up anyways I, that's what they were saying there. at the end of mid-south <laughs> Zach says, last week I lost my cat, Lily. Had her since I was 10 years old. She was 17 years old. Uh, she's slowly been going downhill since January, but said he would, he would love a quick shout-out. Lily, we're sorry. We're sorry about Lily, Zach. But 17, that's a, that's a good long life. And then also Paul from Harrogate over in the UK, who had... Actually, he's been on Reggie's Corner twice now because his cat Speedy passed away, and he had mentioned that his dog Leica was unfortunately sick at the same time, and now on June the 7th, uh, Leica passed away. Uh, a few young children in our village, he says, he's out in the, the boondocks, as we call it down south here uh, in the UK, but a few young children in our village had their first dog interaction with her. She made an impression on everyone she ever met. I would take her on long walks, and she'd never get tired. These were genuinely the highlights of my life. Paul, that may have something to do with you living in Harrogate, but nevertheless, we will all miss Laka on your behalf. Um, and Joseph wrote that he lost his best friend and sidekick of 18 years, Emmett, who was a dog and... The last couple of years, he's obviously gone downhill, but wherever we left him alone, or whenever he says, well, he says where, but <laughs> whenever we left him alone, we would put your show in for him to listen to. So we were keeping him comfortable, Brian. What are you giggling I'm over there about? I'm trying not to laugh. You got me. It was so stupid. You're like, his best friend, Emmett, who was a dog. <laughs> well, because 18, you would think he's a cat. Not a dog. That's old for a dog. Why are you? All right. It's highly inappropriate. And when, one more thing. Well, we the will, last one. We will keep Leica in our thoughts. Leica. Leica. And not Luca either. Luca. Su Suzanne Vega. Suzanne Vega. Thoughts. Yeah. You like Tom's Diner? Uh, it gave me gas when I was there. I like the sweet daddy burger, but the, the, uh, jalapeno fried jalapeno peppers and cheese gave me gas. Anyway, Luke from wherever the fuck Luke, oh, it's Luke from Seattle. Okay. Yes. Luke from Seattle says, I come to you with a sad and gruesome entry for Reggie's corner. My girlfriend came home with two hamsters. I was annoyed at first, but these two little furry fellas were pretty cute and enjoyed playing together in their igloo and running wheel. We enjoyed both Alvin and Theodore as they went on with their daily shenanigans for about a year. 
Then one day last month, I came home to the most gruesome and haunting scene in their enclosure. One of the hamsters, Theodore, was very clearly dead with its eyes removed. Blood was everywhere. There were what? bites taken out of its back. On the other side of the cage, the other hamster, Alvin, was also very dead with blood all over his face and an eyeball laying next to him. I was disturbed to find this scene <laughs> it's pretty and disturbing. quickly disposed of the evidence before my girlfriend could see it. I googled hamster eats brother and it appears it's fairly common after one dies, the other will eat its dead body to apparently hide it from attracting predators. The worst part was while cleaning the scene, the dead cannibal Alvin shit out a clump of Theodore's fur. Oh, What's Both the, are buried this is the worst very, story I've ever heard. Both are buried very deep underground in our backyard now. They will live on forever in our hearts, but unfortunately, the images of the sick crime scene will be engraved in my brain forever. What happened to Simon? Well, here's the thing. That therein you've you've hit on part of the problem here, Brian. Because I think this crime scene needs to be re-examined. I think it doesn't take Columbo to see that you have two victims. What did the cannibalistic hamster, Alvin, die of? He says he was very dead with blood all over his face and an eyeball laying next to him. Well, shit out fur. We know that. <laughs> I can't believe we know that, but we know that. Well, but did, did he die just from... Hamster poisoning? Maybe guilt. Maybe he thought about what the fuck he was doing. That there were You're no saying, pred there were no predators coming into this, you know, small little this enclosure. Yeah, I mean, there, what predators? Was there, was there a did Simon, the brother that was institutionalized years ago, before that Alvin and Theodore went to the gerbil shop, the pet shop, to be disseminated here to Luke and his girlfriend? Simon escaped. The, the Nuthouse Fargo of the Chipmunks. The, the Roughhouse Fargo of the Chipmunks, or the Michael Myers, as this case may be. He escaped. The therapy didn't work. And he came back, much like Michael Myers came back to find his sister. He came back to find his brothers, and he killed both of them. And then escaped, leaving Luke, the innocent little ignoramus that he is about these things, to have to Google and find out some misinformation. There is a, ladies and gentlemen, a rogue and murderous hamster on the loose, especially in the Seattle area. Bolt your doors. Don't go out after dark. Keep your kids and pets inside. Simon means business, and he's hungry. Do you think Simon is a good name for a serial killer? I, simple Simon? Simon says? There's all kinds of things you could do with that. Simon strikes again. I mean, think of the headlines. What about if he only wrote to the newspapers in poem? He could be rhyming Simon. <laughs> then Paul Simon will sue. Well. The vigilante Simon. And folks, if you need to sue a serial killer for ripping <laughs> off your gimmick, <laughs> Stephen P. New, newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. That one's gratis, Stephen. That means you pay nothing. But that was Reggie's Corner. Reggie. 
Reggie's Corner. We're here to talk about your good boys and girls. Reggie's Corner. We're so sorry they're dead now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was Reggie's Corner, ladies and gentlemen. Well, do you have any other yes. serious topics? No, no, we're going to go right to somebody else that was cornered this week. Brian, did you see the new mug shots of Vince McMahon and Kevin Dunn on the that have been circulating, pulled from the WWE corporate website? I guess these these fine new portraits of what they look like today in present time. I saw the new photos. They weren't mugshots, although it does make you question what the modern Vince would look like in a mugshot. It it looks like... Who pushed that woman off a cliff? That guy. Well, yeah, Vince still looks like he's foreclosed on an orphanage on his way to captain a balloon in a round-the-world balloon race, but Kevin Dunn has had his teeth fixed. And everybody was talking about this. He's finally taken my suggestion... And taken some of the millions of dollars that he's made on that stock and gone to the fucking dentist. He looks like, well, I can't, his, his mouth looks like it belongs to a normal human now. But now he's made some other odd choices because since the last time I've seen him, he's, he never had an abundance of hair in all areas of his head. There was some spots, but he had hair back in the day. But now, he's lost so much of it in so many different places, he can't really just let it grow out because then it looks like he's got the mange or he's undergone some kind of radiation poisoning. So, But he can't shave it all the way slick like Stone Cold or somebody like that because even though he's got his teeth fixed, he still has a head that's somewhat rodent-shaped, being a member of the beaver family. So if he shaved it slick, he'd look like an uncircumcised penis sticking up out of a fucking collar of a dress shirt. So what he's done is he's gone for the gray stubble look where he still looks like he has hair if he'd let it go out, but at the same time, he really doesn't. Did I describe that for the folks who haven't seen that picture? In the last few seconds, you tore down his teeth, his bald head, his beaver-shaped face. And his facial hair. I, I said rodent-shaped head. Oh, excuse me. That's indeed what you said. Not beaver-shaped. That just wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Reggie's Corner. <laughs> oh, and we're so sorry. <laughs> He's dead. But anyway, because at... At one point, at one point, didn't Kevin Dunn have a fucking, like, an egg or the equivalent equivalent egg. of it on the website? There was no picture of him up there? I think that is true, actually, on the corporate website, yes. Yes, and then now, finally, he has acquiesced to have his mug put up there, but only after he's undergone extensive work on his grill and his general grooming and demeanor. I bet he was wearing makeup, too, because he, he's always had a, a fairly sallow unhealthy pallor to him. Meanwhile, Vince is over there with more makeup on than fucking Tammy Faye when she went to the mall. That's the other thing. I mean, if you look at these guys, these are the same people that were running the company 25 years ago, 30 years ago. (laughs) Their hair is dark. Vince's hair is darker now and Kevin's teeth are newer. I mean, did you ever think looking at them then that like in 30 years time, both these guys will look like different people? 
<laughs> no, I, I never thought. Vince looks nuts. That photo looks like it was photoshopped. It looks like he looked nuts already in the photo, and they're like, oh man, he looks yeah. too nuts. How do we clean up all this nuts? Let's try something. These nuts. This is the best we could do. And that's what that photo is. That's there's something oh, yeah. going on. I never thought that Kevin Dunn would even try because of what he was starting out with. He didn't have that much to work with. It seemed like a fucking fruitless task. But with Vince, I never thought that he would crack up to the point where he changed his appearance completely to. But I guess I should have all along. I just thought he was too proud. And he would. this is what I am, pal. You know what? I still look good or whatever. But he. You know, with the hair color and the mustache and the whatever the tweaks and tucks and nips and valleys and whatever the fuck has gone on, I get he can't be eighty. He just doesn't want to. No, so any so he got, so he's wearing a mustache that no one wears since the nineteen twenties. <laughs> That'll throw everyone off the scent. Dressing hey, like a silent film star. I'm telling, he thought a lot of Raymond Navarro. Back in the day, you know, in the trailer park yeah. in the 40s, they, they down there in, in that part of North Carolina, they were about 10 years behind on the movies. So, you know, Clark Gable. No, Clark was that 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 fresh faced young newcomer. Uh, that was Errol Flynn. I, th I think we're going more for Conrad Veidt. Fairbanks. There you go, Fairbanks. That's what he's a swashbuckler. And didn't we say not long ago that people don't buckle enough swashes anymore? There's a word you could add to there, that list. There is not enough swashbuckling. Put, put fucking Vince McMahon's. I'm daring. I'm double dog daring somebody. Uh -huh. Put Vince McMahon's corporate picture face in Zorro's costume. And and you and 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 put a sword in his hand, and you've got Zorro. Yeah, the gay blade. I don't know if he'd like to be termed that or not. Possibly, possibly not. But nevertheless, that was Vince McMahon's and Kevin Dunn's new photos on the not nude photos, by the way. I don't want anyone to mistake what I said. New, as in recent photos on the WWE corporate website. That were quite a. I didn't look at everybody else. I just saw those. I haven't gone to the site and seen what the fuck all the rest of these shysters look like these days. They've had a whole bunch of turnover since I was there and saw them in person. What do you think? We're like two years away from Vince, like having a ponytail or bleaching his hair blonde. Well, what's he going to do next in this bizarre late life crisis? I'm afraid if he grew that much hair and had it hanging down, that it would give him neck trouble because he. He also, did you notice that he was wearing what appeared to be a, a suit jacket with no fake shoulders and he has lost some weight? And maybe they trimmed it. Maybe, but he looked like a normal human being with normal shoulders at his age and stature. You didn't notice that? I didn't notice his shoulders. Or his shoulder My pads. eyes were immediately drawn to his shoulders. Did you wear uh, big shoulder pants with your jackets? If there was shoulder pads in the jacket I bought, I wore them. I didn't go out of my way to artificially inseminate any shoulder pads. All right. But Vince's, it looked like somebody forgot to take the fucking hanger out of his jacket most of the time. Anyway, should we talk now about his company? Or, uh, no, where, where were we going? We're talking about, yes, before we go his to His favorite wrestler. His favorite wrestler. <laughs> 
<clears throat> pardon me, I think of these transitions and then can't remember them. But everybody knows that Vince McMahon Jr.'s favorite wrestler was Dr. Jerry Graham. And it just so happens that the Dark Side of the Ring episode this past week on Vice TV was on the Graham family. And it focused on Eddie and Mike Graham and the thread of suicide that had run through their family. They were obviously, even though they weren't real Grahams, the, their family name was Gossett. The, the episode was mostly focused on them. Billy Graham needs his own episode, which I'm sure will probably happen, as Mama Cornette used to say, by the time it's over with. But in this one, they had to tell somewhat of the Jerry Graham story to be able to illustrate where Eddie first attained fame and got the gimmick and et cetera. And, and, and that's why... To be honest, I just love the hospital story so much to see a reenactment of it on television in 2023 when it happened in 1968 or whatever uh, still gave me tickles to no end. But the, the big thing in this episode, I thought, and probably the thing that you liked best, was the footage that has not been beaten to death. The Florida stuff that probably, would you say, with the exception of the AWA and the Ganya Library, there's more Florida stuff than from any of the other territories. And and the WWWF, I should say. Well, and the Crockett stuff. Well, but now here's the thing. Crockett stuff goes back to that era and, and somewhat before. There was a few things, but Eddie Graham, they kept film. They kept older TV shows. You see that stuff from the early and mid-70s. And... uh I th so I just like that the footage here was stuff that hasn't been beaten up at every other ter every, every other documentary. Yes. 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 I know you have more in your collection than they do, but well, I mean, there aren't a lot of documentaries about this topic or these topics. I mean, it really was about Eddie and Mike. It really was about, you know, that wing of the family, whatever you want to say. I know they did the Dr. Jerry Graham reenactment and talked a little bit about him but it really was all focused on Eddie and Mike. By the way, I'll say, you were fantastic. You were so good. That, <laughs> well, like, thank you, doctor. No, you were so good that like they didn't even drop Jericho's voice in for a while. I forgot there was a narrator. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, his voice it was just you and Mike Graham's daughter. And you guys were telling the story perfectly. And then all of a sudden, Jericho, to very, you know, somberly, like, and then there's a... Uh, 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 he didn't need him. You you did great. Well, thank you. I you appreciate it. And, and also, and Dottie Curtis. Don Curtis. Oh, she was wife. great, too. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, thankfully, because so many people from that era are no longer with us, so it was nice. And, and she was figured that Don Curtis was uh, obviously a main event, top-level wrestler in the late 50s. And, and then he was a team with Mark Lewin, and they were big in the in the Northeast. And... I'm sure that's where Eddie and he had probably first met, maybe in Texas, but probably in the Northeast. And they did business with each other for the next 25 years or whatever. Uh, Don Curtis, when he retired from in the ring, was the promoter in Jacksonville, Florida, at the Coliseum Jacksonville. Throughout the years of, of championship wrestling from Florida was probably one of their I'm going to say most most consistent towns of just a really good town, nice building, seated like 6,500 people, 
Jacksonville was a good wrestling town, and Don Curtis promoted that, promoted spot shows, did some television announcing for some periods of time, and was really figured into that office, so Dottie knew, you know, what was going on with the Graham family more than most people outside the family that especially it would still be alive. And of course, like you said, Nicole, Mike's daughter was fantastic and got a ton of praise on social media for how she's handled things and carried herself and everything. Yeah. And you know, Don Curtis, like so many other people came to Florida because of Eddie Graham was set up because of Eddie Graham and eventually had a big falling out with him. And that was it. He ran opposition and that yeah. was him, but Great Malenko. I mean, there's a string of guys who were real tight with Eddie Graham and then completely fell out, even though they were such a big part of that company's success. And, you know, I think that's uh, when I talk to the dark side guys, and obviously this is a 46 minute television program or whatever, but I illustrated, and I think, I don't know whether we've talked about it on the program or not, because we've done a couple things on the Graham family here. Uh, over the past few months, I did the research for this program, and that led me to start talking about it. But Eddie Graham had his choice of wherever he could have gone. Uh, coming off of being part of the Graham brothers and selling out Madison Square Garden, being big in the Northeast, and he picked Florida, where he had been before twice. Once, when it, like his rookie year, early 1950-51, and then right before he went to Texas and became Rip Rogers. So he knew the layout of the territory, and he knew that in the 50s, Florida was not a big-money wrestling territory. And if you go back and look at the results and the crowds, 1,500 people was a big wrestling crowd in Tampa in that period of time in the late 50s. And I think he thought, I can not only get over and be the top guy here, but I see potential. Uh, you know, Florida's growing. It was uh, kind of, it was still swamp except for Miami Beach in a lot of cases back then. He saw an opportunity there. And I think it's also kind of coincidental the period of time that Dr. Jerry Graham had convinced Vince Sr. to give him another chance with Luke Graham as his new brother. Remember, Eddie went up and they did some six-mans, and, and Eddie appeared, what was it, 63, 64, in that period of time in the WWWF, even though he was still working in Florida. Did he go up there and make some extra money so he could buy in the office? Because that's about the time that he bought in at least a bigger piece with Cowboy Luttrell. So I'm thinking that was his plan, and he may have even worked with Vince Sr. in making that happen. I, you know, Vince Sr. might have said, I see this guy that not only has been a top draw for me, but also seems to have a great head for the business. And here's Florida's wide open. Luttrell's old at this point, and they ain't drawing any money. Maybe I could, he might have pulled some strings. Maybe there was some kind of deal where, you know, Eddie, if you need some help, I'll bring you back up. Get in down there. Buy a piece of it. Take the fucking thing over. Who knows what? Yeah, of course, he but, wanted his friend to be the promoter. Again, Vince had a vacation home or a home, whatever you wanted to call it, in Florida already. And see, that's that's why I'm saying that I think that, uh, unfortunately, we'll never know what would have happened 
Eddie Graham was not going to give up Florida to Vince Jr. or anybody else without a fight, but when it became obvious that Vince was taking over, if Eddie Graham had still, if he'd have lived four more years to see w, uh, Crockett sell to WCW and Heard and all that, I think you would have seen Eddie Graham working with Vince McMahon. But nevertheless, back to the show. I, you know, also the magazines, the pictures, a lot of that stuff was the stuff that I had in the vault here that I furnished them, but a lot of other stuff was from, you know, a variety of sources. And it's also, it's amazing when I saw the the footage of, uh, you know, Eddie Graham liking to bring guys in that wanted to be wrestlers and have the guys stretch them, and Kevin Sullivan talked about it. Watts did the same thing. Watts learned from Eddie Graham. (laughs) Anytime some big schlub would want to be a wrestler, he'd have him bring him in the ring in Shreveport and put him in the ring with Dr. Death. And one night, this guy just kept hanging onto the fucking ropes. Doc couldn't get him out in the middle of the ring to do anything. And Watts is like, here, I'm an old man. Come take a headlock on me. And the guy grabs a headlock on Watts and Watts takes him up in a belly to back and turns him over and splits the seat out of his pants and pissed him off even further. And he wrapped the guy up in some kind of sugar hold and had him picking his nose with his right index finger from around the left side of his head. But that's the way that those guys not only learned and were taught and trained, but it did have, besides the sadistic side of it, it had the effect that they were looking for in that guys would go and tell their friends and tell other fans, they fucked me up. Those guys aren't a bunch of bullshit. And that's what they were going for. That wasn't what Eddie Graham was going for. I don't believe. Well, Cause I've talked to a lot of people that were there. Too. He was just into, I don't know if it was just when he was drinking or it was just in general, but he was into seeing marks as he would say, get destroyed. I mean, chased into the street, bloodied <laughs> up, hurt bad. Bob Roop was the person everyone always points to as being his main assassin. But there are a lot of guys in that snake pit. And Eddie Graham loved seeing fans, loved seeing people off the street get brutalized. And it wasn't that he wanted to run his fans off. It was that that was a that was he loved the fans coming and buying tickets, but he it was a side hobby of his that he liked to see people get stretched and and then he wanted to get in there and participate after yeah. the person was already beaten up. And the same thing happened to him. You know that's that's what they used to do to guys. You know to determine whether they wanted to get into business or not. And then at Stu Hart, they all had that. You know fucking uh little quirk let's say but with the and and also that it, and then it would it could backfire which is why that they took too many chances when they did shit like that whether it was tim woods getting his finger bitten off by the soldier in columbus georgia or our boy william getting out of the sugar hold in frankfurt or wherever it was yeah, that's how terry daniels got into the business he got out of the crowd to challenge adrian adonis in southwest yeah so sometimes it would it or amarillo would excuse me not southwest yeah. amarillo but anyway and then you know they covered eddie and mike's relationship starting out mike was an amateur wrestler and then turned pro and 
you know, that's the thing that for for all of the people that Eddie had his guys stretch or, you know, sugar or whatever, he also started the the boys ranch that he learned from from Texas from being out there. He brought the boys ranch to Florida and he contributed to every amateur wrestling program for kids in school in the fucking state and was constantly getting awards for it. And they mentioned that he did more for amateur wrestling in schools in Florida than probably anybody else. And also with the boys ranch, you know, gave a lot of kids a place to go. So there was, it wasn't like he was just this miserable motherfucker. He was, you know, he was, he like was, the, mo he was the most civically minded of all the promoters in wrestling, actually. Yes. And, and you can be, you can be cynical and say that every single one of those awards and plaques and handshakes from the governor or the mayor or whatever ended up on TV. They did. But why, if he's going to do that, why not use it? Because it made wrestling look better as well as him. It made the company look like they were part of the community. And that's why he could, you know, run a company where in one state, of no more than the size of Florida, and this is with populations in the 60s and 70s and early 80s. Yeah, it's a very good point. He could sell a million tickets a fucking year. Imagine if you did that in every state in the country. You know, so that was and, and a, a strong TV clearance on, in every market in Florida on broadcast television and weekly, if not bi-weekly events, plus big shows and the Bayfront Center in St. Petersburg, or they'd go outside in the, you know, the bowls in the summertime. And um, he saw that, that he took a territory that was drawing to more money than the central states in 1960. And by 1970-something, Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream, they're selling out every building in the state and their household names. And he kept that going for the better part of 25 years. You know, one of the things I was happy they pointed out in this, because it's something a lot of people miss out on when they talk about Eddie Graham. A lot of people point to business dealings and different things that didn't work out, plus alcoholism and various different things. Wasn't a young guy. You know, we know so much now about CTE. I'm not saying this was that, but who knows? How many bumps did he take in his life in hard-ass rings, in boxing rings? So we don't even know. Yeah. But they talked about, and Kevin Sullivan talked about, I'm glad Darkseid, I guess, made right by Kevin Sullivan after he got shafted in that Chris Benoit one. But Dusty Rhodes, his biggest star, who you just mentioned. Yeah. Took, I mean, again, I'm not blaming Dusty, but I'm just saying it's a fact. Dusty left to go book for Jim Crockett. Quite frankly, if he didn't do that, he was trying to set himself up somewhere. He was talking to Vince at that time. Vince has said it was either Hogan or Dusty. So Dusty was making a move, but Dusty took the entire crew with him. Yeah. Everyone who had been there in 83 showed up in Mid-Atlantic in 84. You know, and the thing is, it hurt both companies for a while because all the talent that people knew in Florida, not all of it, but a good portion, left and was replaced by new talent. So that hurt the houses. And in the Carolinas, all this new talent came in in fairly quick succession and kind of at first hurt the houses there because the people didn't know them there. But Dusty had a plan. It's kind of like, you know, what Eddie Graham did 15 or 25 years earlier. 
Dusty did the same thing as Eddie did. He not only goes in and becomes a top star, but also he gets involved with the book and he brings in people that he either wants to work for him or work with him. But the problem was, you know, now um, Eddie, who had made Dusty, is somewhat high and dry, and Dusty's working for a company that's much has the potential to be and already is much bigger, no matter how good Florida wrestling was, than one state territory. So he learned, and and actually that's the same thing Watts did. Watts learned from Eddie Graham and went and made Mid-South a bigger territory than Florida was. But nobody really ever had a a grip on a, a territory that small that could be that successful for that long a period of time it was that, you know, that iron-fistedly in the entire territory days. When you look at Mid-South Wrestling television, and obviously other things, but I think that may be the single best example to point to, and you look at Florida wrestling in the 70s, can you say that Eddie Graham was the person who really got how to present wrestling yeah. outside of a studio setting? You know, that's Memphis Live, outside of a live setting, I guess I should say, got how to present wrestling on TV? Well, yeah, because there's so many similarities with Mid-South. And remember the old Florida format where you weren't sure of exactly what was... Sometimes the, the show would come on, there'd be a match already going on in the ring. And Gordon Soley would welcome everyone and set the scene real quick, and they'd finish that match within a few minutes and, and then come right to the desk, and there'd be something happening in the way of an interview. And then they, very early on, would have main event matches, either non-title challenges or, you know, just uh, because it was home to so many top names, the Funk Brothers, the Briscoes, on and on, even when they had just cold matches on television, the names involved w made it look like a main event. Plus, it's the and, serious presentation. Neither yeah. show, and again, I think Watts says he got it from Eddie Graham, neither show had goofy announcers. The commentators were serious. They were the hosts of yeah. the show. And because they were treated serious, the show was serious, and you paid attention to some of those matches that you probably wouldn't have if it was just... Someone yelling at you again! Like you Gordon Soley had the same demeanor or attitude as any NFL broadcaster did calling football game. And and that was another part of the... Pre and, and again, just up and down, the, the level of talent and then the angles and the heat they could get from that crowd where they taped TV in the Sportatorium. And that was kind of the the same setup that Watts used in Mid-South Wrestling where you never were sure what was going to happen. You saw main events, but you also saw guys go out and just smash themselves over. You saw unexpected angles. And the people knew clearly who were the baby faces, who were the heels, who was on whose side, and who was mad at who. And it was reinforced constantly. And as a result, people would jump up and down for everybody because they were all clearly different. And they would even go, Watts learned this from, from Eddie Graham, but it was an old rule of thumb in the wrestling business, that you wouldn't have five or six people on the card at the same time with the same gimmick. And the same gimmick being, we got a guy from England, we don't need another guy from England. We got a cowboy, we don't need two cowboys. Whatever the fuck. It didn't, everybody was clearly different, right? And you could tell them apart at the glance. Anyway, 
so the problem was, and, and as we've talked about before, and we'll move through the program, Eddie's outside the ring issues with drinking and business deals, depression, as you mentioned, a CTE, who knows? Because besides that, the the hard rings and the bumps, the chair shots, whatever, you know, he committed suicide on Super Bowl Sunday of 1985, and they paged Mike at the Super Bowl to tell him. And I remember him telling me that story. That, that's, that's a shoot. And as he had to take over, I mean, at this point, Vince was already expanding. They'd lost talent. Um, it, you know, Eddie Graham being gone, I think everything just kind of fell out of place. And they ended up in what, within two and a half years, Crockett had bought the whole thing and taken over. And yeah, I mean, we go ahead. Can, we can look back now at that period after Eddie Graham dies, and there are things that we can appreciate now, and there are wrestlers that later did great things. So you watch that, and you're like, wow, look at them when they're so young. But it was such a big step down from what it had been, and the talent wasn't there. Vince was signing up everyone. I mean, everyone. And as soon as someone became a top star in a place, Vince would sign them up. So it was hard to get talent. I mean, that's why so many of the guys that you see there ended up signed up by Vince. But see, now here's another thing. If Eddie Graham had still been alive in 1986 when Crockett had his best year ever and Vince was on fire, would Eddie have gone with Vince because of the relationship, the families that it had? But a lot of his guys, including many of his good friends and protégés, including Dusty, were working for Crockett, and it was still the NWA, would Eddie Graham have helped Crockett? Hey, listen, a lot of his guys, a lot of his friends, Jack and Jerry Briscoe went the other way. That's true. But then would, would Eddie, uh, he would probably held out for the best deal also. He would have had to sell his territory. I guess that's one of the big things. It wouldn't be like in 93 when Smoky Mountain Wrestling was talked about on the show and existed. Vince would probably say, I want you to come work for me, but I own Florida now. Based well, on everything he was doing at that time. Well, but or would the Eddie Graham being a visionary, would he have seen and made Florida what it is today? But championship wrestling from Florida would have been the developmental territory. I don't That's think a, so. You know why? Because I don't think Vince had any appreciation that he was going to need a developmental territory that true, his business model true, true. was going to wipe out the entire an entire <laughs> uh, workforce like it did and that's what happened uh but anyway as it was and i remember mike's brief period of time some of it i was there in wcw and i thought nicole said it best when it got more theatrical and started being written by people that knew nothing about wrestling that's when Mike got disenchanted with it. And, and then he ended up had a drinking problem. And, you know, and, and you could, she mentioned his two driver's licenses. Guys did that in the old days before computerization. And especially if you were as important or as prominent a person in a state, he had a Mike Gossett and a Mike Graham driver's license so he could get DUIs on each one of them. Um, That's crazy. And then, he, I, you know, his son, Stephen, <laughs> had remembered 
Eddie and Mike and Mike's son, Stephen, as we get to the reveal later on at the end of the show, I didn't really know about Eddie's father and his his brother. But um, but See, I, thought, I didn't like that. I didn't like that because I knew about Eddie's father and I thought they were going to reference it early on and they didn't. So, I thought, oh, OK, they decided not to reference that. And they did it at the end like a big Maury Povich, you know, surprise. Yeah, there it was actually a, there was, was another suicide. Yeah, yeah, what? I don't like that. It wasn't it it wasn't chronological. But I thought uh, Kevin Sullivan again did a great job and he was really close to Eddie. At a point in time I did the interview with with Kevin years ago about the Florida territory and it, there was a period of time where Eddie and Mike were kind of on the outs and Eddie was taking Kevin out on the fishing boat. And when they were young, Kevin and Mike, they looked so similar. That's why they, as a tag team, they looked like a brother team. And you, I think you said it in the episode, and you were right. Mike was better in a tag team than as a singles guy. And I think you saw it even like that fired up promo after the Freebirds attacked him. Yeah. He wasn't a singles promo. I'll put it that way. And the thing is, he was a legitimate... Amateur wrestler. He's a power lifter. He was strong. He was tough. Yeah. He was a, you know, he fucking, not like it's a, an accomplishment, but he backed Sid up in that incident. But he could take care of himself. But he, he came along at that point in time. By the time he got out from under Eddie's shadow, because Eddie was just so larger than life to the people, then the territory days were over with, and Vince had convinced everybody that. To be a wrestler, you had to be 6'5 and a bodybuilder, and Mike just didn't have the look. So he could whip those guys. He just didn't look like it. And Mike, I believe, was one of the last guys in 83 to appear at the Garden, one of the last outside guys. The last guy was J.J. Dillon in 84 after everything had already started and yeah. really all the shit had hit the fan. But Mike Graham, Eddie got him booked there in 83. And at the time, uh, we've talked about in late 70s, early 80s, of any of the territories, Eddie Graham was having more of his Florida talent booked up there than anybody else put together, as a matter of fact. The TV aired up here. Vince allowed yeah. the TV to air up here. I mean, Eddie wouldn't have done it without Vince's permission. You know, New York fans got to see Florida wrestling. But they made a ton of money at the Garden off Dusty, so... Can't it, complain. It a, yeah. <laughs> That's right. But anyway, so, and, and then, as you said, you know, Mike uh, killed himself in Daytona uh, wearing his son's boots, who had killed himself two years earlier. And, you know, at that point, then they revealed that Eddie's father and his father's brother also had killed themselves. And, and Nicole was really the star of the program and the most sympathetic figure. And, you know, she said that it, it was kind of like when the first one happens, it, it becomes an option. It makes it seem like in their minds, like it's viable because that's something that can be done. And, you know, and the title of the episode was breaking the cycle and she has done that and try and trying to help other people do that. So it, it, you know, this is another one that it was, it was incidentally about people in the wrestling business, but really it was about this family's story and how they got to where they are in this, you know, weird world that they had inhabited. Again, you weren't there in the early to mid eighties, but how do you think Eddie Graham, if he wasn't drinking or anything would have coexisted in 
that early WWF national expansion system, would he have been able to coexist with a George Scott? I mean, I'm assuming George Scott would have been hired just because Vince was hiring anyone, but would maybe that mean George Scott isn't hired? If Eddie Graham, when Vince went around in 83 and he tried to buy the AWA, and by 84 he tries to buy Dallas, he tries to buy and then he buys Calgary, he buys LA and doesn't pay for it from Michael Bell. If he had bought Florida, he buys Georgia in 84. If he had bought Florida in 83 or 84, would Eddie Graham have been able to work in Connecticut and live in, deal in that system? Well, that's the thing is, I would almost think at that point, Eddie would not have wanted to move from Florida after living there for 25 years and be full time. And I almost think that it would have probably been the best year. George Scott at that point would have probably been extraneous <laughs> because if you've got access to Eddie Graham's head and Pat Patterson is going to, within what, just a year or two from that, really get a lot of pull with Vince, already had some, but going to get more. Can you imagine if you could have just had Eddie Graham and Pat Patterson sit down for a day or two, once or twice a month? With Barnett around to cause trouble? Well, no, but I'm talking creative. I know, I know, I know. And I think it would have been something like that, Eddie. You know, like the, the promoters already did. They would call, Eddie, we need a finish. Eddie, we got to switch this belt. How could, you know, it, advice. He wasn't going to be booking everything, writing, going to the office every fucking day. But if you had, again... Pat Patterson didn't go to the office every day. They spent a lot of time at Vince's house. Pat lived up there. But if you had, you know, Eddie Graham coming in like he did later on for a while with Jerry Jarrett or Bill Watts, a little bit at a time. You know, I think that Eddie, honestly, Watts was too short-tempered. <laughs> Jerry was like, I just, you know, once that the steroid thing was over, he just wanted to go home. But if Eddie was motivated to come up and just contribute, he and Pat Patterson working together with minions like Bruce and whoever to carry out their thoughts and Vince producing the whole thing, Eddie would have probably carried more weight just because of who he was and his name and reputation. But working the for other... Vince is the key thing. Well, that's the thing. He would have carried more weight with Vince than maybe even Bill Watts because of who he was and the fact that my God, you know, Vince was watching him when he was a kid because he was watching Eddie while he was watching Jerry and the respect that his father had had for him. Remember Vince did an interview, and I don't remember if it was Steve Austin or something else, and he was putting down all the other promoters, you know, the usual shit. They were all fiefdoms and all that, except Bill Watts. He knew how to fight, you know, like he ran up <laughs> against me. He appreciated the fact that Watts didn't lay down. Watts was going to defend his territory. And he did better than most people for a while, especially with the help of the New Orleans State Athletic Commission. Yeah. <laughs> that helped a lot, too. But uh, Or Louisiana, I guess I should say. Yeah, the, the state of New Orleans is calling. Yes, the state of Louisiana. But I think Vince appreciated the fight. But anyway, it uh, the Grams did something in Florida that very few people were able to do even in the territory days, and that's have a pretty consistent territory for... 25 years from from the time that Eddie first got there and dug in until his death and, you know, was not only respected as a place where people could go to learn, 
had top talent. The guys loved working there because of the weather and the girls and the whole nine yards. It was somewhere everybody wanted to go. And I wish that it had lasted a little longer because by the time that anybody wanted me, he was dead. So I never got to work for Eddie Graham. Who knows if you had maybe a certain Miss Bobert would be pointing her finger somewhere else. Well, you just tell Miss Bobert to put her finger back where it belongs. And if she, if she had been doing that all along, none of this would have been happening. Anyway, uh, where are we going from here, young man? I don't know. <clears throat> oh, I guess we got to start talking about the chaos over in AEW these days, don't we? Starting oh, with. Were we doing that? Are we doing that? No, we, we're going to do SmackDown. That's See, right. my notes are all. Hear that? It's all chaos over here. You say Where one. Is... You say one thing, and then then I change my story. It. We're both in the last two seconds. The fuck. <laughs> well, I, I I'm trying to get Stop my wrestling. notes together. Stop wrestling your papers. Here's the thing. We take notes on this shit, and we can't keep it straight. How do people expect? We're to, we're going to talk about SmackDown from June 16th here. The episode title. Will Jay Uso fall in line? A Quinn Martin production. Da, 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 da. I can't wait to see him cross over on Canon. What do you think about when they have just QM, not Quinn Martin? Well, it's kind of the same thing. That's a trademark. Trademark. What do you think? Anyway. What do you think of Canon? How would William Conrad do in a modern WWE? That's why I asked. I think we need Roman Reigns and William Ca Conrad as Canon. In kind of like a buddy detective show series. They could be running around solving crimes, and Roman could make fun of William Conrad for his fucking poor eating habits. <laughs> I don't remember that on the show, but uh, all right. Anyway, and that's the thing. One company has people so interested in their main angle that people will sit through two to three hours of almost nothing else just to see that. And the other company does so much shit in every show that you can't keep track of it even when you're taking notes so nothing registers to anybody past the people that are going to watch no matter what. And we have the opposite ends of the spectrum. And the show opened with the Bloodline recap. And the question is, will Jay stay or will he go? And the bloodline arrives with Roman and Solo and Paul, and they blow by um, girl in back. What's her name? Kayla Braxton. There you go. No comment. So we know they're there. What's going to happen? Jay's got to make his decision tonight. Stay tuned. And then for the next 30 fucking minutes, they give us a tag team gauntlet match for the number one contender for the tag team title to face Owens and Zane at Money in the Bank. With the Street Sweepers, the Brawling Brutes, Gallows and Anderson, the LWO, and Purely Deadly. And out of all of those teams, Purely Deadly won. And we were 30 minutes into the program. Again, last week, they all just, all the tag teams just come out and bicker and argue with each other. And now this week, we have to watch 30 minutes of them going back and forth, and blah, 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 blah. Any comments on that match I skipped over completely? 
I didn't watch it. I just watched the post-match uh, promo with them and Owens and Zayn, but it says well, something about the strength of WWE. I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I believe it was a record house, wherever they were. They sold out. <laughs> the ratings are doing great for the Roman Reigns segments. The crowds are going crazy for those. Yeah. You sit through all this crap. I mean, you get little things you like, like three minutes of LA Night or whatever it may be, but you sit through so much to get to the main stuff and the main stuff's been paying off on the other show they're like hemorrhaging people by the end people are just diving off the fucking titanic i'll take my <laughs> risk in the water <laughs> fuck the sharks i mean I don't damn understand. the torpedoes get me away from the wrestling and that's the thing is that as soon as they got finished with this tag team match playa Five minutes later, after the break, Purely Deadly is still in the ring celebrating, and Owens and Zayn come out, and the fans sing. And then Sammy tells him to get the fuck out of the ring and gets a big pop. And Purely Deadly responded by starting to say that their hair looks better than Sammy Zane. so I fast-forwarded from there, but basically Owens and Zayn chased him out with no contact, and now we were 40 minutes into the program. My biggest issue with them is the outfits. It's just, it's ridiculous. It's the outfit. Like Jeff Jarrett had a limit when he had that outfit. You know what I mean? Like not, not that he was wearing that, but when he had the striped uh, cloth, I don't know what the hell to call it. There's a limit. And their outfit, there's a limit. And I didn't really, uh, I, I know there are people who keep telling us that we're missing the boat, that they've been great in NXT, that we should give them a chance. But... Between the look and what they're scripting them to do and say, it's fucking, it's grisly death, that gimmick. But I guess if they're putting them with Cammy and Seven, it tells you a lot. It tells you that they're giving them, a, they're trying to make them. Did you something. say Cammy and Seven? Well, that's what you christened them last time, so I'm continuing the tradition. I'd like to christen them. With what? Like you, like you christen a brand new deck. Piss right off of it. You're going to piss off of them? I'll piss off of them. You're I've already stand on their off. shoulders, I guess, while they're standing like a pyramid. <laughs> yeah, we'll make we'll make a water fountain out of, it. <laughs> and I'll oh. be the little boy pissing into the pool. This will be a wonderful statue for the Cornet Museum one day, right in front. Yes, I'm thinking about opening that museum right into the um, fountain. So Paul and Roman and Solo were in the back in their locker room, and Paul asked Roman if he's spoken with Jay, and he said, no, he should be reaching out to me. I'm the tribal chief. And, and Roman's so great in these things because the facial expressions and the way that he, he's thinking and ruminating over things. And finally, he tells Paul to go out and talk to Jay now. And Paul was fucking tremendous on his whole thing, bouncing back from being a sycophantic toady, groveling at Roman's feet and you know, uh, making over his every gesture to being scared shitless when something's about to happen, to being smarmy and conniving when he was trying to sell Jay on the whole thing. Anyway, Paul takes off, great delivery by everybody involved, and then we saw EO Sky against Zelina. Comments? On which segment in particular? Anything on Paul, Roman, Solo, or EO and Zelina? EO and Zelina was fine. Ah, it was short. You didn't watch that. I did. 
It was short. It was quick. No, because I actually like both of them. They're like two of the women I like in the division, so I'll watch them wrestle each other for two minutes in a commercial break or whatever it is. You know, we've heard that Heyman's floated the idea out there in the sense that he said it out loud. That Roman Reigns should get an Emmy for the work he's doing. And we've heard rumors going back a few years now that Roman wanted to go to Hollywood, he wanted to be the next Rock, whatever it may be. He may get some movies, and he may make a lot of money from them. I don't know if he'll ever have a role this good. Because it also it's him, and it, it works. Because you can never have a role as good in a movie as if it's just you, and this is who he's become. That's why wrestling got over... You know, yes, you can get emotional over a movie, but nobody tries to hit the fucking screen and cut anybody on the fucking, in the movie, right? Wrestling, it's a little more of a blurring of the lines between real and a work, and that's why that people get caught up in it. And this is not glowingly fake like everything else in wrestling, even though we've pointed out the parts that are preposterous, but we'll take what we can get in this day and age. And we're going to have to start skipping a few of the lesser segments on all these programs because we're now going to tally at uh, 10 hours between tally the two ho. companies. Tally-ho. 10 hours a week but just between these two companies. It's ridiculous. Anyway, speaking of ridiculous, Grayson Waller with his talk show with Charlotte at the top of the 9 o'clock hour. And Charlotte is great. She's a star. But I can't suffer Waller. The cheesy set, the fake graphics, the scripted back-and-forth banter or whatever. Charlotte's out there for a while. Bianca skips out to the ring, smiling and twirling. She wants the title shot. Sounds like Jerry Springer. She's, am I tripping, girl? Maybe that writer that sued had something. And did you think they're turning her heel? I th I think I think we're being led in that direction, even if it doesn't happen. Because Bianca has a legitimate bitch, and that she lost her title and then didn't get the first rematch because Charlotte shows up, right? But at the same point, uh, Charlotte was careful to say, "Hey, we both deserve a, a rematch." So what are we doing this for? And Bianca still, well, I tried to do it the right way and not go off and hide for three months. And then when they got up, when they stopped doing the stupid, when Grayson Waller was nowhere involved anymore in this segment and Charlotte and Bianca stopped doing the cute little pleasantries at the beginning, came around in front of the desk and started telling each other off, then I actually started watching this, and it actually started getting good. Because Bianca quit smiling and gave Charlotte a bunch of shit, and Charlotte bowed back up and told her off a bit, too. And they got going, and, you, and it seemed like there was some actual tension instead of the happy talk back and forth. So the bottom line of the whole thing is Bianca's going to be at ringside and immediately challenge the winner between Charlotte and Oscar. And this was long, but once they got going in each other's face and Waller was a non-entity, it wasn't bad. You know, with Rhea getting more and more cheers, even though she's a heel, 
And Bianca, we've kind of seen, we've seen exactly what babyface Bianca is. The skipping, the jumping, the happy, always happy. I've seen her in NXT. I like the idea of a heel Bianca on the main roster. The promos will be better. More fired up. Yeah. We shall see. But in the meantime, back to As the Bloodline Turns, a Quinn Martin production. Act three. So now Paul is in the back. He's gone and found Jay. <laughs> you know what? But, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that really is what it is, isn't it? Yeah. Act three. <laughs> Paul and Jay in the back. And Paul says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I was right last week. I'm sorry that Jimmy kicked you in the face. And I'm sorry that he meant to do it. And Paul proceeds to poison and bury Jimmy to Jay brilliantly. You can see him doing that. You can see him firing up the guys when he wanted one of the boys at ECW to be mad at somebody or something. This is what they're doing to you. This is what it means to you. <laughs> and he did it brilliantly. And then Jay says, you know, I'm sorry too. I'm sorry that if I'm in, you're still out. And he walks off and leaves Paul. So you know Paul's going to go back and cut his fucking nuts off to Roman, right? God, this is getting gossipy and, and good. And then we come back to AJ Styles and Mia Yim against Karrion Cross and Scarlett for three minutes and Cross choked AJ out right in the middle of the ring. So is, is, the pre-tapes are the same length as the matches and more interesting. They gave Cross a win over AJ. What do you think of that? Um, I, well, I mean, it was because... <laughs> did you see the finish, which was flatter than a plate full of piss? Scarlet breaks up a pin that AJ's got on Cross, and as if, by raking his eyes or whatever, and as he stands up, then she starts trying to seduce him. And I, this is a Vince McMahon finish. I've, I've been watching variations on this theme for 25 years. She tries to seduce him with her womanly wiles. And AJ, instead of, instead of ignoring her because he's <laughs> in the ring with a big fucking jacked up motherfucker, or instead of chucking her out of the ring, or instead of just saying, fuck you, he takes the time to take his glove off and hold his hand up and show, I'm married, bitch. <laughs> and then when she gets out of the ring, he continues to stare at her and then and then basically Cross comes up from behind and just puts the fucking sleeper on him and chokes him out. In three minutes of the whole thing. So AJ's saying there's a chance. Apparently. <laughs> but yeah, I'm married, bitch. And that, right there, that, right there. I that think Randy's on him, the writing team. Well, in the territory days, that would have got him booed out of the building. What would have got the biggest fucking pop in the territory days in any territory in the country is if AJ had grabbed her by the back of the hair, give her a big old dip kiss, and then stood her up and punched her in the face. And she had taken a bump out of the ring. That would have made him the biggest baby face in the building. But times have changed. Yes. Fox would have also kicked them right off television <laughs> forever. One of the biggest pops I've ever seen in, in the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum. I wasn't there live, but I saw it on tape. I already know which one you're going to. 
Rick Rude, right? Lawler and the and Rick Rude's valet angel. Yes, Rude's girlfriend at the time was his valet angel, and she had been just giving Lawler all kinds of trouble in this angle and this program. She's there interfering all the time, and finally, it looks like Lawler's about to put Rick Rude away. And Angel comes in with a chair. And as Lawler turns around, she hits him over the fucking head with the chair. But since he's just dropped the strap, he didn't sell it. And he got that look on his face and he rubbed his head with his hand and he looked at her and the people start coming out of the fucking seats. And every time he takes a step toward her, she takes a step back. He takes a step toward her. They're coming up and he snatches her and shows the people his fist and milks it and punches her right in the face. Of course, obviously, he didn't hurt her. And she takes a bump like she was dead. And I swear to God, those people, if they'd all had babies, they would have thrown them in the air. They jumped up and down screaming, throwing their oh, popcorn. Quite literally, there is a fan. I remember this because there's a fan ringside. Jumping up and down. Jumping up and down. Then he turns to the side and starts running in place. Yes. He's so excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> the jumping up and down, I understand, but the running in place, that's a new one for me. But now bear in mind, that is the biggest pop that that girl ever got in the wrestling business with anything she ever did. And that would have been the biggest pop that almost any of these girls currently in the business today would have ever gotten for anything they ever did. And it was something that she stood no chance whatsoever of being injured on, whereas they will fucking let the girls power bomb each other off the roof through tables and nearly paralyze themselves. And nobody think there's anything wrong with that. Anyway, so now, Act 4. Paul's in the back with Roman. Roman's sitting there, not even looking at him. Just says, what about it? And Paul doesn't say a word. He shakes his head, no. <laughs> no, Jay. And fucking Roman's not happy. And then Solo starts to make a move and scares Paul out of the fucking room, which is great. He jumps at his own guy. And Solo asks Roman, you need me to handle this? And Roman says, we still have plenty of time. And then suddenly Rey Mysterio comes to the ring to cut a promo where he gives a big buildup to his new buddy, Pablo Escobar. And then there's an entrance and... Escobar does his promo in English and in Spanish. And I'm seeing Vince McMahon again. He's decided that they need a new Hispanic superstar because Ray has moved into the Hispanic superstar emeritus position. And they want a young, and th now they've decided it's going to be him, a new Latino superstar. So Ray gives him the validation with, you know, with the people and the big introduction. And then he comes out and says, boy, I can't wait to make all of you proud of me, basically is what he said. And then here comes, his name used to be L.A. Knight, but now it was Sacrificial Lamb. And I knew immediately, I said, oh my God, here we go. And L.A. Knight hits the ring and nails Ray, sucker punches him, and then Escobar chases him out to the floor. And we go to the break. We're going to have a match. They've said it. When we come back, the match is already underway. And Escobar is kicking L.A. Knight's ass all over the ring. 
And Brian, do you remember when L.A. Knight finally started getting some offense? Uh, after the match, I remember, yeah. Well, no, in the match. The entire amount of offense that L.A. Knight got in this match was that he stopped Escobar with a power slam and the fans started chanting his name and he hit Escobar with a modified people's elbow and did a cover and the people were counting with it. One, two, and Escobar kicked out. And that was his offense in the whole match. He tried to roll up. Escobar reversed it. One, two, three in two fucking minutes. And then LA Knight jumped him and got very brief heat. I mean, six punches or whatever. And Ray came out and ran him off. So I guess LA Knight will live to fight another day, but this again was not a, a exactly a shining example of how to expose somebody and the people are chanting the heel's name and counting out loud on his false finishes. But what's going on here? I can't explain it. I can't justify it. Nothing against Escobar because can't explain it. Don't understand it. Ain't never felt like this before. Right, well, well, that bad book has got a hold on me. Is this the way LA Knight's going to be? It's like bury me. Oh, yeah. my apologies to Barry Gordy and the Vandellas. <laughs> but what I was going to say. Martha could go fuck herself. Well, and Martha Reeves as well. Excuse me. I thought that was <laughs> implied with Vandellas. I didn't know I had to specify her. It's Martha and the Vandellas to you there. She's gotten a lot of attention. I was trying to equally spread the uh, praise. Yeah, you're trying to spread it out all right. Escobar's been all right. <laughs> you're, you're, so, you're a piece of work, you know that? Escobar's been all right. You know, he's been used as Ray's sidekick buddy for a little while now, and it's been so benign that it hasn't been offensive. And then, like, he's still in the mix, and his matches are all right. But L.A. Knight's really the story here. I mean, the smart fans, the people who think they're smart fans but are stupid, and even the casual fans or the rank-and-file fans, everyone's getting behind this guy. So let's see, less promo time, and let's beat him. Well, I'm maybe, glad we Maybe Vince is up. in control. Maybe Vince really is running the <laughs> ship again. How old is he? Ah. He's half as old as me. Fuck it. Bury him. You think he should grow a little thin mustache? You think that would help him? <laughs> you know, like Paul Heyman told Mr. Anderson to change his name to Mr. Kennedy because Vince will hear his middle name and be happy. What about a little mustache? I'm thinking maybe he should have a little mustache that sticks out like Salvador Dali and twirl it like a fucking silent movie villain. When he... I like it. All right, we got to the main event now. Now that all the wrestling's out of the way, we're back to Act 5, Epilogue. And, of course, they had the shot. Jay's walking in the back, and Sammy looks at him and just nods and walks off. He said all there is to say. I see Roman. We, I see we meet again here in the yeah, yeah. alleyway in the back. Sammy just sits on that equipment case waiting for people to walk by so he can nod at him. You know where to find me. No matter what building, I'll be right here. So Roman and Paul and Solo do their entrance, and they go to the break. And then they come back to the ring, and Rupp Arena in Lexington, Kentucky, acknowledges Roman Reigns. And boy, I'm just, again, I think back to when 
Rupp Arena used to run once a month, and I saw cards there. I saw at least 50, 60 shows there before I got in the business. And then I was on them for a, a number of them. And if we had ever put a show on that had the lack of action or anything else as this program and the feature event was uh, the top guy coming out and doing an interview, the people would have set fire to the fucking seats. But now they're overjoyed. <laughs> That's maybe the most successful thing Vince McMahon's done is the retraining of wrestling fans. Boy, they sure have been. And they're jumping through those hoops. But anyway, Rupp Arena acknowledged him, and then the Usos music played, and here came Jay. And then Roman asked him the question, are you in or out? And Jay responded with, well, if I am in, it's him, meaning Paul, or me. And Roman's like, well, when you're tribal chief, you can pick anybody, but he's my wise man. He's not your wise man or the bloodline's wise man. I'm the one that got us here to the top, but you're meant to keep us here at the top. We've been trying to groom you, manscape you. And you're meant to lead, just not yet. The problem is your brother. And of course, and also, I was surprised at this. The fans were whatting Roman. So it's not even now a point where like they're just doing it in segments where they don't give a shit about the people. They're doing it regardless. It takes one idiot to start it. That's all it yeah. takes. But then, well, they had they had several there, so anybody could have been guilty. Uh, but anyway, when he said the problem is your brother, that's when Jimmy comes out, but no music. So it had a little bit more yeah. gravitas to it. I like it. And now Jimmy is the the angel on Jay's shoulder. Roman's the devil. Now Jimmy's giving him the the opposite side of the coin. The problem is our cousin. He's using you. You know, and, and, and told him the whole story about what Roman's been doing, and it shouldn't be like that. But then Roman says, hey, I lifted you up, Jay. I put you in the main event at WrestleMania and blah, blah, blah. Jimmy drags you down. You can't be a tribal chief and a twin. And then Roman makes Paul reveal that Jay or reveal to Jay, rather, that Jimmy is the one that had a problem with Jay being the right-hand man. And Jay looked at Jimmy. He says, is that true? The big stare down. Yes, it was true. And then Jay should have won an Emmy there because he told, and I think some of this had to be a shoot, because <laughs> Jimmy's the older brother by 15 minutes or first one to pop out or whatever the case. And he vented on him. You were the, the prom king. You were the player of the year. I was always supposed to do what my older brother said. But then when you were off, when you were gone, I stepped up and I main evented. And now guess what? You're out. Oh my God. The fucking people. Oh, and then he said, and I'm out too. And he turns and super kicks Roman Reigns, who goes flatter than a fucking flitter, as Aunt Lola used to say. And now everyone loses their shit because no one expected that. Exactly. So they, it, it was like he was telling him off like he was about to fucking hit him in the head with a hammer, and then he turns around and boom. 
And because he's still his brother, right, his twin. And what a pop it got from the people. And then Solo's like, what the fuck? It takes him a second. He goes after him. They super kick Solo out. And Roman is getting up, and he's sold it to the kick like crazy. And he's getting up with the look on his face, and he's holding his jaw. And he, what the fuck? And they double super kick him. Flatter than a fucking plate full of piss again. A lot of people are flat these days, but boom, down he goes. He put him over like a million dollars. I've never seen anyone go down that quickly from the super kick. From anyone, you know, just the way he, he got hit and just boom, right down. And then he had his mouth open on the ground, selling it. It was great. And that's what it needed to be, because now then the people are going crazy and the Usos are together. The bloodline has, you know, fucking exploded. But now Roman and Solo versus the Usos is right there for them. And, and that can go any number of ways. And, and the big thing is Paul's safe in the bloodline. Paul Heyman in a shark tank above the ring. <laughs> Held up with special tank, wires. That... A shark cage. Not a dope, but well, maybe not a shark Paul tank. in a shark tank. Not a shark tank. Maybe put him in the shark tank <laughs> with the sharks. See, see if they'll eat him if, if they're on low cholesterol diets. In a shark cage is what I meant to say. Yeah. Put Paul Heyman in a shark tank. <laughs> There are many wrestlers who have said that over the years. No, no, no. Because the Sharks wouldn't bother Paul. Professional courtesy. <laughs> All right. Well, that was SmackDown. And, you know, once again, you, you wonder where they're going to go. And you're left still wondering where they're going to go. But it paid off. Like, it was worth watching it for that moment. Or fast-forwarding through most of it for that moment. Yes, it was worth fast-forwarding the show for that moment. Oh, boy. All righty. Well, now should we cross to the other side of the street? Do you think with the amount of people that fast forward or DVR or whatever it may be, they should just have like the wrestlers like Roman read the spots like, right before the <laughs> promo? I got something to say to you, Jey Uso, but first I want to talk about my new mattress from Helix Sleep. Because <laughs> then people will check out the sponsors, you know? Yes. Just Work on that one. Get back to me. Just a thought. Yeah, it but it died of loneliness. Oh. So anyway, um, the AEW television program for this past week, and I know we took we're out of chronology. We're trying to keep all of the WWE affiliated business straight, and then all the AEW affiliated business straight. And we still don't know what's going to happen with Collision because that's not going to happen for another few hours yet, as we're discussing this. But the title of the program. On AEW this past Wednesday night, if the SmackDown was, what will Jey Uso fall in line, the title of this program should have been From the Sublime to the Ridiculous. Because they started... It's a lot of words. ...with a lot of positives, and they ended with a lot of negatives. I didn't know they were going to start with MJF and Cole. I'm glad they did now, because any other part of this program would have led to viewer attrition and in a world title eliminator match which we did not hear about until it was coming to the ring at least i didn't but that we just had the talk about non-title matches and how to use yeah. them in wrestling 
And then they have a non-title match. And this, the premise is simple. If Cole wins, then he gets a title match with MJF. And we've mentioned that that's something that's been done in wrestling going back decades and decades and decades. They got the concept. They just failed to pull it off in execution. Not the match, but the, the point of the whole goddamn thing. Because apparently MJF and to some extent Adam Cole would have been in charge of the match, but Tony was still in charge of the finish. <laughs> I will elaborate as we go further. For this one, Brian, let's declare a moratorium on talking about Adam Cole's physique because it's not like we haven't mentioned it and I think we've said everything we can say. And it's not changed. It's not to say it's not a legitimate issue, but for the critique of this match, let's forego the conversation about just, it. Yes, just because we'll get off on so many fucking tangents. He can work and he can talk. And when he's in the ring with somebody that doesn't encourage him to do all the 20 million things that he knows how to do over and over, Adam is fine. And we've seen as with the Garganos in NXT or with his... Buckaroo friends, he tends to go too far, but we've never said he he wasn't talented. And I don't know. There has to be more to the story physically, is all I'm going to say. So I'm not going to dwell on it right now. But he did get some tan. Did you notice that? Well, I, I don't know if I noticed that because MJF had more of some tan or whatever you want to call it on him than I've ever seen anyone. Well, no, that's the thing is Adam came out. He wasn't fishy white. He had something sprayed or he's been in the sun at some point. So then MJF followed him right out looking like the love child of George Hamilton and Ricardo Montalban <laughs> and was so dark that lightning bugs were following him around in the daytime. But they're that, listening. Do you think that's a good move for a heel though? Like not just having a tan, but having like, like a Jersey Shore tan, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I think he should have the fucking, the eye goggle marks better, though. Like, completely white circles around his oh, eyes, like on. a reverse raccoon. That would be heat. So they rang the bell for this match at three minutes into the show. They didn't waste any time. They knew they were going to have a big audience handed to them by the Big Bang. And they wanted to capitalize on it. That was smart. And the crowd was up. And they were ready to see this. And that's what this match was <laughs> uncharacteristic of AEW television or anything. It was so good in so many different ways that we're actually going to critique it like a legitimate match instead of make fun of it because it deserves that. Most AEW programming does not. However, there were still some things that I felt were unnecessary or, you know, potentially derailed what they could have done if they'd not done those things. MJF looks great. Again, they started out with wrestling, and MJF got heat with his attitude and his facial expressions and the way he swaggers and walks around. And he is doing something that I haven't seen a lot of heels do since the days when Lawler was a heel in his younger days and could really go, in that... The way he sells, the way he reacts, as well as the way that he taunts somebody when he's in control, the way that he looks at the fans in such a flippant, disrespectful manner, and the whole nine yards, 
whether he's on offense or defense, he keeps your attention. It's primarily his match and the other guys in there with him. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense, yes. And a lot of guys can't do that. So even if he's getting a shit kicked out of him, it still looks like he's the guy you're supposed to be watching and the other guys filling the rest of it in. Uh, when he took a walk in the crowd, MJF, he goes out there to slow it down, piss the people off. He knocked the fan's hat off. I wish he had not done that. Not because it's considered assault in some states, but because the guy wasn't upset about it. He laughed. He was happy. He turned to his friends. Look what just happened to me. And he knew he was on television and MJF knocked my hat off. Nobody's going to fight you or sue you anymore in, the, in these smart fan crowds. So I'm not saying do shit to try to get sued. But if you... When Terry Funk used to get up at a fan's face and back him up, did you ever see anybody laugh at Funk? They backed up. He had that. They may laugh over. once he fell or once he did something like, you know, fall of the barricade or well, tie yeah, himself when up. He was, when he was trying, but when he would go to a fan, when he was trying to get a pop out of the people, they would, but when he would go to a specific fan and give them that face and by, they would back up because he had an aura and people weren't as smart back then, but, uh, whether to beat a lawsuits or anything else, but you just couldn't tell for sure. These fans now, with the exception of a Brock Lesnar, maybe, they know that to get, they're not going to get punched unless they punch first. So if you go up and confront a guy, just Joe fucking Schmo, Bug Tussle McGee, and they laugh at you, then no, you that that's not a good thing. I like that he confronts people, points their his finger at them tells them off, even if they're laughing at him at that point, it's still, he's walking by, he's not focusing on one person. But when you focus on one person, and especially if you touch them, and they don't get mad, you've not got your desired effect. But again, too, he, and a lot of this may just be about the difference in the crowds, he didn't go up to some guy that looks like he's working on truck or something. He went up to <laughs> he went up to just some wrestling fan and he hit him. He hit his hat off, and it didn't look like the fan who was going to start any problems. It didn't look like the fan who was going to hit. So he laughed. But it if off. you're going to, if you're going to start some, it should be because if you do that and the guy swings back, then you can fucking take him over the rail and beat the shit out of him. Of course, everybody will get sued, but at least you might get some heat out of it. Hey, Tony's got money. That's true, and everybody knows it. Any, anyhow, just that's my thing is I hate when when fans laugh at the heel when the heel is not when the heel is obviously trying to piss them off and they ain't going for it, then you've given them the control of the thing. But MJF saved the day because he got right back in the ring and said, referee, he pulled my hair. I haven't heard that in so long. I haven't seen that in so long. It was so good to see wrestling back on television again. And then he locked up with Adam Cole and pulled Adam Cole's hair to pull him back into the turnbuckles and gouged his eyes. And of course, because they don't have a play-by-play -play announcer, they have a fucking basement mark with a sock on his head. Sockface missed all this. He's running through the meaningless plugs of matches we ain't gonna remember in five minutes. 
and he couldn't tell the story because he didn't know what it was because they haven't ever watched real wrestling in their basement in San Luis Obispo or wherever. But anyway, MJF's a fucking heel, and it's working. And he's working on Adam Cole's left arm. And he's taking the... Then when he gives Adam a hope spot, again, he's taking those picturesque heel bumps like the Lawler backwards over the top and hits his face on the fucking apron with a scream to boot. So it's not just a bump. It's an active bump with two or three stages and a payoff. And again, it's it was so refreshing seeing somebody working like a heel. He's working Adam Cole's left hand and his arm, but he's stomping on it. He's being a prick about it. And I wrote, at seven minutes in, this was the best AEW television match I've seen this year. Because it's the only one that's, I can think of offhand, that's approximated a goddamn wrestling match between a heel and a babyface. But the play-by-play announcer, as I mentioned, couldn't tell the story because MJF was not doing any Japanese moves. Although he did hit, what do you, what would you call that, a package pump handle? I don't know what else you'd call it. That movie does. I know what that you're talking about, but I don't, yeah, I don't know what else you would call that. Um, it looks wicked. Uh, there's a size and weight limit, I would think, on it. But wicked. nevertheless. All right. Here is... I've got to do some constructive criticism now on Adam. And again, I don't know whether this was because he was off for so long or whether he's not got the cardio back, he couldn't train because of the concussions or whatever. But Adam Cole has always been a guy that could sell like an underneath baby face. He was immobile selling. He wasn't selling like a Ricky Morton selling where he's, he's rolling over and he's clutching something in pain and then he's reaching up for the ropes and he's looking up so you can see his facial expression and the Sweat and the tears are coming out his face or he's trying to pull himself to his feet or he's stumbling on his knees. He was rolling into places and just laying there. Did you notice that? I did. I was wondering if you were going to say anything. And it got more, I won't say worse or more extreme, but it got more noticeable, potentially more prevalent as the match went on. And at one point, because MJF, when he's selling, as a heel, he takes the big exaggerated bump or he takes the big exaggerated fall and he's laying there immobile with his arms splayed out. That's a heel selling. And that's the baby face hit him with something and he's boom and he's he's now he's vulnerable. If the baby face can claw and scratch and fight his way back to his feet where he can come on the offense again. Adam wasn't clawing and scratching and fight his way, fighting his way to his feet. He was laying there with him. You don't need a baby face to be that immobile selling. He needs to be down in pain, but moving, rolling, searching, reaching, grasping, whatever. Um, and then at the point where Cole hit a super kick and MGF bled from the mouth. And that wasn't bad because it wasn't overdone. It wasn't like, he just spit up two kidneys. But I think, and maybe to, to cover up this botch, the referee was Bryce Rimsburg. And I used to like Bryce, but as I mentioned, I've seen him referee in the fucking Invisible Man, so fuck him. He was reaching in his pocket before MJF came up 
to see the blood, so you could see the blood. Whether he had handed MJF his gimmick or whether he was going for those stupid gloves that the referees are wearing now, he tipped it off. Why did he need to be in his fucking pocket? And then to possibly cover it up, he does nothing but reach in his pocket numerous times over the rest of the match. Do you think, like, get your hand out of your fucking pocket. That's what you wanted to say. You get over an AEW having your hands in your pockets. Well, I've heard that because pocket pool is their favorite recreation. But nevertheless, um, they got a, Adam got a bit of a comeback at that point. They went back and forth. Adam got a few two counts. MJF, again, keeping some attention good, even went on defense. They went to the apron of the ring, did a back and forth, and finally MJF got Adam Cole in a tombstone pile driver on the apron, but fell off and sold his knee at the same time, and that was their break spot with both of them down. You know how I feel about the apron, but I will say that in this one, they limited the contrived nature of the back and forth staggering. They did a couple of things and got to the point and when they went down, it wasn't one guy got up and immediately rolled the other guy in kick out. They went to the break, and they were in picture in picture, and it was quite a while before MJF got up, and then he grabbed Cole and rolled him back in. So it was the, the finally by the time that he made a cover, and it was a two count, they were had both taken so long you could buy it. That was a big spot, but I'm willing to live with that one. And they went 13 minutes after the bell before they went to the break. Now I'm invested in this thing. I've got time in it. I'm hooked. I want to see what's going to happen. I'll sit through the fucking break. Not after two minutes, but after 13, I'll hang with it. And they, that's a clear line of demarcation. Now you, you want to see what, if I never walk out of movies. I hear people do. If I've gone to a fucking movie, I'm going to sit there till the bitter end just because I'm there. But can you imagine if you went to a fucking movie and went to the bathroom after four minutes of the movie, came back four minutes later, would you know what the fuck was going on? Who's the director? Well, it depends. M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, no, I have no idea what's going on. Does or he make movies still? Whatever happened to that guy? I think he does, but he only shows them to himself. Anyway, but then, uh, by the way, in that break, when MJF rolled Adam Cole back in, he covered him and got a two count because he was trying to win. And they didn't waste anything big stuff in the break. They MJF just healed on Adam's arm. And when they came back, MJF was taunting him and he spit on him. And then Cole came up with a forearm, boom, and rocked MJF, who sold it big, staggered back, and they did a chop and forearm battle. Here's one small tweak. When Adam Cole came up with that forearm, that's where MJF should have just fucking registered with his head and then done the brush-off signal under his chin, like, and chopped at him and let Adam sell it big. And then let Adam throw a forearm that maybe MJF sells just a little bit more, but then snaps back like, no, that wasn't, and trying to play it off, but it kind of clocked him and another vicious chop. 
And then when Cole throws the third one, that's when fucking he goes back and staggers back and then stands up straight and shakes his head like, nah, that didn't hurt me either. And then draws back for a chop and drops down to his fucking knee like, oh shit, I'm dizzy. And let then Cole starts a comeback. He should sell him gradually bigger because what happened in that situation? Adam Cole starts fighting back from underneath and automatically his first forearm rocks MJF back, makes him rubber-legged. But when MJF is chopping the guy that he's been kicking the shit out of, Adam Cole was just bending over, selling his chest, but not rocking, registering, not rubber-legged. It was the another shortcut. He used to be more animated with his selling. So I thought that was a little backwards. It should have been, MJF should have built it a little more. And finally, MJF hits the eye poke. And then you'll recognize this, Brian, and I can't believe he's doing this because I see so many of the indie guys doing it. He turns his back completely on Adam Cole, who's standing in front of him. He turns his back on him and then runs to hit the ropes to get momentum. And just a few minutes later, or seconds later, Adam Cole did the same thing. Turned his back on MJF, who's standing right there, and there's only two feet in between them. It does not make any sense for a guy, if you're fighting with a guy, does it, Brian, for you to turn your back 180 degrees on him while he's still within arm's length reach of you and then run to hit the ropes to get momentum to come back in the same place. Does that make sense? Makes no sense. We see too much of that in wrestling. And that's the thing. I made a remark of, what was the kid's name? Tyson Dukes is the first time I ever saw anybody do that at a Ring of Honor tryout match, I think in 2006 or whatever. And I said the same thing to him. I said, does that make any sense? Well, I guess not. They all do it. It's like they're turning and suddenly they're running like they're going to, like the gymnastics floor exercise they're running it to get speed to do the round offs no if you fucking chop a guy hit a guy whatever and then you want to run and hit the ropes then you take two steps backpedaling spin to your fucking left and run and hit the ropes that are now behind you but you've gotten away from your opponent and you're still going to get the same amount of momentum and it's not going to look so fucking cheesy or go to the right but nevertheless, they did a big kick battle, and then MJF hit him with a great clothesline, and it was a great exchange, but the people cheered the heel winning the exchange by leveling Adam Cole with a clothesline. I'm like, oh, God. Um, did you see MJF's elbow pad? I did. I saw what it said on it, yes. Vince, Vince was right. <laughs> <laughs> So again, they're, they're wrestling and there's a clear difference between the two competitors. One guy, even though some of the people are still cheering for the heel, one guy you try to pull for, the other guy's a prick. They do some nice wrestling. Cole gets a cross face. MJF rolls into an arm bar. Cole gets an ankle lock. MJF goes into an STF. Cole gets a rope break and gets a big pop a bigger pop than most people on this program get when they fly through furniture. Again, this is where they came to another, they have, considering the finish, which I'm not going to stooge off yet, for those of you who haven't seen it, but they had to do a big spot, or they felt they had to. So this is where they do their table spot. 
And again, Cole was selling kind of immobile. I'm wondering if he was blown up, what's going on. But MJF goes and clears off the table at ringside and just rolls Adam onto it and doesn't hit him or kick him. or It's, it's the honor system. Just don't move. And then MJF goes to the top rope and comes off the top with two Adam Cole on the table on the floor with an elbow drop. And the table legs collapsed. The, the table didn't break in half. The legs collapsed. So not only was that more jarring to everybody involved because it's not as much of a cushion on the fall, but also you've got a guy that's been off for almost a year with concussions and had multiple concussion issues and you've just driven him through a table where he didn't fold in the middle. He went back of his head first down to the floor because the leg collapsed. And I know they feel like they need a big spot for this audience, but this match was so good and so much better than the normal fare on this program that I th this was not only what I thought was a needless risk, but also it took away from the match because then. MJF rolls in and sells. Cole's got to sell, but he has to beat the count at nine and a half. But then when he rolled in, he just laid there and told the referee something. And then the referee and MJF went and had a, what I would consider a long talk for the situation. And then they were back fighting on the apron. So maybe it might have fucked Adam Cole up. I don't know. But it slowed the match down. And it, it took some of their momentum away. And then when they fought on the apron, Adam gave uh, Max a short German suplex where MJF's the way he sold it was the best part. That wasn't dangerous. But I felt like the fans were zoning a bit at this point. The table spot slowed it down. Then whatever the conversations were and everybody's laying around, then they're getting it back, getting back in action. But they lost the they lost some of the oomph they had they got them back but uh you know i mean did you notice that that there was at that point after that table spot and yeah. with some of the, that people were kind of like they weren't jumping up and down anymore like they were on rope breaks and just anticipation earlier in the match it slowed it down i agree anyway so back in the ring, MJF was bullying <laughs> Bryce Rimsburg, who, by the way, I mentioned, has refereed matches with the Invisible Man. He should have been spending his time perfecting his craft because he botched up the, the only major botched spot in this match was the referee's fault. As MJF is bullying him, Cole rolls up MJF from behind the O'Connor roll-up, and they were going to do a deal where basically MJF kicked Cole off and he went head-to-head -head with the referee, right? Well, fucking Rimsburg goes down to count to the side of him. And if you go back and watch this, as soon as MJF sees the referee on the side of him counting, he's not only telling the guy, but he's waving his hands, you're supposed to be over there. And Rimsburg. He, he goes down for a regular referee count and counts one. 
and then realizes that he has massively fucked up his position and hops up to his right to crouch and count two and then obviously jumps up further to the right to be in front of Adam Cole when he gets kicked off so he and Adam Cole can go head to head. Did you notice that fiasco? Oh, I noticed that, yes. So, I mean, I've been critiquing things in terms of pace or momentum or did it slow something down or I don't know if I'd have done the table spot because it took away more than it had or whatever. This is, these are tweaks. These are things that I would sit down and talk to guys we were watching tapes to give them fodder to potentially fine-tune their timing on something or whatever. That's That's criticism. That's going over game films. There was no fucked up botch in this match except for the fucking referee. And they he went down. And then MJF got the title belt and came in as Cole standing up. MJF throws the belt to Adam Cole and then falls down to do the old Eddie Guerrero thing. The referee's going to turn C Cole with the belt and disqualify him. But again, the referee gets up, but he's got his face covered because he got hit in the head. So he's covering his eyes like he's playing blind man's bluff. Somebody walk through these things with a more competent referee next time. But nevertheless, the referee gets up and falls back down, which is a brilliant idea for the spot. Execution was in. And he doesn't see it. So at that point, Adam Cole has the belt and he hits MJF with it and then hits his knee and cover, and the referee counts a long two, and MJF kicks out. And then they, you know, they do the deal where Adam said, well, I'll give him another knee, but MJF collapses because he's groggy. So Cole goes for a German suplex, but MJF grabs Rimsburg and mule kicks Cole in the balls. And then he pulls out the diamond ring. And we actually, again, praise the Lord... We have a heel that uses foreign objects these days that aren't baseball bats or barbed wire. That's something that you could actually fucking use to just punch somebody. And he gets the ring and he goes to punch Cole, but the referee stops him. And at this point, Adam Cole hits a super kick, which looked great. And then he hits the Panama Sunrise. But now here was the other thing that I would have loved if if Adam had kicked it in here to high gear. He hit the super kick. He goes up for the Panama Sunrise. MJF's in position and has to stagger there bent over before Adam does it. But then he hits it, and then he hits his knee, but now there should be a sense of urgency because these people are up. And instead of grabbing MJF and trying to quickly turn him, He's just kind of pulling him over to turn him over to cover him. And I was screaming when I was watching it faster, faster, you know, to make the turn to show some urgency on this cover after this series of moves. One, two, and the bell rings. Time limit draw. Not only was that they lost the chance to show urgency, but they shit the bed because nobody knew why it should be urgent. They did no time calls throughout the whole match. The announcers never referenced it. 
You heard nothing in the arena. They don't do time calls in wrestling anymore, do they? Now that I think about it. They don't, but I don't even think that's necessary. I didn't realize the challenger, eliminator, whatever these matches are, were 30-minute time limits. Well, they if you go back, they said it. Like in the introductions, everything in WWE doesn't use time limits anymore at all. AEW uses time limits, but they never go to a draw. I have, I don't remember seeing one, unless it's the 60-minute Iron Man, you know, by the nature of it. But in this one, they announced one fall 30-minute, just glossed over it, and never mentioned it again. And that's where they shit the bed. That's what Tony watching modern wrestling and not knowing how to do this shit. I had this same talk in Ring of Honor when I first went there. I'm going to say it was with Gabe Sapolsky because I was so confused when I saw what I saw. The first time that I saw a draw in Ring of Honor back, what, 2006, 7 or whatever, they're having the match, the people are loving it, and all of a sudden, the bell rings, and the people boo like they did here. The people booed it. They were pissed off. And I said, what happened? And I, th I think it was Gabe. I don't It might have been Adam Pierce, but I think it was long enough that it was Gabe. He said, well, the time limit expired. And I said, well, there were, there were no time calls. You know what he said? We don't call time. Because our fans are smart. If we call the time, they'll know it's going to be a draw. The fuck? You don't just call the time when it's going to be a draw. You call the time in everything. Every match should have time calls at a, on a five-minute basis. And then when you do a draw, people don't get mad. They don't get pissed because you've, you've, uh, you've, taken so you've stolen something from them. They didn't understand it. When you tell them afterwards, they're like, oh, bullshit. That wasn't part of the deal. But again, you're talking to people, I'm assuming with Gabe Sapolsky, he's a little bit older than me, who grew up. Whenever you saw that, that is what it meant, because you didn't see it with every match. Well, then he wasn't watching enough OVW. He didn't want that. Maybe so. And just so the fans know, and I know WWE doesn't call times at all because not only do they not have time limits, but they don't do draws unless it's an Iron Man match or something where the time is stipulated ahead of time. And also it would look too much like sport for their fucking fantasy land. But if AEW wants to be wrestling, every match needs a time limit. And I learned this when I was a 15-year-old ring announcer, for fuck's sake. Every match, you call five-minute increments. If it's a one-fall, 20-minute time limit match, on the PA system, house shows, whatever the fuck, five minutes expired, 15 minutes remaining in the time limit. Ten minutes expired, 10 minutes remaining. Fifteen minutes expired, five minutes remaining. And then two minutes, one minute, 30 seconds, and countdown from ten. Because if the match is any good at all, then, well, first of all, every match gets those calls, whether they're going to end in a pinfall or a time limit draw, disqualification, or what. You establish it as part of the match. They have a shot clock in basketball. They've got fucking times of quarters in football, and they've got some quantification of time in everything except for baseball, and even then they 
obviously there's the change of the offense and defense, blah, blah, blah. With wrestling, it's very simple. The match has a set time limit, and we will apprise the wrestlers and the fans as it is going on. And then what you can do with a good match that's going to a draw is you can build the suspense and the urgency. After it gets past 15, people maybe think, oh, shit, this might be going to be a draw. When you get to two minutes remaining, now the guy's got to kick it in. That's either the time where the heel really tries an all or nothing and misses and gives the babyface a chance to start making a comeback. And now the babyface has under two minutes to put this guy away. And then with the one-minute call, maybe at that point they're going to start to false finishes. And then by the time you get the 30 seconds, maybe they're going into a series of small package, jackknife, roll-up, jockeying for position. When you get to 10, 9, 8, 7, now it's like a fucking hand grenade's going to go off. And right then, there's the backslide. Three, backslide, two, one, ding, 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 right before the three count. Oh, Newman! He almost had him. You're building the urgency and the jeopardy and the what the the wonder of what's going to happen. Or you can just have a good match where the bell rings out of nowhere and kills all the work that the guys did to get the people in it because all they're going to remember is the fucking shitty taste in their mouth of the rotten finish that they feel ripped off by. Can you imagine how those people would have been reacting if Adam Cole hit that super kick, if they'd have called one minute remaining, Cole hits a super kick and the Panama sunrise and the knee, and he's got to turn him. Now we're under 10 seconds. He's turning him. He's turning him. Cover one, two, ding, ding. Now we knew it was coming. We were cheering for Adam to fucking get the cover before the time runs out. He's going to do it. He's gone. Oh, shit. He almost did it. Ah, instead of what the fuck was that? Time limit draw. Fuck you. Wrong kind of heat. People were booing and pissed because it came out of nowhere. If they did the time calls like you wanted, do you have any problem with the finish then? The way no. it was done? No, except Adam still should have been more urgent at the end. It would have even been better with the, the seconds being counted down. But I know a lot of people are going to say, well, then... They're, they're not going to do that because they're going to know every time they go past 15 minutes. No, that's because if you're smart, you do 19-minute and 30-second fucking wins. Or in OVW, I used to do 14.30, especially on practice shows. Give the guys plenty of time in the ring and use that also as an educational moment. At, at one point, I remember one of the flea market shows we did I can't remember who was in the ring, but I gave them the, it was a homework assignment. I said, you're going to go, it's a 15-minute time limit. You're going to go 1458. See how close you can get the one, two, three with two seconds left. And at the same time as they're getting experience, it educates fans that the match can end at any time. Therefore, even when you get down to the 10-second call, there's still a chance. It's not that fucking hard. And then Adam Cole asked for five more minutes meekly. 
he got the microphone and just said five more minutes. And MJF said, fuck off. He didn't say anything. He just rolled out and took the belt. It was a great match. It was a tour de force performance for him. Great TV match. Tour de force performance for MJF. Adam hung with it, but he could have had more fire to him. There's something going on. And they didn't need the big table spot in the middle to risk life and limb just because they weren't doing a big slam bang finish because it slowed them down. And they needed a finish, but that's where their booker let them down. But the actual in-ring and just MJF showing that you can still work a professional wrestling match and act like a heel and still get it over even in front of that crowd and not use any fucking furniture or all the stupid fucking dives. It was, it was a brilliant piece of television for 35 minutes from the start of the program till when they were out of the ring. And it wasn't like 30 minutes of goddamn WWE. What the fuck's going on here? It was 30 minutes. You wanted to see what was going to happen. And with WWE, it'd be 30 minutes of commercials, too. That's the other problem. Well, we, yeah, we you'd be thir 30 minutes deep in the show, and you'd have seen 10 minutes of the match. No, they gave this match time to breathe, uh, not just in terms of it going 30 minutes, but again, not having a commercial right away. Really good match. I mean, I still stay with everything I've been saying about Adam Cole. I still feel the same way. Doesn't mean he can't have good matches. But when you see him standing next to MJF, one guy looks like he goes to the gym and the other guy doesn't. And they're about the same height. Well, no, it, one guy looks like he goes to the gym and the other guy looks like he's been ill for an extended period of time. And I, if I, something's going on. Yeah, I don't I know. Don't, I don't know. And I don't know exactly what. I actually just think beyond all this, because again, good match. And I agree with you. This was, it's the MJF show. You know, we don't get to see him wrestle that often. So when you do, you really pay attention. He's great at everything he does. The only thing is, I don't know how many more times I can watch him do the tombstone spot or whatever on the apron and sell his knee. Because I've seen that <laughs> several times now. But I think the problem is Cole is also being miscast. I think you can't avoid what's unavoidable in a cosmetic industry. So I think you make it a weapon. I think he should be a fucking chicken shit heel. He should be hitting his super yeah. kick. He should be doing these things. Don't deny or hide the fact that he looks like he isn't athletic at all use that he cheats he has a big bodyguard or he has a big brit baker whatever he cheats <laughs> he's a heel but i think the other problem is people it's a weird baby face role for adam cole because people want to root for him if you watch that reality show you may find that you like him as a person well, and also the sympathy from coming back from the injury. That's why he can't be a heel right now. The people were happy that he overcame that and came back. But he first got over, you know, like most good baby face, not most, but like a lot of good baby faces, he was a good heel first. He got over as a baby face because people had seen him as a great heel for a while. So they were ready to cheer him. But in AEW now, he's just a baby face. I think he used the term milk toast a few times recently. <laughs> That's my biggest issue beyond the physique. I think Adam Cole is being miscast as a babyface, even though they presented him as that on the reality show. <sighs> Again, anyway. use his sizes. Like that's the thing. If you can't hide it, you can't. Yeah. You can't wear a bodysuit. You know, you can't hide it. Use it. 
Have God, have baby faces come out there. This runt cheated. There's no way in the world someone who looks like that can beat me. And then he comes out there and he does a great promo explaining how he did and he will again. As opposed to he's having equal matches or equal fights or he's on equal ground with the world champion or whoever it may be. I ain't arguing with you, but I don't think we're going to see it. But really good. You know what? Beyond Adam Cole here, like I said before, nice to see an MJF match on, I'm about to say free TV, on cable TV, on TV. Oh, it's free. It's free. We pay for the other channels. We get TNT and TBS for free. Uh, They did a quick punk package, working out, coming back, has scores to settle, has a lot of things to get off his chest on collision. We'll talk about that later in the program. They had a segment with Rene Moxlegood in the ring with Sammy Guevara. And here, the wrestling's version of Barbara Walters, the big question that she asked Darby was, where are you at? Where are you at on all this? And, uh, or not Darby, but Sammy. Did I say Darby? Where are you at? Where are you at? Where am I at? She asked Sammy, where are you at? And they're having a girl. Yeah, I'm really thrilled about that. He wants to have his wife by his side, his baby girl in one arm, and the AEW world title in the other, and the people booed that. Yeah, they were with him until he said that. That was a step too far. (laughs) The Bonnie Steamboat principle. They don't want to see the wife. They don't want to see the fucking snot-nosed crumb snatcher. They just want to see the fucking wrestler. I don't think it was that at all. I think they were fine and happy that this wrestler was going to have a child and live with his wife. Oh, they didn't want him to have the AW world title. I think they thought it was preposterous <laughs> that he'd be the AW world champion based on the reaction. Well, anyway, that's when Darby, that's who I was thinking about. Darby came out at that point and Renee just handed Sammy her microphone and just walked out. You see that all the time on the news, the newscaster interviewing people, somebody walks up, they'll just turn it over. So Darby said that the people are starting to love Sammy again after they just booed the thought of him either having a girl under his arm or a baby on his head or a title in his crotch or whatever the fuck. But Darby wants to know, is he going to stand on his own two feet or be in the shadow of those dirty old Jericho appreciators? And at that point, here comes Jericho music, and it's getting busy. But at least Jericho's alone, and he gets in the ring. Go ahead. Did you see what Jericho had on his feet? I don't know that I paid any attention to his feet. Oh, purple high heels. You're kidding me. You keep talking. I'm going to find an image and I'll get it to you before the end of your review here. All right. Well, he got in the ring and said, hey, Derek. No, what do you eat? You're lucky was I was on mute there. I would yeah. have interrupted everything. The byplay with uh, him and Sammy... Jericho tells Sammy, you never called me or asked me for my help to win the world title. And Sammy reminds Jericho, well, he, you lost Adam Cole twice. Well, I'm going to ask you for anything. And Jericho says, well, you better apologize. And Sammy won't. And Jericho says, this is, did you understand this any better than I did? Jericho and Sammy are having an argument, so Jericho says, well, we need to reunite the sex gods and have a tag match next week to remind you who the boss really is. How would that work? How would that do that? How would 
Chris Jericho and Sammy Guevara teaming up against two other people reminds Sammy Guevara who the boss is between the two of them. Well, these are the kind of ideas that come to you in a hotel late at night, listening to loud music, drinking, and shirtless, flexing. Right before you appear on body cameras. Right before you get dragged out of that same hotel. So anyway, Darby interrupted both of them and said, well, you may be a wizard, but when you get in the ring, the magic is gone. <laughs> and then Jericho threatened Darby, and Darby said he's not alone, and here came Sting with his bat, because Jericho had a bat, and Darby's got bats in his belfry. And as Sting got in the ring, they mentioned that it was the first time that Sting and Jericho have ever been face-to-face -face in the ring. And now that come to think of it, I guess it would be, wouldn't it? And I wish it had been more historic because basically what they did was Jericho poked Sting with his bat and Sting slapped that bat out of the way and poked Jericho with his bat and Jericho backed up on that and they clinked bats a time or two and Jericho left and everybody was left staring at each other. And that was that. First time ever, Sting and Jericho. What'd you think, Brian? Everything Jericho's in, it just descends into, why did they do this? Why is this the decision they made? Why did Jericho think this was a good idea? I sent you a video, Jim. Uh, it should be set up to a certain time so you could see... Oh, God damn it. ...what this guy has on his feet to elevate him a little bit. <laughs> yes, you sent, it, you sent it to me by the email, eh? Via the email, yes. Via the email, I'm waiting for it to come. That's right. what she said. That's what, uh, well, there you go. Well, what did you think about this uh, fiasco while I wait for this email? I don't know what to think. You know, again, Sammy's like a great baby face, and then every promo, he turns heel in the same promo. <laughs> in this one, it was about the idea he would be elevated to be the world champion. Darby, it's an interesting role for Darby. He's like a counselor or a coach, a life coach. I don't know why he's... Boy, when, you're, when you're getting advice from Darby Allen about what to do with your life. You may have made a serious mistake. Okay, I have the email, I have the YouTube clip, and I have now on the screen Jericho wearing purple glittery high heel boots. Yeah, he is, Lance. Those are high heels. Yes, he is. I'm surprised he can stand up in the ring on those heels. What the fuck? It's just, it's like two inches shorter than Gene Simmons. Well, what I was going to say is, although I disagree with Jericho's wardrobe choices here, and I think it'll be booked to be stupid because Chris Jericho can't help himself and Chris Jericho should have nothing to do with his own creative. I think Sammy and Jericho is like the logical thing to do. Yeah. Sam Sammy finally has to be broken away from Jericho. Jericho's dead right now. Like not even with us making fun of him and his bad work. But uh, even with the AEW fans, they've kind of been burned out on Jericho. Like, he's one of these guys that really could use some time off that TV show for their fans. It was so much of the same kind of shit with the whole group of goofs that nobody... Does anybody care about Jake Hager? If, if he burst into spontaneous combustion tomorrow, would a wrestling fan in the world shed a tear? Does Would anybody miss Cool Hand Luke and Daddy Mac Mac Daddy? If they weren't there, what do they contribute? It, it It's just been a group of people that really you could, Sammy's been the only one that you could elevate. 
from the start. Oh, and, and Garcia, my God, how can we forget old DG? The poster boy for being a black hole of charisma. Not only does he have none, but he sucks the charisma of those around him into him. So it's, and they would beat people up constantly and do those long, drawn-out angles that just never ended. He needs a break, like you said. Yeah, but I think this is, again, I'm worried about the booking because Chris Jericho can't help himself, and I don't think Sammy's going to put his foot down and come up with some great ideas all of a sudden. But beyond that, if someone could book this well, this is the logical thing to do right now, Sammy versus Jericho. This is the one thing that needs to be done to elevate Sammy, not just to the world title, but anywhere, just because he's been tied to Jericho since day one. Well, moving along, because we got to get to this big main event. I know people are waiting to hear about this when it made a lot of news, but in the... Oh, and Sonada, who apparently is the New Japan Pro Wrestling World Champion, he did a promo in Japanese they use subtitles on. He's going to be on Forbidden Door, I guess. I believe he's wrestling Jungle Boy. Well, good. Then Keith Lee, Darby Allen, Sting, and our little puppy Pockets... Who are now managed by Dustin Rhodes for whatever reason. We're in an eight man tag team match with Brian Cage, Tia Leone, Bishop Khan, and Swerve with Prince Nana, who are now the Mogul Embassy. Rick Ross was not wanting to be in an embassy. Apparently, Nana didn't want to be a Mogul, so they've combined these things. Why is Dustin in the corner? Why was this match happening? And why won't anybody run over pockets with a truck? Those are the three things that I wrote down. I will say one thing. I guess because Sting was in this match, Brian Cage wore face paint as a tribute to his opponent in this match. I thought it was he was trying to be a, do a Road Warrior Animal Halloween costume for kids. I don't know, but to be quite honest with you, I think he should start wearing face paint every week. He stood out a little more than he usually does. And why not at this point? <laughs> why not? Just load up on face paint and go out there. He's exaggerated his mohawk. He painted his face. He looked like a discount Road Warrior Halloween costume. I mean, I'm in favor of anything covering up Brian Cage's face, but I don't think that's addressing the real meat of the matter with his problems, which is that he's the fucking shits. The Legion of whom? <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, the, and and what the big news in this was that the word no flashed on the screen. Yeah, AEW has new technology where they read the mind of the viewer. <laughs> yeah. Because that's exactly what I was thinking when that flashed on the screen. <laughs> that was the, the big thing was word no flashes on the screen. The announcers never referred to it. It's been reported that it wasn't a production error. It apparently was just 800 and some thousand people at the same time thinking the same thing. Uh, so that's going to no. be something. The most you negative know, word in the history of society. No. You know who, they're gonna, you know who they're going to bring in? No. The next AEW signee is going to be Caesar from Planet of the Apes. Caesar? No. Remember, that's what started the whole thing. What? And finally, that one magic day when the first ape had heard that word so many times before and finally uttered it to his human captors. No! 
All right, this fucking shit. The first man, two, the first two Planet of the Eight movies are really good, but then, I mean, there's still some moments, but they also like lose some budget. Well, they're going, <laughs> they're going back and forth in time. Yeah. And James Franciscus wasn't available and shit. Taylor. Yes. Uh, and speaking of not being available, this thing went through the break at the top of the nine o'clock hour. And again, the match was shit, but did Darby get the win after he was the one pinned in the world title match, the main event of the pay-per-view? No, he did not. Sting got the win, even though he was on the verge of getting beaten. Cage had him up to give him his finish, but Pockets came in and helped Sting to win the match. Sting, <laughs> wrestling icon for over 30 years, now needs the help of the company mascot to win the match. And he did it by giving Cage a Superman punch, Roman Reigns' finish, that missed Brian Cage's face by over a foot. Obviously, on camera to the point where they could not and did not replay the finish as they do to every other match because it was so blatantly phony looking. And as it happened, Tony Schiavone screamed out, God, I love pro wrestling. I get paid to do nothing. It's the greatest. Can I move on? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else there is to say yeah. about this here. Um, this here. I don't know what there is. I mean, yeah, you can move on. Moving on to Wardlow versus Jake Hager. And again, Hager jumps Wardlow from behind on the entrance and they fight to the ring and ring the bell. And I wrote at that point that I wasn't really going to waste my time on fucking Jake fucking Hager. But it wasn't a lot of time anyway because pretty, pretty soon Arn chased the Jericho Stooges that came out to the back with Brock, his son, Brock Anderson. The Jericho Stooges come out, and Arn and Brock, get, they fight him to the back. Well, Brock fights him, and Arn walks after him. And then Wardlow wins in fairly quick fashion over Hager. And then suddenly Christian Cage and Dino pop up on the screen to utter menacing words to... Wardlow, but their audio's not up, so nobody in the building or TV can hear it. And finally, when they turn the audio up, they're in the middle of it, but they're basically saying, you know, that uh, I can't remember what they said because they blocked out the start of it, but, you know, you're not going to get away with things this easy because they widened the shot out. And there's Arn, who they've caught apparently in the back, and now they've busted his head open and he's bloody. So this was apparently meant to chill the blood of Wardlow that they've incapacitated Arn. But Brian, do you remember what they did last week? Last week, these guys, what they did? Yeah, yeah. Uh... Remember when, when Christian and Dino came out of the locker room and did the interview with Barb Brady or whoever it was and walked off? Yeah, it was Barb Brady. Because then he sees Brock Anderson oh, in the locker right. room, that's bloody, right. and says, oh, can we get some help? So last week they did it to Brock. This week, Brock is fine. As a matter of fact, he's in such good shape that he came out and jumped the Jericho appreciators and fought them to the back with his dad. But then his dad 
within the space of like two minutes later has been captured by Christian Cage and Dino Douche and has been busted open in the locker room. Brock's nowhere around. But one would assume that if they did the same thing to Arn that they did to Brock, that next week Arn will be fine and running out to fight the Jericho appreciators. Do you see why this shit doesn't have a lot of continuity to it? Yeah, I see. I thought Tony All was right. going to get help with continuity. Um, He got continuous help and continually doesn't listen. Nobody cared about all this anyway. Then Tanahashi, in Japanese with subtitles, wants to wrestle MJF. And I'm like, oh, God, I hope not. Fuck. And then they go immediately to Renee Moxley Good with MJF in the back where she says the match has been made official. Tanahashi versus MJF. And MJF says no. And I popped. I'm like, oh, thank God. He says, I'm not going to fight a rando from some rinky-dink indie fed in Japan. Sorry. Nope. Ain't going to do it. No time. Fucking great. What a promo. Put Renee in her place. Put Tanahashi in his place. I wish he could put Tony Khan in his place. Um, That was a nice little piece of business. Yeah, but we'll probably get the match now. That's the problem. Well, no problem for you. It'll probably be a good match. Tanahashi's great, but... There ain't gonna be no blistering promos back and forth unless one of them's in subtitles. You know, promos and feuds are not what Forbidden Door is about. It's about taking two wrestlers and putting them in the ring and having smart fans scream like little... Promos, promos and feuds and making money and no, selling tickets are no. not what Forbidden Door is all about. It's no. all about taking a bunch of people that the general public has no idea who the fuck they are and putting them in the ring for the benefit of Tony Khan's satisfaction. Dream matches, dream bangers. Yeah, that's only if you go to bed after eating a lot of spicy food and garlic, you have these kind of dreams. So Renee Moxley good. Like Tuesday. I think they finally can bar Brady because he must have been, no. it, it was over the line last week. No, he, he'll be back. He'll never go away. She was in the back with pockets. What does the future hold for you? And of course, he makes fun of wrestling being phony by saying, well, now somebody's going to walk in and challenge me. Kind of like the same kind of shit that Owens does. They're, they're so smart. They're, they're sharper than everybody else. And obviously, we know that wrestling is as phony as a fucking football bat, or elsewise, pockets wouldn't be standing there on our screen. But then as soon as he said that, some fucking blonde guy with an English accent and his own belt walked in and did challenge him. And I'm like, who is this fucking guy? And then Garcia comes in and wants to know where Shibata is. Just, where's Shibata? <laughs> like, that's a fucking household name. Elvis, Obama, Shibata. <laughs> like, everybody, okay, and, and then Pocket struggles to get out that Shibata isn't there, but he will be next week, so we can have a tag team match. And then he walks off, leaving the British guy standing there looking like a six-foot Q-tip. What the fuck was this all about? Elvis, Obama, Shibata. Shibata. The skinny, blonde-haired man who, again, I knew who it was, but it was not... If it was explained on this show in any way, I didn't hear it. That's Zack Sabre Jr., who wrestles for New Japan Pro Wrestling. Well, I, I've his father would be ashamed of him right now with that hairdo. 
Shibata is the wrestler who, as reported in the Wrestling Observer, had his yeah. brain taken out of his head. And yeah, so he's he's, head. he's busy looking for his brain. That's why he hangs out with Orange Cassidy, I guess. I don't think no, I don't think Orange has any fucking brains left to spare. So we're going to see that next week for some reason. Now, now we're going to talk about the ratings in a little bit, but just imagine if you are a viewer at home that <laughs> isn't us, that just has no problem with AEW and watches it every week. And yeah, you may wonder why certain people just disappear off that TV or are gone, or certain people are nonstop on that TV. You have no idea who Shibata is. You have no idea who Zack Sabre Jr. is. You don't care about Daniel Garcia at this point, and you're sick of Orange Cassidy who they stuff at the start of most shows to try to get people to see him. There's no, to me, there isn't the big mystery is why so many people keep diving off this television show when you see stuff like this. This is an easy crime to solve. And continuing, as a matter of fact, this is like murder on the Orient Express. Everybody's going to take a stab at this one. The women's title match, Sky Blue versus Tony Storm. What have they done to Tony Storm? She used to be gorgeous. Now her new hairdo makes her look like Phyllis Diller. Well, she's yeah, a at heel. Least she's trying to be a heel. Well, she is a she heel. Succeeded there. Phyllis Diller. Um, you know, they Fang, say, they say Fang would be thrilled. Where did I just read this? And I feel ashamed to have said I just read this somewhere. But in one of the books I'm reading, they said, you know, Phyllis Diller really did have a good body. <laughs> <laughs> if you could just get past her face when she was younger, she was quite the looker. <laughs> Other than the face that she made fun of. For anyone saying, oh, how dare you? She made fun of it in her own act, so I could do yes. it. Yes. Yes, she did. Ha, 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 ha. All right, the moment we've all been waiting for, and believe me, I have. And we're, Wait, we're getting to it. That was what? a review of Sky Blue versus Tony Storm? It certainly was. Oh, okay. And we're going to have to do more of this. Ten fucking hours a week. We're going to be skipping things in both companies going forward here. Or elsewise, I'm going to be fucking out of my mind. But this match got so much talk, I was just going to check out. But this was, as soon as I got up on Thursday morning on Twitter, it had blown up. People sending the clip out, people registering their opinions on this match, but the clip of the incident as it, I called it when we were talking on the phone earlier today, before we went on the air, I called it the whisper spot. And you said, well, that, that seems to downplay it. And I said, no, I think that's applicable when a guy that's supposed to be a mortal enemy of somebody walks over to them in plain view of 5,000 people live and hundreds of thousands on television and cups his hand around his mouth in the stage gesture version of I'm whispering to you. And the other guy exaggeratedly knocks, notches his, or nods, notches, not nods his head up and down in agreement with whatever was just whispered to him. I call that a whisper spot that everybody in the world saw as plain as day. We'll get to it. But anyway, the BBC in the long-awaited showdown against Hangnail Adam Page and the Buckaroos. And was this not termed by the plumber Moxley a few weeks ago as the epitome of professional wrestling or the, the best wrestling? It's, it's the, the apex. apex. The apex. 
Yes, Apex is a pest control company in this town. I think he's been huffing too much of the bug spray. I meant it's the Vortex. Possibly even the Gore-Tex. Because what was that outfit that the the Bucks were making? Or the Bucks were wearing? What was that made out of? They came out in the most ludicrous cowboy outfits ever. Yeah, I don't know. Again, they have their own unique brand of uh, Cucamonga sense of humor that doesn't really seem to be resonating with the viewers at large and certainly not with us. They're baby faces. Why do they look stupid on purpose now? They look like Cisco Kid's sidekick Poncho had twins. And they're just, and, and they spend money on this shit. Another example, Tony's paying them too much money. One guy says, I work with children. The other guys come dressed like children. Yes. So they rang the bell. They did an immediate six-way, had a sloppy fight with fake punches. They were on the floor in 30 seconds. There were multiple dives in 45 seconds. And I wrote, it's a complete rib at this point. They can't do anything else. Is this the way that every one of their matches starts and goes? Within a minute, they've done everything. So constant moves. Everybody does everything. Maddie Buckaroo acts like a badass and then throws fake punches that wouldn't break an egg. They go to the break. Moxley sells nothing. It's the most amazing thing to watch if you focus on. He sells nothing. Well, he doesn't even register or react. It's not like it's because it's so weak. Whether it's a a potato, a good punch, or a shitty-looking, phony-looking punch, he reacts to them all the same way. He doesn't. And they went to a break, but after they came back from the break, Nikki was supposed to be fighting for a tag, and they were trying to keep him from getting it. And they were trying to get the people interested in this, but they had already established from the very start of the match that they can all just fight if they want to and there's no tags needed and everybody can just do whatever and then when they gave up on that after about 30 seconds nikki and the plumber just both stood up and tagged out and they started some more shit and then page he made his comeback on wheeler useless and they were trying to paralyze this kid they did everything to old useless this week. Um, then they entered the part where everybody in the match did moves to everybody else over and over, running in at random. And then they tried to milk a tag again. And there was no way to follow this. It made no sense. It was 100 miles an hour. Somehow, hangnail beat useless. That was the, the finish. But the good stuff was yet to come. Because then, of course, what happens in every one of these guys' matches when one team wins, then the other team jumps on them? And they're trying to get heat on them. But here comes Eddie Kingston. And then this all started happening in fast succession and got to people on Twitter picking their own favorite clips and their own thing to watch. But Eddie Kingston, I would say, ran to the ring. But I don't know if you can term that running. I'm not the most athletic motherfucker, but it looks like besides the fact that Eddie, since he's been off or disappeared or moved to Ring of Honor or whatever, he's swallowed a beach ball without deflating it first. He ran like Mr. Fuji used to walk with those bad knees. He was tottering from side to side. It was very odd with some spastic movements. I like Eddie, but my God. He jumps Claudio, and they're doing shit. And then the hard camera 
is shooting the ring where there's shit going on and across the ring in front of everybody, in front of the people in the front row and all in the building, in front of the television audience. The plumber just sneaks over in plain view to where Maddie and one of his other cohorts are selling on the floor and leans over, does the whisper spot, just whispers to him. And Maddie goes, oh, okay, nods his head. And then the guy walks off. And people on Twitter were clipping that and putting it up. And look at this bullshit, this unprofessionalist idiot. And I swear to God, the AEW crowd came out and were trying to defend that. And I'm sure you read a bunch of it, Brian. But at first, that well, it's a production. How dare the production team do that? What? <laughs> Opposite the what? hard camera? Opposite the hard camera. What are we supposed to be shooting? The fucking hidden camera in the women's bathroom? And they didn't know that that was going to happen because it was... <laughs> you would never dream that that was going to happen because I don't know that I've ever seen that happen that blatantly ever in wrestling before. And people were talking about, well, you hear Cena call his spots. Well, that's not a preferable thing to happen either, but... This is different than hearing a spot being called when the opponents just walk over to each other and start conversing and then walk away. He couldn't even grab the guy by the neck and choke him and say, okay, this is really sucking, so we got to do something else or whatever his message was. He just did it. Five feet from the people in the front row, on hard camera, on live television. It wasn't a production error, and the production team should not take any heat for that. Same guy who yelled fuck on TV on a few different occasions. Same guy who flips off the camera. Yeah, Same oh, guy who blades on camera multiple times. He'd already done multiple middle fingers in this match already. So, but he, he he's bladed before on camera. His as you shirt said. says fuck when he comes out there. It says whatever it is, zero fucks at the bottom of the shirt in small white letters on TV. I thought that, I'm, I thought that was his IQ uh, test re results that came back in. Zero fucks. But anyway, and then other people, the real AEW hardcore fans, said, well, you're making a big deal out of... Everybody knows it's fake. This is why I am probably the, mo the biggest reason why I despise the buckaroos, the garbage match wrestlers, the indie-minded fucks like we're talking about, because they have made a brand new segment of fans. Not a big segment, but a brand new one that never existed before. A group of people who don't give a shit if wrestling looks phony or not. A group of people that think, it's okay. We're just supposed to laugh at this shit anyway. We're not supposed to take any of this seriously. It's just comedy entertainment for us. So who gives a shit if they're unprofessional and it looks fake? That's the people that like these kind of guys and this kind of shit. And that's why me and them will always be on opposite sides. You've got MJFs, you've got punks, you've got a few people there, FTR, that care, that take any kind of pride in their work. And then you've got these jack-offs that other jack-offs like to cheer for. Fuck all y'all. So anyway, it wasn't a production error. It wasn't okay because everybody knows it's fake. And believe me, with these guys wrestling, we do know it's all fake. 
And it's not okay because they attract fans that say shit like that. They don't care if it looks fake because we just want to laugh at it. These are the kind of people that used to get their noses bitten off. Either fans or potentially this fucking balding plumber and the rest of his ilk. Go do that in front of, on Ming's show <laughs> and see what Ming says to you when you come back to the locker room. Huh, you want to whisper? I sounded like Jack Pfeffer there. Is Ming running shows? Well, I'd just say a show Ming is on and go out there and do phony shit that make people laugh at the business and then see what your nose looks like. I like this. There's an authority figure no one will fuck with. Ming. There you go. Anyway. What do you think so, Moxley was saying to them? Who knows? Because they were, they're just making it shut up as they go along and they a time cue or, oh, golly, we got to get all the run-ins because we're not done yet. We're not done yet. That's just what got everybody's attention. But then Kingston beat up Claudio, but then he stopped and didn't beat up Moxley because they used to be friends. But then Maddie tried to beat up Moxley, but Kingston, even though he had just saved them, pulled Maddie off Moxley. And then Moxley shoved the Bucks away and yelled at Kingston. But then here comes Take a Shit running down the aisle jumps in and nails Kingston and the buckaroos and take a shit get in a fight until music plays and twinkle toes runs in and fights take a shit and then everybody gets back in and hits super kicks on everybody else and then they all fall out on the floor and they all dive on each other and then Kenny and take a shit are in the ring all alone and Kenny hits take a shit with that stupid shitty looking knee lift where take a shit's down on his knees already on in the ropes so he doesn't even take a bump and kenny runs all the way across the with the v trigger and he hits the v trigger to no effect and no pop but when that happens will ostrich who we did not know was there rolled in and super kicked kenny from behind and really, actually, from behind, because instead of waiting for Kenny to turn around after he knee-lifted Take-A-Shit, Ostrich starts to throw the kick and realizes that Kenny's not turning, so he just kind of looped his foot around and kicked Kenny in the side of the face from behind. And he goes down, and Ostrich picks him up and gives him some other kind of fucked-up bump that I don't know what the fuck it was, where the other ten people in this match and in this fight were apparently laying around the ring on the floor hiding because you saw people in the front row looking at them but you couldn't see them on camera because ostrich is standing over twinkle toes this is the biggest mess i've ever seen and by the time they were finished you forgot what started the whole goddamn thing Give me your feedback. I didn't think the match was anything special. It's important to note, I think, that the Observer gave this more stars than MJF versus Cole, which was actually what? a good match on the show that held viewers. Oh, good God. Um, I mean, it's just, at this point, it's a joke. Not to spoil the ratings, which we'll talk about separately, but, you know, the smart fans are different than the fans. And Moxley, despite him being a moron, and what we think of him means something to some of those fans. 
Despite what a lot of smart fans think of Claudio, Claudio doesn't mean anything to those fans. Wheeler Yuta doesn't mean anything to those fans. The Bucks have less buzz than they've had since before they went to TNA's Generation Me. Adam Page, former world champion. Doesn't mean shit if he's not in there with the right person. Danielson, bigger star than all these people. He's doing color and we ain't listening to it. He's on commentary with the Idiot Brigade and Taz. And then you get all these guys who, again, Takeshita, I like Takeshita. I think he's really good as a heel. I don't think the baby faces should be beating him up already. <laughs> what he switched to whole weeks ago, what do you expect? Yeah, no, he showed a lot of promise. Let's beat him up. Takeshita's in there, gets beat up. Kingston and he's an afterthought. Kingston has a, and he's an afterthought. Kingston hasn't been on this show in forever. He shows up. Will Ospreay randomly pops up again. We know him. Does the person at home watching some main eventers like Kenny Omega and Moxley coexist in the ring, do they know who he is? It was a bizarre, overly booked, crap ending to a crap match on a crap show. I mean, Cole versus, uh, I shouldn't say crap show, because Cole versus MJF ate up a half hour. And that was pretty good. It was two different programs. It was 30 minutes of, wow, this is a wrestling show, and an hour and a half of, wow, the kids are really fucking yeah. aggressive tonight. No, it was a good idea. It was a 30-minute preview of Collision, followed by 90 minutes of AEW Dynamite. Moxley, though, come on. I said it before. The guy's bladed on camera multiple times. The guy has said fuck, not just like on TV, but on the live mic. The guy flips off everyone for no reason. I know. Uh, remember that interview with him. I'm pissed off about nothing, for no reason. The BCC, despite the smart fans who love Moxley, who voted him Wrestler of the Year twice, the BCC has not resonated with wrestling fans because it's ridiculous. None of them are from Blackpool. The concept's <laughs> stupid. William Regal's not even from Blackpool. I don't think. Why doesn't someone else just start the Liverpool Combat Club? And you can have just different pools of people feuding with each other. It hasn't worked. They didn't want to do the elite versus punk and FTR or punk and whoever because the Young Bucks don't want to forgive and forget, or at least forgive. You don't have to forget. Never forget. But they don't want to forgive, which I thought was one of their things. But this is the substitution. We didn't get punk saying, you guys are amateurs. We got Brian Danielson saying it. We didn't get Punk in their highly anticipated settling of the score with Omega or the Bucks. God forbid Adam Page. Instead, we got a forced BCC Young Bucks feud with garbage matches and the BCC just living out John Moxley's masturbatory dreams. This hasn't been good at all. I just want to know what he was saying at ringside, though. I just want everybody to know what the ratings were because I peaked this time, but I don't know the exact quarters, but I know where they started and where they finished. So why don't we elucidate the people before we move on to the second half of their week? Well, this week's AEW Dynamite for June 14th, Wednesday night, was watched by 832,000 people. And that is significantly, unfortunately, for them down from the overall number they had last week. But if I'm not mistaken, I think they started as strong or maybe a little stronger, didn't they? Uh, I would have to pull up last week's numbers. I don't have them in front of me. If you uh, do, that may help. But let's start with where they uh, did start off, naturally. Segment one, 8 to 8, 15 p.m. Adam Cole versus MJF. 
918,000 viewers. Okay, they started off down. They were a little bit down from last week where they started, uh, as I recall, but still 918,000. They know that's usually their highest point because they get the Big Bang people. So they put something in that one would think would retain uh, pretty much everybody that was there to watch AEW rather than just hanging over from the Big Bang Theory would keep tuned to MJF and Adam Cole. So whatever they did in the second quarter, that's the number of people that wanted to watch AEW that night on purpose, I would think. So what is the second quarter? Segment two, the continuation of Adam Cole versus MJF with picture-in-picture, 889,000 viewers. Okay, so they lost 29,000 people between the first quarter and the second quarter, and one would think that that then, as I said, nobody that wanted to watch AEW is going to turn that match off. So therefore... They had 30,000 big bangers that said, ah, we're not going to stick with it this time. And it should be uh, pointed out here because we do want to talk about a little bit what the network cares about, the key demo. Adam Cole versus MJF started at 415. Segment two went to 429. So while the overall number came slightly down, the key demo number, which is where the advertising is based off, went up. So that's an important thing there. And that is, uh, the difference in viewers was 29,000. The, the difference in the demo was 14,000. So basically, they lost 29,000 people, but they picked up 14,000 of a more attractive demo. That ain't too bad. Segment three, a continuation of this match, the final six minutes of Cole versus MJF, with the post-match, as well as the CM Punk video, and the Sammy Guevara Darby Allen live promo, no Chris Jericho yet, 890,000 viewers. And they kept everybody and added 1,000 going into that finish. By the way, let me mention these uh, stats were pulled by WrestleNomics. Thurston Howell III strikes again. Segment 4, 8.45 to 9 p.m., Continuation of Sammy Guevara's confrontation with Darby Allen, with Chris Jericho added to the mix. And then Sting, the Sonata video. There goes Swami, Darby Allen, Sting Keith Lee, and Orange Cassidy versus the Mogul Associates, Mogul Embassy, excuse me, <laughs> with picture in picture. Jesus Christ. 865,000 viewers. That's better than I thought it was going to be. So they only lost 25,000 for that whole mess. Segment five, the big nine o'clock hour, nine to nine fifteen p.m. The final six minutes of the eight-man tag match previously mentioned, the guns backstage promo, and the beginning of Wardlow versus Jake Hager with picture in picture, eight hundred and fifty-seven thousand viewers. And again, I've got to say, only eight thousand more. Uh, that's better than. They're hanging with it better than the content that they're being given would indicate. So they ought to be proud of this so far. But this is the point in the show where you know, if you're anywhere yep. near a regular viewer, if the front of the show has been loaded with the people you want to see, the rest of the show is not going to have that. Segment six. Yes, that is in fact segment six. Segment yes. six, 9.15 to 9.30 p.m., the end of Warlow versus Hager 
with the post-match Christian Cage, Luchasaurus, Arn Anderson angle, Tanahashi's video, MJF's backstage promo, Cassidy, Daniel Garcia, Zack Sabre Jr.'s backstage angle, and the beginning of Tony Storm vs. Sky Blue with picture-in-picture, 792,000 viewers. Wow. Okay, at that point, they say, yeah, there's uh, 65,000 more people. They are now down a hundred uh wait a seven ninety seven thousand from quarter two and a hundred and twenty six thousand from the start of the program and this is also where we talked about the key demo earlier this is where the key demo starts diving off too segment seven the final three minutes of tony storm versus sky blue the post-match with ruby soho and willow nightingale Jack Perry's exciting backstage promo. I missed that. FTR's backstage promo. I missed that. I missed that too, actually. And the beginning of the Elite versus the Blackpool Combat Club, 745,000 views. (laughs) Okay, and they have advertised, not only did angles for this and been building this for weeks, but they advertised this main event match. It wasn't a surprise. So leading into that, a hundred and fifty-five, sixty-five, a hundred and seventy-three thousand people from the start of the program said we don't want to see any of that. And finally, segment eight, nine forty-five to ten p.m. The Elite versus Blackpool Combat Club continued with picture-in-picture, picture, and the big post-match with Eddie Kingston, Kanosuke Takeshita, Kenny Omega, Will Ospreay, Brian Danielson, Con Edison. Bank of America, <laughs> Home Depot, 699,000 viewers. And there you have it. The BBC and the Elite managed to run off 219,000 people from the start of the program, which is about 25% approximately of where they started. And what was the uh, what was the number in the key demo yeah, on that? Yeah. I want to say, we got to point that out. It started at 415, went as high as 429 for segment two of MJF versus Cole. It ended at 325. Jesus. So nobody likes these jack-offs. No. So, I mean, that's the other thing. Anyone who thinks that there's like a big youth fan base for the Bucks and Omega, even if there was seven years ago, how old are those people now? They lost 200 and... 19,000 off the total viewership. They lost 104,000 in the key demo from its height. But yet they're the EVPs, main event guys. The plumber's allowed to do whatever he wants. Tony has no control over these people. All they do is run off viewers and, and, and talent. They ran off. They not only ran off more viewers than anybody in wrestling history, but they ran off a bigger star than anybody else in wrestling history. Well, there you have it. AEW uh, doing a fine job there. And I have nothing else to say. Well, <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to break now and then move on to talk about collision whenever it collides here in a few minutes. And we'll be back to talk about that at the end of the program. All right. Well, before we move on any further, I think we told the people that it's now we've We've watched what happened last night. We already said that, right? Ladies and gentlemen, we're in a 
continuous time continuum, a loop, and where all we do is watch wrestling, then talk to each other about wrestling, disseminate the information to you, and then do the whole thing over again. But before we do that, we got to talk just for a second about the, because so this is by popular demand, as they used to say. The public, the people, the cult of Cornette have requested this by voluminous, all manner of communication is what I'm trying to say, has been asking if we watched the Rampage six-person event with uh, Mark Briscoe, Papa Briscoe, and referee Aubrey Ed against Jeff Jarrett, Jay Lethal, and Karen Jarrett with Sanjay Dutt and Zippy, the giant pinhead along ringside. And yes, we did, because how could we not, right? And there's, I, plenty, to, there's plenty of reasons why we could not watch this. Well, match. no, there it's you're drawn to it like any other natural disaster. If the aliens were raining, you know, photon torpedoes down upon us, people would would glance right before they were obliterated. But in it, they set this up in some angle on one of their off-brand programs. But let's see what because I bet Jeff is in it. He's going to try to keep it from stinking. And there's enough talent in the periphery of things that if they could just corral the girls and use Papa Briscoe to his best advantage, this might not go completely down the porcelain throne. But then again, there was always the possibility because Aubrey's involved. And I did you love Tony Schiavone's comment at the start of it? Aubrey's an athlete. She has a dance background. Apparently, that is what qualifies most people on the AEW Wednesday night show, at least, uh, to be athletes as a dance background. You would think that she would incorporate dance in the moves that she did in the ring, if that's the case. Well, yeah, a pirouette into a spinning kick or yeah. a, you know, uh, what do they call the fucking thing in ballet? A je ne sais quoi or whatever. <laughs> Where they do the what? <laughs> I didn't know you uh, were familiar with the ballet. Yes, I've been to the ballet. Really? Yes. Where? I even had a, a dog named Tutu one time. That's because I was so young when I got the dog. I had only seen The Wizard of Oz once, and I couldn't remember whether the dog's name was Toto or Tutu. And I settled on Tutu, and Mama and Daddy Cornette didn't have the heart to tell me I was wrong. So the dog's name was Tutu. I wish you didn't name him Foot Foot, but let's go back to uh, well, what we were talking about here. All right. Well, this dog, um, here's the thing. Mark Briscoe and Jay Lethal should be in the main event singles mix on either one of these programs, Saturday night, Wednesday night, whatever kind of night. And they're doing this. And we've talked about the ball that was dropped with Mark. And Jeff Jarrett is a master of psychology putting matches together and doing the grandiose finishes where at least it gets people hooked. There's twists and turns. But again, should he be using that on this when they've got such a conglomeration of messes on their national television program amongst the main event talent? Couldn't he be sitting down with these guys and telling them how to put a fucking match together instead of putting a match together with, I love Papa Briscoe, but a, 60-something-year-old senior citizen, his wife, and a fucking referee. And Papa Briscoe can be used or could have been used 
if Mark was in the proper position as a money-drawing gimmick, either for ratings or something on pay-per-view. You've seen it done, Brian. The New York audience loved Papa Briscoe in the right context. With his shirt on. That did help, but also uh, in the right context as far as being in something that was featured, something amongst main event talent, something that had emotion to it. And then you get him in and get him out, and he was, he's fabulous. But now they've just, okay, here it is, on our lowest you know, rated show. I love Karen. She's a wonderful woman. Not sure she needs to be in the ring, but this, if it was Memphis, you know, but I'm not sure again with all the other. If it was Memphis, people would care about this. Yes, yes. But also with all the other issues that this company has with their television presentation, it's not like that this was the outlandish part of something. It's just another outlandish segment. And in Aubrey, who might need to go to the glue factory, I'm not sure. But anyway, as I said, Papa Briscoe wasn't bad. He can, he can do shit, and he's a stout, stiff son of a bitch. But there was no hot angle which helped the presentation. People that, that the fans actually cared, or the issue that the fans actually cared about. But he gets over when people are surprised he can do shit, which, you know, he does a couple times in a match. And then, finally... It didn't last that long, and we got the cat fight. And at first, Karen mounted Aubrey. But then Aubrey got on top of Karen and used her closed hooves to get the advantage. And she's wailing away on her. And then, fittingly, Aubrey was using the flying mares on Karen Jarrett. And then Karen reached up and gouged Aubrey's <laughs> eyes because she wasn't wearing her blinders. <laughs> You got me with fittingly she was using the flying mare. <laughs> well, you know, that's why she would buy her hair and she was snapping oh. her right hand. Oh, so wrong. Anyway, so then <laughs> it all broke loose, broke down there and wherever the fuck they were at, and Karen gets the guitar. And Karen goes for a guitar shot, but Aubrey mule kicked her in the leg and took the guitar away. And then you saw the theatrical stage-performing background of referee Aubrey Ed as she milked the guitar in a ridiculously overdramatic manner with that, still with that Buster Keatonish face. But before she crossed the finish line with the guitar, Jay stopped her and said, no, no, hit me instead. And nothing happened forever. And the referee was staring right at everything with the woman with the guitar in her hand and all this by play. And then suddenly, when Zippy jumps up on the apron, the referee turns around and Aubrey horse collars uh, Jay Lethal with the fucking guitar. Now, you one would think that the referee might have heard the explosion of the guitar behind him, or, you know, when he turned back around, there was still pieces laying everywhere, but a little loophole. But Karen tried to give Aubrey the stroke, and then Aubrey turned around and jockeyed for position and put Karen Jarrett in the woo figure four 
and Karen gave up, and Aubrey went to the winner's circle by a nose. And that was, it really wasn't very, very long, so it didn't have time to fall apart. What'd you think? It was embarrassing and stupid, but it was on Rampage, so who gives a shit? 300,000 people may have seen it. I think that I've never, you and I have never seen eye to eye on Jeff Jarrett in terms of, we agree with what he could do in the ring, we disagree on where he should be and how he should be presented. But I think his run in AEW so far has been pretty embarrassing. Again, for everyone who wants to say, oh, look at how good he is in the ring at his age, despite that Dax Harwood match, which was awful. Look at every embarrassing thing he's doing. And now they're doing a concession stand brawl on the next match he's having on what Wednesday. Now? What? Isn't it him and Mark Briscoe in a concession stand brawl on Wednesday? I, d- I didn't. I think I saw a graphic, but I was zipping. So I didn't know it was a concession stand brawl. Yeah, he's taking every. I mean, so you say it reminded you of Memphis. That's the thing. Jeff Jarrett knows what worked in Memphis because his father promoted it. And he takes a lot of those concepts. And now he's just throwing all this shit against the wall. His wife's well, in there. No, no, I'm sorry, Karen shouldn't on. be in the ring. What? Hold on now. Hold on now. Because I have to disagree with you about one thing. And you say it's Wednesday night, right? The I'm night, checking right now. I'm checking right okay. now. Okay. It's the night we get to stay up late and do all those things. I'm, I've known Jeff Jarrett and I've worked with him fairly extensively, more than most people over the past 20 years. And I don't think that he just went to Tony Khan and said, hey, let me have a concession stand brawl match on TV with Mark Briscoe. I believe he might have said, I'll work with Mark Briscoe, or I'd like to work with Mark Briscoe, but that sounds to me like a Tony Khan homage of some description, like he's done with so many other things, where Sabu has to come out and throw a chair at somebody's and head that could and fall be off the top rope. And that could be it, because Tony Khan, despite being a fan of wrestling and watching lots of wrestling, never has shown that he actually understands the things that worked and why they worked. So that or the, could be the content, like like Shitstain, the the backstory of how they were built up to the context in which they were presented, or what they were supposed to lead to. They don't retain those things. They remember, oh, they fought in a concession stand. But everything with Jeff, the click he's with, it's brought Jay Lethal down. Jay Lethal is being used by shit, and then they put him with Jeff Jarrett, and now he's been now he's being used like shit, and he's a joke. <laughs> now he's being used more often like shit. And no, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you about the group. Sanjay's terrible. This, oh, and and overacting. I'm not disagreeing with you about the group. And now at this point, I'm not disagreeing. Again, Jeff can have good matches, but at this point, they've nullified people giving a shit about that. And Tony doesn't he have can, to hire everyone's fucking boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouse. Well, but hold on a second. I was going somewhere. I was halfway around the bend, rounding the far turn, coming up out of the pack like Aubrey Ed. At this point, why doesn't he just have Jeff sit in the back when everybody's going over their finish and bringing up shit like, you know you're going to fucking kill yourself if you do that, or don't do 18 things on top of one another, do them one at a time so everybody can see all, or just 
putting the finish together, ups and downs, building to it. Jeff's not you. Produce matches. Jeff's not you. I think you're giving Jeff more credit than because the no, other I've, thing is I've, I've seen him. I've watched him do it. He get you know if you if you have if you have a grip on how to follow a basic train of thought, he can lead these guys through a fucking finish better than they're doing now. We shall Many see. Of them. But every single segment with him is awful. Every single segment, it's awful. As soon as they come out there, that whole goof troop out on the stage, Sanjay and the giant who does nothing, a feckless giant. We've seen giants booked like garbage before. We've never seen a giant who just, I don't know, he has feelings. He, oh no, please don't kick me out of ringside. I don't know what the hell's going on there. So that's fucking terrible. No, please. And then you have Karen who, I mean, she's an older woman now. I don't need to see her out there doing all this shit. It feels like TNA. It feels like TNA in a bad way. Well, Dixie's coming up next week. She's going to be on a pole. Which, which is a position that she probably was in many times in TNA. I just wasn't in the room at the time. Well, you didn't have wine. Do you think Dixie would be a better heel on TV today in 2023 than Karen Jarrett? No. Uh, well, here's the thing. Yes and no. And for the people who actually knew and had to work with and underneath or in whatever fashion Dixie Carter, she'd be a big heel. But for the mainstream population, Karen's a much better performer than Dixie was. Just Dixie's... Karen can be a heel, but she can also be normal. Whereas Dixie comes off like a heel most of the time, no matter what she's doing. So, but it feels like Jeff and Karen's gimmick should be something like, you know, they flip houses or something. Not, <laughs> not whatever this is. Well, wait a minute. Hey, there, there could be something there. We'll flip your house. We'll, they can do wrestling uh, promotion renovation. Instead, and they can flip the house. It can go from twenty five hundred to twenty five. If that segment replaces QTV, I'll sign up for it. There you go. Right. I think we're on to something. I'd rather watch them on a show flipping houses than I would them on the wrestling show. Well, then, but wait a minute now. Then who who gets to be the the uh, good renovator and who gets to be the bad renovator? Is it, is it like, is Karen just blowing the budget? Jeff's trying to keep her in line. I think it starts where Jeff That's comes the, home and he says, Karen, I found an angel. And then they go to work. <laughs> <laughs> and the show will be dedicated to the memory of Burt Prentice. That's right. Bless his soul. And all the angels out there <laughs> we've yet to find. He's <laughs> <laughs> the... <laughs> We, we can set up the tomb of the unknown angel. Because <laughs> if, if, if Burt Prentice didn't find you and Ronnie Gossett didn't find you, then by God, you're unknown. You didn't live in the state of Tennessee. Yeah. All right, should we talk about the big controversy on ESPN uh, that didn't happen? This past week that was pre predicted and predictified by some of the uh, the journalists and pundits in a kind of another whisper campaign that for once didn't work. Well, I think that before we even talk about the CM Punk ESPN article, that's a bigger story, maybe, because the article was kind of a nothing burger. 
the fact that in advance of the article, which the public didn't know about, word started coming out that Punk said things again, he upset people again. And then you read the article and it's like, that's it? There's nothing there. But they tried, and this time it didn't work. And I saw Punk tweeted out something, or not tweet, Instagram. The call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> and I think people are starting to pick up on it now that haven't been stooped over to, to grab it, even though it was laying in front of them all this time. We've been talking about it. And finally, it backfired. Finally, it didn't work. Finally, it kind of made it clear what's been going on. And just to summarize, bring people up to date real quick. You've told them most of it there. But in the days before the ESPN interview with Punk was due to come out to promote the debut of Collision, the Whisper campaign started. Oh, he's he's said a horrible, inflammatory thing. He's going to stir this up. and. And boy, this is going to be terrible. Waitlist comes out. It's going to throw a monkey wrench into the deal again. Who knows? Pot again, potentially putting in doubt that the biggest star that the show is built around will not be there on live TV Saturday night. And the call coming from the house or coming from the house was from the their own company. The Wednesday night crew trying to do a little sabotage again, and this time it didn't work because when the article came out. And and he actually, you'll read a couple of uh, paragraphs from it or comments from it, but not only did he actually apologize and say that he was wrong to put Tony Khan in that position at the scrum, because like we had talked about, and I could see it, he knew he was hurt, he was fed up, pissed off, and he worked with children. And it came out, but he apologized, said it was the wrong forum, <clears throat> he also said that he had tried to be in contact with the other side to apologize or to at least sit down and talk, settle it, whatever, you'll read the quote. And he was told by attorneys, no, don't try to contact these people. And a bunch of things, and his problem with Paige, which was has been well documented, but if, if if you should you go ahead and read a couple of these really inflammatory things that threaten to shake the foundation of AEW and throw things into turmoil again that this no good lion gum bump and sack of snake feces was predicted to have told ESPN. Well, again, I'm scrolling down because some of the early quotes in here are not really. Uh, it's really just the things you think you would see here about his rehab and his wife's support, and just all these things, not being there for a while, lost his, uh, or left his champion. Here, I guess, are some of the quotes that the elite fans could probably get their panties in a huff over. And I proceed to have what I think is a garbage match. He's talking about Adam Page here. Because I'm trying to protect myself on stuff instead of actually just working and trying to put on the best performance I can. I'm keeping an eye out. He chopped me in the mouth one time, and I'm like, Okay, did you do that on purpose? You chipped my tooth, and I'm like, all right, should I give him a receipt? It changes the dynamic. It poisoned everything for me, and it made it all really, really ugly, and that was what set all of this off. And here we are over a year later. And, and by, let me pause. Somebody on Twitter, I saw the, uh, 
the footage what they they took the footage of that exchange of chops right and slow-moed it and even did like the telestrator graphics and showed that punk had chopped him across the chest and then punk leaned in spread his arms out had his face up chest out did not move and page chopped him right in a fucking mouth bam and it was plain it wasn't like it was a moving target so i can see where he might have had that reaction go ahead and here we are over a year later and ain't shit's been done about it now, let me scroll down a little further the first thing i said to tony when i sat down with him and spoke to him after it was man i'm really sorry i put you in that position punk said i apologized for the scrum but when you watch that scrum, you're looking at a very, very frustrated guy who had told people. That's not the first time he heard all that. It's not the first time the lawyers were told all that. And I was just looking for something to be done, and nothing got done. So if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And I just didn't approach it in the right manner, but tension was high. I was very, very pissed. I pretty much knew that I had just injured myself again. I was hurt, and I was disappointed. Yeah, it's very easy for me to say I regret that, and I handled it all wrong, 100%. So let's stop there. For everyone who says CM Punk hasn't admitted he did anything wrong, there it is. But what happened in advance of this was the whisper campaign, blah, 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 right? And then it comes out, and there's nothing out of the way. There's nothing untoward. He's honest. And the the basic issue he had that he mentioned there was with Paige, but that he had tried to be conciliatory and had been rebuffed in those efforts and it had been blown up and blah, blah, blah. We know the rest. What did one of the EVPs do before the uh, the uh um actually was this hold on ah this was after after the ESPN article came out Nikki Buckaroo puts on his Instagram a picture of Paige the other night from TV and their six man trying to kill Wheeler useless well he's flying flips off the top rope where they just dropped him on the floor and says not only is he good at wrestling but he's an even better human being hangman adam page the defender of colt cabana the defender of us all from this evil force so that's what an executive vice president is supposed to do right to again try to get this thing sabotaged because they're children and because they're petty but it didn't work this time and there was a lot more backlash to them on the internet and on social media because they were too obvious about it this time so uh dave shearer at pw insider wrote a nice piece an article on the whole issue entitled Tony Khan as a group of people who he has been nothing but good to doing their best to destroy the thing he loves, which is a heck of a title. But 
I'm not going to read the whole thing because I encourage you guys to go to pwinsider.com and do that. It was the article is up on June 16th at 4:28 p.m. But the last two paragraphs, he says Tony Khan has a big problem, and a big part of that problem is Tony Khan. Now, let me state up front that as long as he wants to spend his family's money, AEW is fine. It'll stay around. The question to me is, what does he want his legacy in the business to be? Right now, he is seen as the nice guy who some of the talent takes complete advantage of. Some even see him as a marked promoter. AEW started so hot and with so much buzz, now it's settled into a place where its core base likes it and growth has stagnated. Is management style and booking is the reason that's happened. And at a time when WWE's business is up, AEW's is down. It's not the business. It's, it's not the business. It's AEW's business. That's the problem. And he said, again, if any of the things that have happened just in this ESPN article controversy or above, had happened at WWE, heads would have rolled. After one event, there wouldn't have been a second. EVPs would have been stripped of their titles and been told to toe the line or don't let the door hit you in the ass. But Tony hasn't done that. He needs to. These wrestlers are not your friends, Tony. Friends wouldn't do things that hurt your business and make your life more difficult. So that that's what... Again, and Dave Shearer is a impartial person because even though Mike Johnson is the nicest human being that ever walked face the earth and hates to hurt anybody's feelings and has a high tolerance for well it was a good match or whatever he's very honest but Dave Shearer is brutally honest because he doesn't give a fuck and none of these people are his friends he's if if Mike Johnson is the editor of PW Insider Dave's the publisher, and he doesn't speak to or befriend or, you know, whatever, either side in this. He's just an adult looking at it. Let me read, so, there's another quote know, here from ahead. the ESPN article that I think is important. Now, we all got to roll in the fucking mud, and that never should have happened and has never been course corrected. So I understand people want to say, oh, man, Punk is a dick. Well, yeah, because I'm defending myself, and I will always defend myself, I'm open to having a full-blown fucking sit-down powwow discussion with everybody about it, but it hasn't happened yet, and it's not because of my lack of trying. There it is. The guys who say they're Christian don't want to forgive. The guys who try to pretend like they're the saints in this matter don't want to even hear what the other party has to say. Everyone who wants to talk about the legal issues, what were the legal issues holding up everything, it's because Tony's trying to protect his company and his EVPs. They put Tony in his position. And now look where we are. I will say one more thing coming out of all this, Jim, that's interesting. What we've been talking about, I think a lot of other people are finally starting to pick up on. If you're in the Young Bucks fan base or camp even, CM Punk's not the problem with all this. It's all been Tony Khan. And if you're in the punk camp, it's the same thing. It hasn't been the elite. It's Tony Khan. Tony Khan has fostered an environment where this kind of shit happens. You could argue it was encouraged to happen and that it happened. And as Punk said, nothing's been done for course correction. That's true. 
Nothing's been done to change everything, to change anything, excuse me. And my fear is, even with Collision and with Dynamite and the separations that appear to be there, I don't know if the problems are going to go away. And I think the problems, whether they get a new deal or not, with the original elite and the owner of all elite may be a growing concern. You think the Wednesday night crew is going to be cheering for the success of the Saturday show in their hearts? <laughs> I think anyone who's not a main eventer will. Probably. Hopefully. Well, yeah. I mean, the the rank and file, the, uh, you know, the, the regular guys that just want to get over and be in the wrestling business, but I'm talking about the ones that Tony's paying the most money to. The big yeah, stars. The main have, eventers. have a chance of being exposed. I'm sure an Adam Cole and probably an MJF, because he's the world champion, are probably rooting for that. That was the opening match this week. The main event, though, the BCC and the Elite, I'm pretty sure we know where Moxley and the Bucks and all these people stand on CM Punk and what is basically the CM Punk show. Well, there you again, this time it didn't work. Let's see what they come up with next. But remember, folks, we were calling it before it was so see-through, weren't we, Brian? What are you calling over on the uh, 605, the Wrestling News, the Arcadian Vanguard, the whole entire network and plethora of podcasts that you produce this week? I'm going through it pretty quickly because we've been going a long time and there's still more to go, and I don't know how long you're going to go. But go through, uh, go through nothing. Check out the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at Super Podcasts or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. The Wrestling News. Every single day, get your wrestling news direct to you. No opinion, no conjecture, just the wrestling news. Brief and to the point, go to TheWrestlingNews.com or look for Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News wherever you find your favorite podcast. Maybe going beyond just podcasts very soon. Stay tuned for that. As I said before, get information about all the shows on Twitter and on Facebook. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! <laughs> Go through the archive of the greatest single wrestling body of work in audio history, 605pod.com, or wherever you find your favorite podcast, the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership. All right, and now the debut on television we've all been waiting for, Collision finally came to fruition on June 17th, the debut from the United Center in Chicago. CM Punk returns to television, and I trend on Twitter. How the fuck does that work, Brian? Well, some of the fans who... Obviously, this show is geared towards a certain fan base, and some of the fans who are not in that fan base may have lost their minds a little bit at seeing a Jim Cornette face t-shirt on their show. A cornet Which, face shirt or a cornet face sign or a, a fucking uh, like Mussolini sign or a, we had a presence there. The cult was was there. But it wasn't just unavoidable. It was also purposely shown. Let's be honest. Well, I mean, they know what a safe shot is for the, uh, you know, for the audience that they're going for. Hey, um, Saturday night's all right for fighting. What do you think? Hey, that's that. a great idea. As a matter of fact, I like using Saturday Night's All Right for fighting for a wrestling show so much, I'm going to use it in Smoky Mountain Wrestling in 1992. That was the best video because you got to see every single star that had come <laughs> in the entire year. Terry Gordy, the Wild Bunch, all the guys that weren't there at the end of the year. It was awesome. It was tremendous. Tremendous. Well, anyway, but I'm not pissing on it. No, I like it. It's I like that Tony is willing to spend some of his money on actual music because nobody can deny that commercial music 
combined with wrestling. That's what made the rock and wrestling era. That's what made all the guys' entrances in the 80s so iconic. So And, and also, because the WWE, Raw, and SmackDown have the worst fucking opening music for shows in the history of wrestling. So this is refreshing. All wrestling shows for the last yeah. generation have had bad opening music. So it isn't even just the idea of licensing the Elton John song, which is almost 50 years old, but it's a classic and it still sounds great. It's a different sound than every yes. other show. It's a different feeling just from the jump than all the other shows because of the music. It's not just constant. All right. Are you ready? Are what? you ready for? I'm ready to press mute. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for all the fucking talking you're going to do to me. But anyway, Kevin Kelly and Nigel, the announcers, I think we needed a quick on camera. I know they wanted to pan the crowd and get right to the entrance, but at the same time, because they are new faces in the company, as well as this being a new television show, I would have loved to have said, because they have the announcers at ringside, which is obviously much better than sitting them up. I can, from an announcer standpoint, I can tell you I'd rather be at the table at ringside than sitting up on a stage that's awkward and it takes you out of it. So they could have swung by for an on-camera, but nevertheless, they transition from these sweeping crowd shots to... Like Mussolini, it's our man Phil, and he's back, and he's gonna raise some hill. Oh, well, I couldn't call him Phil, could I? Pathetic. But anyway, ladies and gentlemen, this review is brought to you by the official Cornet Face T-shirt, available at JimCornet.com. Wear it to Collision tapings, and CM Punk will wink at you. <laughs> now back to our review. So it was a huge ovation, and he brought the bag with the belt that he never lost, his wrestling shoes around his neck, and his first words were basically, I'm tired of being nice. No more Mr. Nice Guy for the punkster. And this is the professional wrestling business. And he put over Chicago and the fans... He started the, the first of several times that he said what may be a new trademark. I don't like the word catchphrase. It's so a trademark line for him. Tell me when I'm telling lies. Which might be something that he can use quite often around that place. When everybody else is singing, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Tell me lies, tell me, tell me lies. Stop singing. On the show, please. So he please. said some some people some people hate me for the same reason that you love me, Chicago. And I understand that the sheer magnitude of me makes some people uncomfortable. This is a guy, and then the fans start chanting, fuck the elite, of course. And again, he is so brilliant verbally, such a cunning linguist that he doesn't have to do the cheap shit that's obvious to get people to chant derogatory things about people he doesn't like. He can just make a blanket statement and they get the point. And one that got a lot of traction, as they say, on social media was David Zaslav, who I had to check on that one, but he's, I guess, the president of Warner Brother Discovery Media Conglomerate. 
But he said, David Zaslov calls me one Bill Phil because I'm the one true article in a business of counterfeit bucks. <laughs> and that one landed, and then he winked at the guy in the cornet face shirt. And, you know, this was, it was a, a brilliant double-edged promo, I thought, because for the casual fan, if there indeed exists that animal, but just for the sake of logic and continuity on the television program, if nothing else, he talked about never having lost the belt. He talked about his tricep injury, tearing the muscle off the bone. He talked about surgery and the rehab. He talked about always being himself and never compromising. And it, it, he, it was a straight, and he's coming back to regain the recognition that he never lost with that belt in the bag, et cetera. If you didn't know anything past what you'd seen on television, it was a strong babyface return promo in his hometown arena with a, a bunch of people there. And for the majority of people, honestly, that are into this company in this day and age, that do know what happened, there was enough remarks without coming out and saying things that he addressed that too. And with the pops that he was getting from the crowd, one would think that Chicago would fall into that category of being the people who were up on it. And, you know, again, he said, for those of you who feel they're owed an apology, I'm sorry. The only people softer than you are the wrestlers you like. And we know exactly where that's going. And he's not wrong. And then a brilliant line was, he reminds everybody when he reminded them that he had the, the uh, or that he won the belt and never lost it. He said, because I didn't have the best dog collar match, I won the dog collar match. And this is mine until somebody pins me or submits me. And until somebody can fill these boots, they belong on my feet. Mic drop. Boom. 12 minutes. He had them on the edge of their seats. They liked everything he said. It was well done. It hit all the right spots. And here we go. There's not too much I could add to that. Strong promo. You know, I think with some people, there's a little bit of disappointment that there aren't going to be more direct shots, which I'm guessing there won't be until everyone decides to work together and be friends. But it was the reintroduction that he needed, exactly where it needed to be. And it was a promising start. You know, I wanted to go into this show with some optimism that AEW will do something right. They did his debut right. And I think his return was really good. The only thing I wouldn't have done, minor thing to go to your uh, point earlier, I wouldn't have had the commentators say anything until after this and you could show them as opposed to hearing any voices at all before that because you could barely hear them with the way AEW mics the crowd and yeah well you know and that would have been a way to that would have been a way to do it and I can see that at the same point I think they feel like they had to welcome everyone at the top of the brand new program and never been a program in this series but the bigger issue, I thought it was me and my bad hearing. And I tried this on two different televisions, but in a lot of cases, the mix of the announcers oh, yeah. was oh, yeah. buried in the crowd. And I know it was a rowdy crowd, but these things are controllable. Did you have problems hearing them also? I did. And in general, I always have issues 
with AEW audio. And I get that different people get different feeds. Like if you're watching it on TV versus the internet feed, you may get different audio. But on TV, traditionally, it's rough. Now, sometimes you could tell it's not you, it's them. Now, sometimes you could tell, tell it's in the house, it's on the mic, like there's nothing going, there's nothing that's going to change it there. But other times you could tell it's the mix and Kevin Kelly's not Excalibur. And I mean that in a very good way. He's not yes. just screaming at you. So maybe they weren't prepared for a human being, an adult, doing commentary here, but also the fans were loud. That's why I would have just start the show with Punk. That's what everyone's there to see. Start it with Punk, then go to the commentators. Then the crowd would have started dying down anyway. You would have been able to hear them better. Yes, because when you got the crowd screaming and the music and the and the announcers vying for your aural a-U-R-A-L attention, it does get problematic. Which and, two commentators yell less than Nigel McGinnis and Kevin Kelly? Well, and, and, and I mean that in a good way. I'm um, not saying that in a bad way. Well, um, Ian Riccoboni and Caprice Coleman. That's true. And so now there are, there are two accomplished announcing teams out there floating around in the wrestling industry. One is now finally employed in AEW, Ni uh, Nigel McGinnis and Kevin Kelly, and hopefully our friend Ian Rickaboner and his sidekick Caprice Coleman will land somewhere that we actually care about watching. Yeah, on Wednesday Night Gorilla, whatever that show is. Yeah. Anyway, um, speaking of gorillas, would you have placed the... TNT title match between Wardlow and Dino Douche, where they did right after the Punk interview, first match on this program. It's supposed to be, you know what? Allegedly supposed to be more about great wrestling. Not only would I have not done that, in watching this show live, this was the one thing I wasn't a big fan of until at least the finish, because then at least, you know, when the crowd reacts like that, it gets you into it a little bit. Yeah. But Wardlow. He's so cold right now. Even though, like, they're trying it again with him, it's just, I don't know, it's not working. I, I mean, he lost the title, so I guess it's not working in kayfabe either. But there's something so cold about him right now that it took me out of it a little bit when this was the next match. Well, think about this, though. Besides that, I'm talking about the performance aspect. We know a lot of people are cold. They can heat them back up if they're heatable. But Wardlow, he got over... His appearance, his size, the dominant powerbomb symphony on all those stooges that he did for so long. And for, honestly, much like Goldberg, but at the same time, Bill Goldberg is a lot more outgoing and aggressive personality than Wardlow seems to be in real life. But much like his early time, he can be aggressive and he can be intense and he can be explosive for two minutes, two and a half minutes, whatever the case. But when it has to go longer, that is lacking. And then it only comes in fits and spurts. And I also compare Wardlow to Lex Luger at this stage, because at that time, people were saying, well, Luger looks great. The body's great. Boy, you know. He's got the height and the size, but he can't work. His work's a shits. That's what the boys would say, right? Especially in other territories, and, you know, but even some in Crockett. You know, well, we'll lead Luger along through it. 
Well, that was in 1986, and that was somewhat true. But by 1987, 88, especially, as we've talked about, if you had that Lex Luger in the ring today, he would be goddamn one of the biggest stars in the business, and the guys were still thinking, well, he's green, but he's coming along. You know what I think is an even better comparison? He's Kevin Nash in 95. Kevin Nash, as a heel, as a cool heel bodyguard, got over. Yeah. Eliminating all those guys in the Royal Rumble, the place started cheering for him. He got over as that guy. They said, okay, fans are cheering for him. Let's turn him babyface. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he became... And make him smile. It took his edge off. He didn't really come back until he turned back heel later on. And then he wore a Christmas sweater. Right. But, but, but here's the thing. Nash, from the start, had some element of the big man psychology. Yes. And definitely. And that's what his primary strength was from start to the finish, was his big man psychology. But the reason I compared Wardlow to Lex is because Wardlow, he's still, he does moves well, and he's very agile, and he can do the swanton and the rolling thing. But he tries too many moves while not being, he's not aggressive in terms of his face, in terms of his body language. His strikes look weak. He looks tentative. He doesn't grab a guy and manhandle him like a big guy should. He's throwing Dino douche, who's as big as he is, rolling him into the ring with a fucking, you know, a whisper and a fucking tickle. It was an indie level big man match that if I was on a scouting trip for the WWF at the time or anybody, I would have evaluated this and said, both these guys should go to OVW. They've obviously just started, but look at their bodies and, and they are athletic. Maybe we can train them. The problem is they've all been working for several years. But uh, whereas Luger was in the ring every night, either alongside or against the Four Horsemen and the fucking Rock and Roll Express and, and at midnight, every great talent in the business and was learning steadily Wardlow once a week, if that, power bombs somebody or whatever for I don't know how long. And that's been his... And even if he's in in class, you can't just train all that in class. Anyway, that's... To me... The announcers were calling the match. That's unusual in AEW. There was some fighting on the floor, but it was at a minimum. There was no furniture. They were trying to have a wrestling match, but Dino's fairly the shits, and Wardlow's still green at, at presenting himself the way he needs to be to get over. That's what I think. My Kevin Nash comparison, though, is less about the actual working ability. It's more about the effects of what happened. Again, the fans started cheering for the person naturally. He kind of went with that. And then once the turn happens, once the championship is won by Kevin Nash in WWE, or once Wardlow defeats MJF, it's just a giant letdown from there. It feels like the edge is taken off the person. Yes. So but... that's the comparison I'm... I'm and I and I see your comparison and I raise it, but even the the idea is now for him to get them back interested in him, and his performance is not showing that because he's not as intense for as long and against another guy's big who's also green. Point I'm making is Wardlow now is also 
a live in-concert performance by Strawberry Alarm Clock after they've done Incense and Peppermints. What do you follow it with? Is he being miscast as a babyface right now? Probably. Not that you want to switch people back and forth too much, but he's switched once and he's lost everything that kind of made him popular before he turned. Well, and but one of the things that made him popular was Christian was browbeating him and things. Oh, fuck it. I think we're spending too much time on analyzing his career. Point is, he got beat here in a fairly eh, match. Christian is the, the best worker and the best talent. He's on the floor. But when Dino drew the referee, Christian grabbed one of the photographer's cameras at ringside and hit Wardlow over the head with it twice, as a matter of fact. And Dino covered him one, two, three. But as I said, there was no comedy. They didn't fight on the floor. There was no furniture. Even though this was not a, a good match because there was no real leader in the ring, you can still see they're trying to make this show different. Thank fucking God. To me, this was the only thing on the show I was disappointed with, really. Everything else was kind of a mild surprise at times. <laughs> and this is the one thing I just didn't like on the show. Um, it, we got to hear from Powerhouse Hobbs, but we had to trade that by also hearing from QT Marshall. I take that back. There was another thing I didn't like on this show. <laughs> well, but at least Hobbs gets to speak. He's not just a mute anymore. But, uh, but break him away backstage. from QT. That's the only thing holding him back. Why have him with QT? I don't know. But I've become a fan of Andrade's. He was not bad here. Now, he, I don't know, maybe it was just, um, just I was carried up in the moment of a new television program or whatever, but Buddy Matthews and Andrade, again, this looked more like a wrestling program because here's two guys that look good. Buddy's jacked to the gills. He's got a great physique. He reminds me of John Nord a little bit with just his look his, and his physique and et cetera. And Andrade was good. And Julia Hart looks great in her gimmick as long as she stays in her gimmick. But it was wrestling again. They were being serious. They were aggressive. They did go to the floor some, but they'd go right back in. And then they'd go out and they'd fight on the table for a second, but they'd go back in. It wasn't like just a free-for-all like we see on Wednesdays. And they, they told a story. Matthews worked on Andrade's bad arm, but then he hit that Meteora, and this was entirely believable. I don't know how a 250, 60-pound man can do that move and not blow both of his posterior cruciate ligaments, but bless him. But when he hit the Meteora, he hurt his knee and sold that. And there was a story, and during the picture-in-picture, picture, they had doctors in the ring checking on both of them to make sure they could continue. And finally, Andre made the nice comeback and did the figure four and arched back like Charlotte. That was like, maybe it's a figure six, right? I don't think it was a figure eight. Charlotte gets a higher arch. But, and Matthews tapped. Matthews has a rotten name and is in a group of goofs that does stupid shit with the lights going on and off. But there's a star under there somewhere. Maybe a crazy heel with a fucking manager? With a good name? I don't know, but anyway, 
they had a good match. And I was hoping for the best. Let's leave on a high note. And then the lights went out. <laughs> and the lights came back on. And there was Malachi Black and what's his name? Burger King in the ring, the big tattooed fat guy. And they beat up Andre. And then the lights went out. And we went to the break. So we never found out how these motherfuckers, any of them, got out of the ring. What'd you think? I wasn't expecting much from the match, and they pulled me in, and I really liked it a lot. It was a good, hard-hitting match with logical storytelling by two big guys. I mean, they both look yeah. like they can kick some ass. Good match. You know, the finish plays into the fact that Andrad, Andrad, Andre, I'm doing a Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly couldn't pronounce his name either. Andrade, Andrade El Idolo. Idolo was... Italo was the janitor at uh, Lido Elementary School, but Andrade El Idolo. Lido? Oh, 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 oh. Well, thank you, Boz. Boz Cornette. Do you like Boz Gags before he went disco? Hey, low, low, low down, baby. As I was saying, let me make one thing perfectly clear. Um, What was I saying? You were saying that oh, these guys... they played into the fact that it's uh, Rhea Ripley's boyfriend and Charlotte Flair's husband uh, with that finish there, which I thought was interesting. Really good match. And again, I'm thinking, okay, I wasn't really into the Wardlow match. I got the Punk interview. I kind of know a little bit of what's coming up the rest of the show. Promising. This match ended up being what I want from modern wrestling in a lot of ways. And then the lights went out. And I fucking <laughs> groaned. I, I was like, oh, no. Like, even if you're going to have these goofs on this show, Say, keep the Bray Wyatt shit on Wednesday. I don't need this. And yeah, it sucked. And then the lights go out. They don't even give you the courtesy of the lights coming back on and you see them gone from the ring. The lights never come back on. Yeah. Everyone's gone. The show's gone at that point. Uh, That's the only thing. Uh, Even if Malachi and Brody King are going to be featured on this show in the House of Black are... Someone needs to be able to say, we're not going to do all the spooky shit. We'll make you guys as badass as you want to be. Yeah. But like, literally no spooky shit. No lights Because it also out. takes them so fucking long. And the announcers are sitting there going, well, I wonder what's going to happen. The first time it happens, if you've never seen it before, you're like, oh my God, what, what just happened? The second time, you're like, what do they do? Do they run out of the ring as soon as it's over? The third time, you're like, yeah, I think they're running into the ring and then running out of the ring and then pretending like they've been there the whole time. It's stupid. It's for children. Following that thought, um, oh, wait, I forgot. And there was a Scorpio Sky package, so we might get to see him. He's a good worker. Uh, But then Tony Nese and Mark Sterling were in the ring, and thankfully not for long. And then here came Miro. Miro is back, and he came all over the place. Again, he beat the shit out of Tony Nese. He did the 10 beats of Bulgaria like uh, Seamus and the Brutes do. He won with the camel clutch. He's an impressive beast, a fresh start. And again, I'm just, I'm astonished that they hid this guy for so long. The first time they brought him in in the Mickey Mouse shirt or Minnie Mouse and his little friend Pip and all that stuff. And, but now he's been gone for so long. Because he finally, I guess, just told Tony, fuck, when you figure out something to do with me, let me know. And so they came in and he, they smashed him over. That's exactly what they should have done. And it was a 
a match with a guy that looked like an athlete, Tony Nese, but was clearly overmatched in this pecking order, and Miro gets a dominant win. Exactly what it should have been. What do you think about old Miro? Happy to see him back. Happy to see him go over. I thought it went too long. He should have just squashed him quickly. He's a comedy figure. He was establishes that right before the match started with Mark Sterling, especially. Other than that, I can't complain. Want to see what they're going to do with Miro, who he's going to work with. Happy to have him back. And I guess the only fear is, you know, the House of Black are here and they're doing their spooky shit. Is Miro going to be here and booked well? Or is it going to be like Miro's here and... Because last time he was gone, there were creative differences, right? He didn't want to do whatever Tony was asking him to do. And Lord knows, since we've seen so much since then, what it was that Tony was asking him to do. But if used well, I like Miro a lot. I'm a fan of Miro's. Well, by cracky, we're going to give him a chance here, now that he's, he's straightened up and flying right, as Mama Cornette used to say. What did you think of Storm and So-So against Blue and Willow? I found myself surprisingly really liking it. And I think part of it was the fans were into it. Sky Blue, hometown girl. And I just watched that RJ City interview with her. <laughs> so I have this conception of her, or perception of her, I should say. And then I watched the match, and I have to say, I thought she did really, really well. And I thought, I think Willow's pretty good. And I like Tony Storm, and Ruby's all right. Soraya just vanished. She's so-so. Soraya's just vanished off the show, if you haven't noticed. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Is somebody noted that on Twitter? So where's Soraya? Is Soraya's gone again or gone somewhere? Or is she hurt or what's happening? Nothing has been said publicly, so no one knows. Well, somebody knows. They're just not saying it. And we're going to get to the bottom Joe of this. Joe Pettacino knows. <laughs> That's right. I thought this was a good match, actually. And if you knows Joe like I knows Joe. I think it was a good match, and I think it was a match that would have probably stunk on a lot of dynamites in front of a dead crowd. Yeah. But this was a hot crowd. And again, they were in the sky blue because she's a local girl. Ruby and Tony. Tony is, Tony's one of the best entering women in the business, but as a heel, she's really good. I'm really, not a fan of her new hairdo. She's a heel. Be she honest looks, oh, it's great. She's a heel. She's a heel. Oh, but anyway, the, the, here's what I didn't like about this. And I like Willow. Once, once they started the match, it was, you know. But the girls jump in fighting on the floor, and Sky Blue's mother is in the front row, and she gets to slap both heels. No, that right? was the only bad thing. I agree one, with that. One right after the other one. They're both standing there. Yeah, slap. Oh, here's one for you. Slap. And. And then they start the match. And then I was thinking, they've gone so far, they're going to let the girls be the ones to fight on the floor. Coming off the AEW appearance of Sky Blue, should the mother of them throw like some matches to her daughter? Should oh, they have played into sake. it? Should they have played into her lighting people on fire? That's my she's question. Not a, she's not an arsonist. Uh, but no, you're right. Sky Blue, uh, for especially for the time that she's obviously been in the business, she did some good shit and was looking good. Obviously, they need to let her hopefully grow up, get older, smarter, more personality, more outgoing, more comfortable, something or other than the RJ City interview led us to believe she is personally, but her in-ring for that level of experience is good. Storm and So-So, good heel team for the girls. And uh, yeah, there you go. And the Babyface's hometown hero went over. Good match. 
Um, you won't say it, but I'll say it. Well, good no, match. It was, it, was, it, was, it was a good girls tag team match, especially by AEW standards. How's that? It even gets an extra star for considering an AEW an match. extra star. Oh, okay. Interesting. Now you're just giving away stars willy nilly, Uncle Dave. Is that how well, it works? everybody can do it, you know? So, uh, Ricky Starks has entered the Owen Hart tournament. And that's pretty much what we heard from him. And then they did the live in-ring interview with the acclaimed and Billy Gunn. Tony Schiavone was there. It was a good promo to just get them on TV and get themselves over and talk about themselves like we used to do in the old days, but, and it was short and they ended up scissoring each other with Tony, but they have nothing specific to talk about. But sometimes, especially considering some of the things Tony has people talking about, it's better to just send guys out and don't let them wear out their welcome. Not a 20 minute monologue like you get on raw or whatever, but just do an interview, fire people up, do your shit and make them like you and get the fuck out. So I didn't have a problem with this either. They rapped, Billy talked, Caster talked, they scissored, they're gone. It was all right. I guess my biggest problem is they challenge or they still want to challenge for the trios title, which I had conveniently forgotten about. Uh, one of the champions was on the show in a singles match, so how prestigious is that championship right well, now? Well, what else are they going to say? They got nothing else to say. And and they can't challenge for the tag team title because FTR is the only team people probably like more than them. I'm not a big fan of the Shivani spot, but I wouldn't have used Shivani here. I think you're going for a different look and a different feel. It was a different set. It looked nice. Different commentating team. Dasha on ring announcing, not Justin Roberts. So different ring announcer. I would have gone with a different interviewer than what you get on Dynamite. They used uh, Lexi Nair in the back for some of the stuff. She's good, but I wouldn't have used Shivani. I would kind of really separate yeah. Dynamite he's, he's, and this. He's got the stench of Wednesday night on him. He's like Mr. Wednesday night. Mr. Wednesday night, Tony Shivani. Wednesday night, Tony Shivani. <laughs> Everyone knows it's Wednesday. All righty then. And now it's time for our main event of the evening. Samoa Joe and Jen and Juice against FTR and CM Punk. And they gave it to us with 30 minutes left on the air. And the big entrances and the place is ready for it. And I got to tell you, again, besides the fact that this is the first time we've had a chance to see either Jay White or Juice Robinson in a, a long competitive match with other people that can work and something sensible instead of just jumping in from behind or doing an angle or having hoo-ha match, whatever the fuck. There's their top heel team to work with FTR and there's Samoa Joe. We already know that he and Punk want to work with each other. So this six man gave us a tease and a very good one of what we can see for the tag team title and what we can see for the ring of honor, uh, whatever title Joe has or still has, or potentially the AEW title that punk may reclaim or some kind of title, but punk and Joe and FTR and gin and juice are going to be fucking just swell in my opinion. And I mean, the difference in this, I've it just jotting things down. Six pros that look like pros, like athletes. They look serious. They're wrestling. Their timing and execution is good. The pacing, the crowd is hot. Good high spots, good action, but it's a struggle. 
no furniture, no combative parkour, no aggressive tumbling, nothing endless on the floor. The announcing, the production, everything makes this look like a major league wrestling show. And that is a completely different vibe on several of those levels than AEW usually reaches, except when, as we mentioned, there was the, the uh, you know, the run that Punk had where his shit made sense and MJF has reached heights, but overall with the crowd, the announcer, the whole nine yards, everything, it's not something that we normally see on an AEW TV show that you could say this is as good or this is competitive or this company is apparently on the level of the WWE. I mean, am I just overstating this or did you get that vibe? I don't want to compare it to WWE right now, but I think it was certainly a clear difference. There was a clear difference, I should say, between this and Wednesday night. And the commentating to me was the biggest thing because I always say how Excalibur and that Wednesday night team were the least effective commentating team out there. It's the tone. It's what they're saying. It's how they're saying it. It's constantly yelling at you, speed talking to you. You know, not, and I've, I've, I'm not anybody to say on my announcing, you know, constantly yelling, but with conviction, with meaning, with purpose, with delivering information, instead of just sounding, sounding disingenuous and hokey and it's over the top winking, uh, you know, at the audience. I am a wrestling announcer. Yes. Because they all think they're mean Gene Okerlund somehow. But and and let's uh, while we're talking about the announcing, this was the match, the main event, where Kevin and Nigel were joined by Jim Ross. And boy, howdy! Apparently, everybody knows now. He said it on Twitter. Jim Ross had one of those days, a bad day and bad trip, bad performance, unfortunately. But apparently, somewhere or sometime the night before, I guess, or early in the morning that he was supposed to go to the taping. He was, he's at his place in Florida and he was in a fall and blacked his eye and it was swollen closed. He tweeted a picture that morning, bad fall, still going to, you know, Chicago for the dynamite debut. And then when he was able to be in the booth, he had no voice. It just, it was gone. And that's, I have had troubles with my voice in the past. Remember, we had it on the show here, and it was it was from overuse. When I quit doing announcing and screaming in loud arenas, you know, it's it's better. But there's no worse feeling than trying to be an announcer and having no voice. It's just, it's fucking unbearable. So I felt so bad for him. But he really couldn't contribute. He was trying. Uh, but the morning after... The show this morning, he basically tweeted out that, you know, he apologized for his performance and is going to step away and heal is what his quote was. I don't know whether the, I don't know whether he was sick on top of the fall. I can tell you that if he fell the night before, and obviously it might be hard to get sleep in a situation like that, then he's flown in an airplane from Florida to, to Chicago and it's fucking. 9.30 Eastern time, if he's been up for 14 hours, JR's 10 years older than I am. That kind of shit makes you lose your voice too. I don't know to that extent, but 
you know, I felt bad for him, and I hope that uh, he he can take a few weeks off and just rejuvenate. But again, the dedication that Jr. has to it, 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 I will say about Jim Ross what Jim Hurd once said to Jim Ross about me. I haven't seen such loyalty since Korea. He refuses to call in sick or to not show up or to not be there to do the best he can with whatever. To the point, remember, in Baltimore, he passed a kidney stone in a pre-tape on a pay-per-view and didn't tap out. But he needs to... None of us are as young as we used to be. And I'm not saying that anybody's too old to not be able to do what they used to do, but they sure can't do it as often or for as long. And and maybe they ought to try to pick JR spots where he's an analyst for the main events on pay-per-views and he can come in and do production, you know, during the daytime, not in fucking hectic arenas, not after dragging him across the country with one eye or whatever for 14 hours, that might be a better use of his talents at this point. Or they could just listen to him when he gives the wrestlers some advice on what to do, but he tried that before and they mocked him on Twitter. So there's that. Back to this match. Dax is, I thought was as smooth as ever, although he makes me nervous because he doesn't wear a sleeve over that knee brace. And I saw the top of the, the thigh strap on his knee brace was loose. I'm like, Oh God. Cause that's another one of my nervous Nelly, you know, situation, bad knees. But Dax was great, but Cash is phenomenal. And he doesn't get enough recognition for that. Uh, especially that dropkick series he uncorked and some of the other shit that he did. And he's so smooth. And, and as I said before, now that I've seen Jen and Juice in a real wrestling match, I think they're the top heel team in the company. And that's they were bringing Jay White in like he was going to be a big singles deal. And I mean... It, I guess they could still make him a big singles deal, but I don't think I think they need to be the tag team because that they're perfect for FTR and they work well together. And then you get, you know, Joe and Punk in there, and they did some good stiff shit. And Joe can still move like he did 15 years ago when he's motivated and involved in something important. You know, he was doing his shit, and I like the babyface team. Uh, did the Midnight Express Midnight Express? Who are they? Midnight Express Suplex <laughs> pickup into the Power Slam. The spot. Midnight Express. Stop it! Um, I stole that from Sl I researched it from Slater and Orton, 1983 Mid Atlantic. We did it, but the job guys back then weren't great at going up for vertical suplexes, so we switched it to where <laughs> Stan would fucking pick the guy up in an ass bump and hand him to Bobby who's sitting on the top rope and he'd do the spine buster. Anyway, um, major league look and match. Cash, great buzz, saw your power slam at one point. Juice Robinson might be my new favorite wrestler. And he was- I the, told you, he's great. I know, you, you don't have to keep saying that though. I told you so, I told you so. I learned that from you. <clears throat> well, you learned too good. <laughs> but I love Juice. 
And then finally, Punk got the last big hot tag and made the big comeback, and they did lots of back and forth, and this match had flown by. Instead of being a 30-minute series of chaos that you couldn't keep straight and nobody could possibly ever live through, this was an athletic contest that went back and forth with twists and turns and believable fucking bumps. They stayed in the ring. No dives. And then finally, as I mentioned, Punk made that big comeback, and then they set the deal up where <laughs> Cash and Punk tagged each other in at the same time, which you can't do, but fuck it. People were with it. But And, and Kevin Kelly... You can't do it, though. Who is just as quick like that, saw that, and so as not to bury himself, but as not to shit on the match, said, well, they might be taking a little liberty with that tag. And so it was registered and noted, but it was moved on, and but you still, you can't do it. And then, uh, Punk and Joe stood and traded. Boom, 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 boom. And it broke into a big six-way, and Joe got Punk in the sleeper. And Jen and Juice were holding FTR on either side of the ring so they couldn't make the save. And finally, FTR came out. Cash hit that big body block of Jay White, I think, off the apron. And Dax saved uh, the Punk from Joe with the headbutt to the back. And that's they that got was me. brilliant. They got, I thought there was a chance Joe was going to choke him out there. They yes. got me. And it, there was, it, they milked it enough that you bought it, but then they didn't go too long that it, it, it lost the momentum. And then FTR broke it up just in time, but that was brilliant because they've showed that Joe would have choked Punk out, and even the announcers said it. If it hadn't been for FTR, Joe would have choked Punk out. And that can be brought back in a single situation. And at the same point, FTR cleared the path for of of gin and juice and then save punk and then FTR hit the big rig on juice and who took a bump and bounced into punk's go to sleep one two three and what a finish it built it built bigger it wasn't like they did every big move they knew and then when they were done with that, somebody just won with a simple thing or tapped out or whatever. It was that they built it and built it, and finally it was slam, bang, pow! One, two, three. And then a big pop. And I'm losing my voice like JR from staying up and watching too much wrestling. But that's the way you build a finish, and then you blow it off, and then you pay it off, and then the people loved it. This was the best six-man tag match in AEW history. Now, I know that ain't saying much because normally they're the shits. But they proved here you can have a good one if you try and you know what you're doing. By far, this was the best six-man tag they've ever had. And it wasn't for their bullshit trios title. It was just six guys, three on each side, that wanted to fight each other. So. Again, I, you know, we don't know what the ratings are. This is Sunday morning, I guess. Good God. I don't know if this is planet Earth anymore. It's afternoon now. Well, well, there you go. We talked too long. But we won't get ratings for a few days. We'll see. It's a new show. It's Saturday night, et cetera, et cetera. But one would think that if they keep doing shows like this without the 
silliness and the softness that they'll get some of the disaffected fans back. They're going to get the punk fans. And if they keep having wrestling like that, then they may get some of the wrestling fans that have given up on all this other bullshit. We'll see what happens. But in the meantime, I would think that they will have a better audience retention on this program because the last two segments were just as good as the first one was. All right. Well, that was AEW Collision. That, you have no opinions? Are there no opinions? No workhouses? Well, to your overall thought, I think the most important thing, and that's one of the reasons why I didn't like the House of Black uh, blackout segment, even though I like Buddy Matthews's match, I want a different tone here. I think the experiment should be a different tone. Let's see how a different, a serious tone. The original concept of a sports-based wrestling product. Mid-South 2023. Let's try to do that. And it was a promising start. Excellent six-man tag match. FTR looked great. Juice Robinson, I'm telling you, he's really good. And I think Jay White, when you see him in the States, you realize he's not... Not that everyone has to be a bigger guy, but he's not a bigger guy. And him and Juice together fixes that. Yeah. Because Juice has some size to him. The crowd, when Joe and CM Punk squared off, this is with zero time being spent on TV building up the history of these two guys. Showing the old ROH tapes. Zero time. Which he owns, by the way. Which he owns, which I'm sure we're going to see clips of and interviews about pretty soon. And that was the reaction these guys got just squaring off. That was promising. FTR, you know, I think there's something with FTR to be said for mentally working against people who you know you're not going to have an issue with behind the scenes or whatever else, working with people you want to work with. Again, the new show, the new tone. I think it showed in the work there. These seemed like guys happy. Not that, like, you know, like, happy, like, hey, they're smiling and shit, but they seemed like they were happy to be doing this. They were motivated. They were working hard. You could tell there was extra aggression, extra, we, we've all got something to prove here. We want to stand out. Because they've seen the other side of the coin. A few weeks ago, they would have been in that Aubrey match on Friday night on Rampage. <laughs> that was what these guys were mixed up with, Mark Briscoe and Jarrett and all that. And now here they are doing this, and it was an excellent match. Can't wait to see what they're going to do with Punk and Samoa Joe. You have to think Punk and MJF long-term has to be a thing because he still has the belt. But we yeah. have a world champion. I thought this was an excellent debut episode. Other than the Wardlow match, I liked every match, although the Miro match I thought was too long. But promising. I mean, now it's going to be really interesting going from this to Wednesday night, just seeing the, again, the difference in the tone of the show and the quality of the show, and who's on the show. The opening video here, it was noticeable who wasn't in the video. No Bucks. Yeah. No Adam Page, no Omega. I, I don't I think it was Moxley. I, well, I was disturbed to see Pockets was still there, and my God, that's a pox that they can't infect a brand new program with. But It is, um, it is Tony's personal religion, because Tony loves Orange Cassidy, and Tony believes he's doing special stuff with Orange Cassidy, and Tony is... Yeah, the, the word special could apply in there somewhere. And Tony's insistent on converting non-believers into being believers. If a wrestler doesn't get it or doesn't want to do something with him, Tony will try to get them to understand the brilliance 
of Orange Cassidy. <sighs> which is why he's going to put him on this show, because he wants to stuff him down your throat. <sighs> well, I'm going to cough him back up. But anyway, I thought this was a, a great debut show also, and it's not as laborious to watch as Wednesday night. It's not nearly as silly. It wasn't as repetitive. There was some control with the guys to what they were doing so that everybody's match stood out as somewhat different. And just some logic. No Justin Roberts, no Excalibur, no Shivani. Hate to no Bar Brady. No Bar Brady. Hate to put Taz in that mix, but, you know, Taz, Renee Paquette, various people who are the sounds and the faces of Dynamite were not here. Shivani shouldn't have been here, but I think that's important. Set a different tone to the people who are already disinfected by AEW. Let them know there's something else to embrace. Jim, on that topic, if you don't mind, can we preview this Wednesday's Dynamite? Oh, good Lord. All right, before we close this thing out, and then, uh, then, then I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping it up after that. Well, let's get your thoughts. This is Dynamite for this coming Wednesday, the 21st of June. Here is the lineup tentative as currently stands. Orange Cassidy and Shibata versus Zack Sabre Jr. and Daniel Garcia. Oh, that's that hot match coming off that cold challenge in a pre-tape on last week's program. Well, so hopefully they'll give them 20 minutes, and that way we've got an hour and 40-minute program to watch. The Hardys, consisting of Hardy Party members Matt Hardy and Jeff Hardy, versus The Guns, Austin and Colton. I'm I'm not even trying to shit all over the Hardys. I'm trying to say that he had an opportunity to use one of the iconic tag teams of the modern era in a couple of money-drawing positions. And instead, he just throws them out on television doing whatever the fuck with whoever the fuck, and now it's just sad. You could have built up the reunion of Matt and Jeff as something special in a match on pay-per-view and then do the same thing a month later on free television for ratings and every couple of months have something that they can do after that. And if, if you get six hardy matches in a year, then you've, you've got a return on your investment because you've made each one of them mean something. But instead, they're just throwing them out on television and who gives a shit? And it's sad. Well, speaking of sad, there will also be a blind eliminator tournament for the AEW Tag right, Team what? title shot. Wait a minute. Is that me? Are, they, are the wrestlers blind? Is George Weingaroff George the referee? Weingaroff will be teaming with uh, Silento Rodriguez because we can't find another blind wrestler. <laughs> Actually, Stan Hansen was close. You know what? Legally, I think he is blind. No, I don't think he's legally blind, but he's nearsighted as a fucking son of a bitch. I'll tell you that. Blind Eliminator Tournament for AEW Tag Team Title Shot. All right, whatever that means. Also, Chris Jericho, Sammy Guevara, and Minoru Suzuki versus Action Andretti, Darius Martin, and A.R. Fox. So maybe we can, we've just got an hour and 20 minute program to watch this week. Also, Jeff Jarrett versus Mark Briscoe in a concession stand brawl. Where is this show coming from? 
Do I know what town are this the, is? Are they in Tupelo? Is that what, what they're trying to do? Or is it just... And again, I said this earlier in the program, but I can't believe that Jeff just went up to Tony and said, hey, I'd like to have a concession stand brawl with Mark Briscoe. I guarantee you it's another of Tony's homages to wrestling history, such as, you know, having Sabu throw the chair at the guy and and all the other names that he's brought back or concepts he's brought back just because they happen to be in that state or that city. Everything has to be a Texas tornado death match if they're in fucking Austin, Texas or whatever. And by the way, have we even seen Mark Briscoe and Jeff Jarrett have a singles match? I don't think so. Have they wrestled against each other in anything other than the mixed tag match? I don't think so. So what is the point of all this? And finally, Jim, the final match listed, the TBS champion Chris Statlander against Taya Valkyrie. That might not be too bad. We might have to keep an eye on that. I'm, I'm wanting badly to give Taya Valkyrie another chance because her last outings have not been impressive let's say it was so against we'll jade as a babyface. well exactly so but we believe that she was misplaced miscast in that environment so we're going to see what happens with this one but and and statlander's looking good also tony khan will announce the next thing john moxley will do to upset the censors hi hi hey everyone hey what is we well, don't even know it's either hey everyone or hey everybody hey everybody Mox decided he wants to moon everyone. <laughs> and blade his ass. Uh, all righty. At least he can remove his own hemorrhoids. Anyway, so we're going to come back in a couple of days and do oh. your program, the drive-through. Maybe a few more than a couple of days, but yeah. Maybe, <laughs> maybe one or two more. We don't know what's going to happen, folks. We'll be back as quick as we possibly can, and we won't let anything go without comment. Otherwise, Brian, closing thoughts. We look forward to your questions on the drive-thru this week. There you go. Thank you. Fuck you. And bye-bye, everybody. Wednesday nights, I get to stay up late. Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate. Hey, Mom, I need to watch the show. Meltzer says I'm in the key demo. Meltzer says I'm in the key demo. Tag team division, haven't you heard? We've 
Says I'm in the key demo. 